and rooting. Ownership. Andrew Friedman. Dave Roberts. Backward strike three. Dodgers have won it all in 2020. We love the Dodgers winning the World Series for the first time in 32 years, as I'm sure you've heard by now. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being recorded live and broadcasted live on October 30th, 2020. Right now, the time, 10.36 p.m. We didn't have a show last week. I warned you this might happen because I thought I might need a root canal, and indeed I did. I'm going to tell you shortly about that experience, and I'm going to make an announcement unrelated to the root canal. 
about a special YouTube show on Poker Fraud Alert Radio that is coming up next week that will actually replace the regular Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I know I said I don't like video shows. I'm only doing audio. Next week will be the exception. If you want to see me, and if you want to see me on video for many hours straight, you can do that next week. I will explain shortly. We have a free roll that already started, and that started at 10.25. It's a $58 free roll. You can get in until 10.50, so still 13 minutes left on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find that near the top of the screen. You need a validated account, which means if you don't have that yet, then you won't get one in the next 13 minutes. I can guarantee you that. But if you are validated, then you can play. $58 is being given out this week. To qualify for the free money, you must understand the rules and follow them. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. All lowercase is where you can find those rules. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. The prizes this week will be first place $30, second place $17, third place 11 So it's 30 17 and 11 All of this money, again, came from a prize that was not claimed. Actually, a few prizes that weren't claimed in late 2019 by someone who goes by Landed Mark. He has not claimed uh, a number of his prizes, so we've been giving them away over the last two weeks. Last week we gave $50. This week we were given $58, all from him. So I guess thank you, Landed Mark, for not claiming your prizes, but you should have. I mean, it was your money, but it's not anymore. Again, the rule here is after six months pass, if you do not claim your prize that you went in the free roll, then at any point I may take it to fund future free rolls. Eventually, all money... That is one of the free rolls will either be paid out or rolled back in the pool. And you can see a thread which keeps track of that. So you know I'm not just pocketing the money. You know it uh, always goes somewhere except for me. So that's happening tonight, happening right now. And it uh, should be a pretty small field because it's it's late and also be, because people kind of got unused to the show because it was not on last week and we hadn't been on Friday in some time. So uh, we're back on Friday, except next week we won't be on Friday. So here's what's going on with next week's show. This is an announcement. This is something that kind of came together quickly, and it's something that I did not even organize, but I'm going to be part of. So we have a forum member who goes by PLOL, and he's been part of the community for a long time. He's a younger guy. He's like 30 years old, but uh, he is very, very into following politics and betting on politics. So he very closely follows the political races, especially the presidential race, but other races too. And he bets on them on a site called Predict It. And he is someone who is actually a good resource if you want to ask him about, you know, what are the odds of such and such person winning. And even though he uh, he's not nonpartisan, you know, he, uh, he has his own political opinions, but he's actually pretty good at separating himself and his own opinions from what he thinks is likely and what he thinks is good value. On the upcoming election, he has bets on Republicans and Democrats. However, he is betting pretty heavily on Biden, believing that that's where the better value is. So anyway, he had a he had an idea to do a show, an, a video show on uh, YouTube on election night, actually kind of before election night, uh, 3 p.m. Pacific time is when he wanted to start it, and that it would be a poker fraud alert show, and it would be his show, and then uh, Brandon would be his main co-host, but then there would be guest hosts, some of whom would be on for an hour, some of whom would be on for more, some of whom would uh, leave and come back. He said that he wants a maximum of four people on at once so people don't talk all over each other. Again, it will be on YouTube. It will be on video. And uh, it'll be a nonpartisan analysis 
of the election returns. And you may say, oh, yeah, sure, nonpartisan. I know what it's going to be. It's going to be a right-wing show pretending to be nonpartisan. No, actually, it won't. And here's the way I can guarantee that. PLOL is actually a Democrat. And he's a real Democrat, not just a Republican who pretends to be a Democrat. He's, he's voting for Biden. He's a Democrat. He's on the left. Uh, you guys know I'm on the right. We're going to have various other people on the show. Of course, Brandon's a co-host. We're going to have a, a wide variety of political opinion, but it won't just be a lot of arguing and fighting because that's not what the show is going to be about. It's not going to be rooting for one side. It's going to be nonpartisan logical analysis of what the returns are looking like and predictions on the way it's going to go from that point forward and whatever information we're getting, kind of just as, as things change throughout the day on November 3rd, that we're going to discuss what it means. And we'll be honest about it. It doesn't matter if the person we voted for is looking like they're going to win or not. We're going to be honest about what the chances really are. And it's going to be a, a good nonpartisan show that really will do an intelligent analysis of the ongoing returns throughout the day. And you could say, well, we have that on the networks. We have that on CNN. We have that on Fox News. Yeah, but it, that's not nonpartisan. You're, you're going to have a very hard time finding a cable news channel that is doing truly nonpartisan analysis. And if you don't believe me, go look at the shows from 2016. You had the left-leaning shows, which were in denial for a while that Trump was going to win. And then once Trump was uh, looking like he was starting to pull ahead, they got very somber. They got very depressed. Uh, the whole tone changed. And then on Fox News, it was the opposite, where everyone was very excited. And it was hard to watch these because you knew they were rooting for one side or the other, and it was affecting the reporting. So we're not going to have that here. Even though we'll have people rooting for one side or the other, uh, everybody on the show will be able to separate that from the analysis of the results. So this will really be a good place to hear analysis of the returns as they come in. It'll be a long show. And maybe you're saying, hey, I don't like YouTube. I don't want to watch it on YouTube. Or maybe you're driving and you, you won't even have a good enough reception to pick up a YouTube show that streams. Maybe you just like the audio format. Well, good news. You can listen to it the same way you normally listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, because Poker Fraud Alert Radio will be doing a simulcast of it. Of course, audio only, but the same way you normally listen to live Poker Fraud Alert Radio, yes, including the call to listen line, will be doing a live simulcast of the YouTube show. And if you can't catch this live, it will be in the archives. Now, it may not be very exciting in the archives because you may know the result by then, and some of the stuff we'll be talking about will be obsolete even if we don't know the result, but it'll be in the archives anyway. And that will be the show for next week. I'm not going to do that plus another show on Friday because it's too much. So that will be the show for next week, meaning the next regular Poker Fraud Alert Radio will be on Friday, November 13th. And by then I'm thinking we'll probably know who the next president is. Maybe not, though. Look what happened in 2000. But I think we will know by then. So that is the plan for next week. Who are some of the other guests that will come on? Well, Troy Daruski will be on. I already mentioned Brandon and PLOL. I will be on. Calwatt, remember Calwatt? He is going to be on. He's scheduled to be on right now at uh, 5.15 Pacific time, and he'll be on with me. PLOL will take a break at that point, and uh, I don't know if Brandon will be there too, but at least it will be me and Calwatt and whoever else at 5.15. The show starts at 3. I think Brandon's going to be part of it almost the whole way. I'm not 100% sure, but I know that he and PLOL, this is kind of their show. And uh, Seriously Serious plans to come on. And some other guests 
have said that they would like to come on and be part of this. Some people you haven't heard from in a long time on Poker Fraud Alert Radio from the community, especially the forum community. So we'll have a number of guests on there. I won't be on the entire time. So if you're thinking it's going to be my show or a show that I'm going to be on from start to finish, I won't. But I'll try to be on as many hours as I can. I will be there at the beginning at 3 p.m. Pacific time. And I will definitely be there at 5.15 for at least an hour with CalWatt, and then I will try to be on a good deal throughout the night. So that is what is going on with that. Again, you can catch it on YouTube. I will tweet out the exact URL from the Poker Fraudler Twitter. There is also a Twitter just for this show that's going to be on November 3rd called PFA Election. So if you go to twitter.com slash PFA Election, you will see there is a, a, an account that was just created, and you can follow it, and it'll be also tweeted out on there as to where you can catch it on YouTube. And again, you can always just listen through the audio the same way you listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio or even catch it in the archives. And then the next show after that will be a regular Poker Fraud Alert Radio show on November 13th. Now, why did we not have a show last week? I already told you it's because of the root canal. I was feeling tooth pain, I was feeling hot and cold sensitivity, and I said, uh-oh, I think I know what this probably is. I was hoping it wasn't, but I thought there was a good chance I would need a root canal. I knew that after having the root canal, I probably would not be able to do radio for the next few days due to the soreness that I would have in my mouth. It just would not be smart to do such a thing. I mean, I, I could have a, a short phone conversation or something like that, but I could not get on here and talk for hours and hours. So... I just said, I'm going to cancel it. As soon as I knew the root canal was going to happen, I said, no radio this week. We will do it next week, which is now October 30th. That's why there's no show last week. I also mentioned how it is my first root canal since I had my debilitating anxiety and depression problem two years ago, which hit extremely severe levels and caused me permanent psychological damage. And I already had a problem with root canals before that. Not the pain. I don't think it's that painful. It's just that entire thing where they put this rubber dental dam over your mouth and it, the whole thing is very uncomfortable. It kind of feels like you can't breathe. I don't like it at all. I, I absolutely hate it and I was dreading it. And I said, if I couldn't get through this very easily before these problems two, uh, two years ago, now my first one since then, how am I going to do it? So I knew that I could not stand having that rubber dental dam over my mouth for an entire hour. I knew it. Go Google dental dam root canal and go to Google images and you will see what one looks like. And you'll say, what? Seriously? Like if you haven't had a root canal, you'll be shocked when you see that picture. It looks like they're suffocating the guy. It really does. It's actually a, a rubber, a piece of rubber that you cannot breathe through that they put over your entire mouth and you cannot breathe through your mouth. That's it. So your only option is to breathe through your nose. If you cannot breathe through your nose that well then tough luck. <laughs> That's, you're not going to be able to breathe. So it's, it's very, very uncomfortable. I don't know how people stand it. Um, in, the, in the past, I was able to convince the endodontist that I had to do the root canal for me to cut half of it off and uh, I could breathe through the other side of my mouth. Uh, that was, I mean, I guess tolerable, but I had a feeling that after what happened two years ago and the permanent uh, psychological damage I had as a result of it, that this was not going to cut it anymore, that even... Uh, half of it was going to be very problematic for me. So I wasn't sure. Uh, so I called around to endodontists and they all refused to 
either leave out the dental dam entirely, which I understand because I guess there's some danger in doing that with infections and stuff like that, uh, or even to use it during the essential time. Because what the dentist told me is that there's really a short essential time you really need it, where it's very important to have, to keep everything dry. And uh, there's a number of important reasons to have it. Keep in mind, they didn't used to use it decades ago, but you know, there's many dangerous things that were done decades ago that aren't done anymore. So I won't use that as justification. But I will say that uh, the dentist said, yes, there's a portion where you need to use it and it's important, but it doesn't need to be on the whole time. So I told the endodontist that and they kind of laughed at me. They're like, yeah, well, we're not doing that. We're going to keep it on the entire time. At most, we'll cut it for you. So I, I called like six endodontists and all of them gave me the same answer. Finally, one of them told me, look, I'm going to level with you. If you call around to different endodontists, you're going to get the same answer to every single one because we're specialists. And since we're specialists, we have a very rigid protocol to follow. And if we don't do that, it could hurt our reputation. If something were to go wrong and it was said that we didn't use this when that's considered best practices to do, since this, this is a very large portion of our practice, we would never want to take that chance. And every endodontist is going to feel the same way. They're not going to want your business that badly to where they're going to violate this. So dentists, they have more leeway because dentists are mainly not doing root canals. So they, they don't have to worry as much about uh, cutting corners or doing things that are non-standard. Now, I did Google about the dental dam, and it, one of the valid reasons not to use it is when the patient has psychological issues, which prevents it. And I definitely do. So I, I, I went to the dentist and said, you know what? I told you before I want an endodontist to do it, but I've changed my mind. I'd like you to do it. And I want that deal where you said you're only going to use it when it's essential for the, the end of it. So he said, okay. And uh, this is a new dentist's office I was going to, by the way. First time I'd been there. So they uh, they did the root canal, and at the beginning, I, I, I took 2.25 Xanax pills, and I have never taken more than 1.25 Xanax pill. So I thought, okay, well, two for sure will be good enough to get me through this. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> it began, I was like, I, I can't handle this. Like, I almost called off the whole thing. And then the dentist like, okay, let's take a break, and I could tell they were kind of – I mean, they understood. They see this all the time, but I could tell they just wanted me to be able to relax and get over it, but I couldn't. So I, I, I walked out, and they're like, well, well, where are you going? I'm like, let me go to my car. i got to get a, another Xanax pill. So I went there and took a third 0.25 milligram Xanax, which now was triple of what I had ever taken before. Not a high dose overall. I mean, there's people who take like 5 or 10 milligrams. I'm taking 0.75. But for me, it was high. It was three times what uh, I'd ever taken before. So I took the third pill, and that one did it. That one actually did it. That, that, I, it wasn't a piece of cake. It wasn't that I was so relaxed I didn't care. But I was relaxed enough to where I was no longer thinking about everything there, and uh, I went there from start to finish without any issue. And uh, just went all the way through it, turned on music, and just uh, let it play. Had the headphone in one ear so I could hear the dentist if he needed to instruct me with anything. Uh, they wanted me to have this bite block, which keeps my mouth open. I hate those things. I said, no, I'll just keep my mouth open. So I held my own mouth open. Dental dam only used at the end. Dentist uh, put some effort into not having it cover my mouth very much when he did. I appreciate that. And at the end, he told me that it looked good and that it was successful and that uh, everything was great and that uh, within a few days, the pain would be gone and then we can uh, finish and I get a crown. Now, the whole thing's very expensive. It's going to cost almost $3,000 after the crown. But I was happy and I was mostly through it. I had to come back and they have to do about an hour worth of uh, prep and putting on the crown, but uh, the hard part was over. 
And I just had to wait a few days, and I was going to come back and have the crown put on. And I should be doing this show without a cr- with a crown on my tooth, but I'm not because the pain has not yet gone away. And that's a problem, and that could be a big problem. Pain from root canals, and I've had two before, so I know. It usually dissipates within uh, two days or so. Now it has been over a week, and it has not dissipated. And that is a little bit concerning. It's been now eight days. I went back on Tuesday to have them look at it, and they said everything looks very good. They took another x-ray. They said they do not see any problem. But it still hurt, not the same way as before. Like, I have no more sensitivity to hot and cold, as you wouldn't expect I would. And uh, it's not just actively hurting me, but if there's any pressure on it, it hurts. Now, back on Tuesday, when I went there to the dentist uh, for the follow-up, it hurt a lot if they put any pressure or or tapped on it. That has gone down some, which is good. That's a good sign. But I'm not going to have them put the crown on until I'm sure that this pain is gone, because what the pain could mean, and I really hope it doesn't mean this, is that there was a fracture in my tooth the whole way, and that means the tooth can't be saved. That means the whole root canal was for nothing. I wasted my money. I wasted my time. I wasted my trouble, and that would be really awful if I went through all this and, and paid money and paid Jew gold for nothing, and then I have to have the teeth pull, uh, the tooth pulled anyway and then spend more money on an implant, I mean, and then go through the implant process. I mean, that's just – that would be really awful, so – I don't know where this is going to go. I think there's a better chance than not it is going to get better, and it's a long-lasting dental pain that I'm having. Something that is a bit encouraging to me is the past, and I have had two extractions as well in the past, and uh, I had a big problem with after pain from the extraction that lasted a very long time that the dentist could not explain. That's also supposed to disappear within a few days, and uh, the first time it took four weeks The second time, it took three weeks. Neither time was explainable. Everything looked great. I kept going back. They kept looking at it. They kept saying, it's healing fine. In fact, it's healing well. We don't see any reason you should have this lingering pain for so long. Nevertheless, I still did. And yet, first time after about four weeks, it abruptly got better and never bothered me again. And uh, three weeks after the second one, it abruptly got better. It was crappy because it was pretty bad pain that was just constant for weeks like that. But uh, the reason that applies to today is that if I had that unexplained oral pain following a major procedure that was much longer than normal from those two extractions, that could be happening with this root canal as well, especially because this is the first root canal I'm getting on something pretty far in the back of my mouth, which the extractions were as well. So uh, it's very possible it's back there for whatever reason. There's some anomaly about my body to where I uh, just have the pain for longer than others. So I'm not panicking yet. Uh, He said there's no fracture showing the x-ray. However, there could be a tiny one that does not show up and maybe that is what caused the entire pain in the first place, which would be really terrible. So I'm really hoping that uh, the pain is gone completely, and then I get the crown put on. The crown was going to be scheduled to be put on now on November 3rd, but then I had to change that because that's the day of the video show on the election. So I moved that, and I will be there the whole day for that. So that's what happened with my root canal. That's why I am missing. And if you hate the dental dam also, because there's many others who hate it too, In fact, I'm surprised there's not more people who hate it like I do. But if you do hate it, uh, one thing you can do is you can – an endodontist will usually cut half of it off, which makes it a lot easier. And if you don't even like that, then you can probably negotiate with your dentist to just use it very minimally when it's absolutely necessary. So to me, that's by far the worst thing about a root canal. Otherwise, it just kind of feels like a long filling. 
Many decades ago, root canals were extremely painful, and that's where they got the terrible reputation for being painful. I thought for years they're very painful, but they're not. There's pain you have leading up to it from the toothache you're, you're getting from needing the root canal, but uh, as far as the procedure itself, it does not feel any worse than getting a filling. So if you get through a filling okay, and you can deal with a longer version of getting a filling, that's basically what a root canal feels like. It's, it's a different procedure, but to you as the patient, that's what it feels like. So... That part is no big deal. And the aftermath is not supposed to be a big deal, but for me, it's lasting a long time. It's not terrible pain. As I said, it's only when I chew on it. But uh, the, the only big deal to me is that obnoxious rubber dental dam they put over your mouth. By the way, there's a, a second use of dental dams, which I've, I've never used this before. But uh, some people use dental dams for forms of oral sex, especially forms of oral sex which aren't all that clean. I, I won't give you further details, but I think you might have an idea what people use it for. But I, I've never used one in that way. The only dental dam that's been used on me has been for uh, root canals. Okay. Free roll. It is uh, now too late. If you're in, then you're in. If you're not, you're not. And uh, then we'll go through the agenda, and then we will get to our first topic, which is going to be a guest. We have two guests tonight. One will be at the beginning of the show, and one will be in the middle to end of the show. So let me find uh, Trader Ruski. And uh, then we'll get going. And if you want to call the show, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355, the Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808 is the number of the Mount Charleston line. That's an old 70s rotary phone which forwards to me wherever I go, separate line into the show. Call the listen line is something you can call and use to listen to the show. You can also use it on Tuesday for the election show we're doing. That number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate one, 641-741-1095. Either number works. You just call up, you listen. Does not require the internet, does not require a data plan, does not require a smartphone or a computer. No, 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 no. Just any phone that it was ever made that can dial a number in the U.S. You just call up, you listen. It never freezes, never buffers, and it'll even work if you have one bar of cell phone service. So if you're driving in the mountains, that's the best thing to use. The call to listen line. We've had over a million minutes listened to on the call to listen line. It's been a big success story, except if you have T-Mobile, then it costs you one cent a minute, which I don't get. Wish I did. I don't. The money always goes to somebody else, not me. What's happening, Josh? Trader Ruski, hello. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio this week, and we will be together again on Tuesday on video. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I am too. And uh, and how long are you especially planning? After, especially after the preview I got tonight. That's right. No, Trader Ruski got to see me. <laughs> I accidentally FaceTimed him, and uh, he got to see that uh, I have a long beard. And he got to, which you guys will see on uh, Tuesday. Though I may trim it a little bit. I haven't uh, shaved anything in a while. I may trim it a little bit, but it's going to still be a long beard. And uh, I may or may not get a haircut by then. I may actually have my first haircut before that show, so you may not quite see the same person. But there will be some similarities. You'll see. You'll see. I have a long beard. Those who have not seen me in a while will see that I have uh, a little bit of gray in my beard now, which I didn't have before. I I started getting a little gray in my beard this year, which. I was proud of that I got to 48 without any gray in my beard, but I can't say that anymore. I now finally have the gray in my beard, all just in time for what might be my first return to the World Series in 2022. 
when I can play the seniors event. I may not play in 2021, but uh, 2022, I think chance is pretty good. I'll be in the main event in the world series, including the main event and also the seniors event for the first time. And I'll have the, the gray beard, probably a lot more gray then than right now. So anyway, uh, Trader Ruski, uh, I've got a question for you. Do you dye your hair? Because your hair is, does not look gray at all to me. And uh, you're older I than not, me. I do not dye my hair. Wow. But I'm, I'm, I am about to give myself my second uh, self-haircut. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm going to do it tonight. At least has a couple days to grow out if I jack it up too okay. much. Yeah, well, Trader Ruski's doing very well with the, with the gray in his hair. I don't really see any. And he's like, wait, like 52 or something? 53. 53, wow, okay. See, that's good. I have a little bit of gray in my hair, but at 53, I think I'll probably have more. Okay, well, I'm going to give you the agenda. The chat room, by the way, you can get in there. You have to follow the instructions on the Flying Stupidity form near the top to get in there on certain systems, including my own. Otherwise, it'll give you errors. We should be replacing that pretty soon. But here is the agenda tonight. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to have a discussion about a frivolous lawsuit involving uh, somebody who was uh, called out for uh, malfeasance and gambling. No, 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 not, not that lawsuit. I know what you're thinking. It's not that lawsuit. No. We're going to be discussing Christopher Mitchell's restraining order that he requested and was granted against a poker fraud alert member. And what's really insane about this restraining order and the entire saga is that the restraining order was requested based upon completely false information. It was a restraining order based upon a channel run by somebody else. A Hoosier A was not running the YouTube scam exposures channel that's being run by a guy named Kevin Davis, who we've had on the show before. And uh, we've talked a little bit about this before, but the restraining order was actually granted against a Hoosier and he went through a big ordeal regarding that. It cost him some money. So we're going to have him on to tell his whole story. We would have done it at the time it happened, but uh, you'll hear during the segment why we had to wait on that. I've known the story the whole way, but I couldn't publicize it because a Hoosier didn't want me to. And of course I had to respect that. But we're going to have him on. He's going to tell his entire story about the abuse of the Las Vegas court system, about uh, a judge who uh, was very emotional and did something that was very unfair and stupid. And, you know, people like to say that all the time when they lose in court. Oh, the judge had it in for me. Oh, it was unfair. Like, you probably heard that all the time when people lose in court. But this, this was just really, really awful, really unfair and had nothing to do with the law. This was really a judge being emotional. And uh, I was outraged to hear it. I felt terrible for A. Hoosier A. I mean, talk about a miscarriage of justice. When you hear what happened, you're going to be pissed off. And uh, we'll tell you everything. But before you avoid listening because you don't want to be stressed out in the stressful environment we live in today, especially with the election coming up uh, next week, I will tell you it has a semi-happy ending. That's the only spoiler I'm going to give you. So if you're afraid to listen because you don't want to be stressed don't worry, you'll feel a little bit better when the whole thing's over. After that, we're going to talk about the match that is coming up on November 4th between Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu. The date has set, more terms have been set, and now there is heavy side betting on this by a lot of people who are not involved, including me. 
So I'll tell you about the side bets that are being made, what side I'm on, what uh, information I based that side bet on when I chose my side, and how I don't feel as good about my side anymore since making it. Nevertheless, the bet stands. So I'll tell you all that about that match coming up. Sam Grizzle, an old-school poker le- – uh, I shouldn't say legend, a character, more, more of a character, more of a legendary character than a re- legendary player. I mean he, he had his, his times of success in poker, but he wasn't like one of the best players of all time in, in a shape or form. And uh, as far as I know, he didn't have very much money when he died. But he did pass away, and he's someone that everybody in the Las Vegas poker scene knows and probably played with at one point. I'll tell you some of my personal stories with uh, Sam Grizzle, which aren't that exciting, but I'll tell you them nonetheless. I'll read you some other stories from others who have posted them. Uh, Sam Grizzle has passed away at the age of 60. And yes, it's that same Sam Grizzle who uh, punched out Phil Helmuth once. He really did. A controversial WSOP main event winner, not in the event himself itself, but some things that happened after that, Jonathan Duhamel who won the same year that I got the closest to winning myself when I finished 88th in 2010. He finished first in 2010. And uh, that actually has to do with a story I'm going to tell you. Uh, He's controversial because he was actually abruptly dropped from Poker Stars in April 2015, because uh, we think because of some allegations against him from some women and uh, some accused improprieties. Uh, We don't have verification, but that's what I believe occurred. And uh, some of the women came forward earlier this year on Twitter, which kind of reinvigorated that story. But that's not we're going to we're not going to talk about that tonight. What we're going to talk about tonight is uh, something going on between him and the tax authorities in Canada. And you may say, oh, that sounds super boring. Well, this is not super boring because it's an interesting battle having to do with whether his wins were based upon skill or luck. And you may say, oh, come on. Jonathan Duhamel, he's, he's a very good player. He's had a lot of success. He didn't just win that one main event. He's, uh, he, he's won a lot of other tournaments, too. This, this guy obviously is skilled. Well, I agree with you. But what about in the eyes of Canadian law, and how might this affect other Canadian poker pros? I'm going to tell you all about the way Canada taxes gambling wins and how this case might be a landmark case for that. So very interesting stuff, even if you're not from Canada. Sheldon Adelson might sell... The Venetian and Palazzo. He's exploring selling those two properties for a lot of money. I will tell you about that when we get to that segment. Speaking of a lot of money, a late statistic change involving a football game costs a daily fantasy sports player a lot of money. A whole lot of money. Guy thought he had won a contest, and thanks to that stat change that happened after the game, that money evaporated before his eyes. I mean, that's got to be incredibly frustrating. I'll tell you this uh, very sad tale, which was sad for him, but happy for somebody else. But I will tell you the sad tale when we get to that segment. Speaking of daily fantasy sports, DraftKings, which also is a sports book in some markets, a legalized sports book, they have done something unprecedented, and they have refunded sports bettors for a loss that occurred due to a blown call. So they actually paid both sides of that bet. They didn't have to, but they chose to. I'll tell you about what that bet was and why they did it. A massive geolocation failure occurred on WSOP.com, as well as PokerStars New Jersey and Party Poker New Jersey. And I will tell you what happened with that and the fallout that occurred. Dan Bilzerian responded to 
critical YouTuber Tom Nash. Remember I've played Tom Nash's videos saying that Ignite is going into the toilet, and that's Dan Bilzerian's pot company, and that Dan Bilzerian is accused of all kinds of malfeasance. So I've played Tom Nash's video before and commented on them. And as, as you've heard, I've been fair about it. Like I've criticized Nash sometimes for saying some things I didn't agree with or I thought were too sensational. But anyway, Bilzerian finally responded, which I thought might be coming because he, he's been kind of implying things on Twitter without directly calling out Tom Nash. But now he is directly responding to Tom Nash. And then Tom Nash responded to his response. So I'm going to play these to you and uh, then I will comment on what each of them has to say. We're going to have an interview at uh, 2 a.m. Pacific time. And, of course, you can find this timestamp of the interview in the archives if you're listening that way. A forum member, who, forum member who goes by Kanish claims that there are two Cuban men who are going around the country and cheating PLO games. I'm talking about live PLO games, not online. And that they're accused of doing this on both coasts. That they, They've been doing this in a lot of places, according to Kanish. And you may say, ah, oh, who cares? This is just some guy who's paranoid about losing, you know, they lost, he thinks he was cheated. No, he actually provided a lot of uh, evidence about this, and uh, others have been talking about it, uh, some of whom are known to be pretty credible in poker. So he's going to come on and tell us himself about these Cubans who are going around and cheating the live PLO games. Uh, and uh, he will tell you what to look for, and I'll even tell you where to find a picture of one of these Cubans, and if you see them in your game, I suggest avoiding them. Uh, of course, these are just accusations by uh, a person who I'm going to allow to come on here. If either of these Cubans would like to come on and defend themselves, they're welcome to. But uh, to me, it looks uh, not very good, and I definitely would uh, get up from the table if they sat in my game. Vital Vegas has gotten up from the table from their lawsuit that they were defending. The Sahara was suing them. I've told you about this before on the show. They are now out of the lawsuit. They've won their anti-slap motion. I will tell you about that. Coronavirus news. A lot of 12 to 30-year-olds are getting the coronavirus in the U.S. It's, it's expanding at a very fast pace. A million more verified cases were added to the overall number of U.S. cases of coronavirus and this is the fastest they've ever been added, and a lot of them are people aged between 12 and 30. And a lot of them were asymptomatic and spreading it quickly among each other. And there's a lot of people panicking about this, that this is going to bring on a terrible second wave, and that coronavirus is really going to rev itself up now. So is this a bad thing that we should be terrified of? Well, I will give you my opinion, whether this is good or bad. Finally... As we are going to be a few days away from the election, I'm going to do an editorial, but not about who you should vote for. I think you've already decided. You may have already voted, and I'm not going to change your mind, so I'm not going to bother with that. But something has been bothering me lately as we're leading up to the election, and there's various October surprises that are in the news, which are not surprising that they're being put out there. But there's been a lot of debate recently about fake news. What is fake news? What defines fake news? And who should judge fake news? And... In the case that it is believed something's fake news, should it be suppressed? These are important topics to consider. Not so much for the next few days for the election, but going forward. How do we define fake news and what should be done about it? And who should be judging if something is fake or not? So I'm going to give you an editorial on how I feel 
it should be handled. Specifically, I've seen a lot of things I don't like regarding the whole Hunter Biden story with the New York Post, which I feel that regardless of how you feel about Hunter Biden and how you feel about that story and how you feel about Rudy Giuliani and Trump, I think there's certain parts of that story that everybody should not be happy with. So I'll tell you about that in the editorial. That is the agenda for tonight. Of course, we have a lot of topics because it has been almost two weeks since I was last on. It was October 18th was when the last show started, ending the following morning on the 19th. So it has been 12 days, and uh, we're catching up here. So we're going to try to find young A. Hoosier A. Actually, compared to me, he is young. <laughs> but uh, we're going to try to find him here. Hello. Hello. So welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. A. Hoosier A., also known as uh, Lee Bradbury, which is his real name, he's been through an ordeal with Christopher Mitchell that I've known about the whole way and I've been frustrated hearing about because it's just such a, an annoying story. It involves such a miscarriage of justice and abuse of the court system and just something you wouldn't picture could happen the way it did, but it happened. Some of it was bad luck. Some of it was a judge who overstepped his authority. Some of it was uh, Christopher Mitchell being an asshole like he always is. So it's, it's a lot of things. So uh, we're going to have him tell the story. Uh, because of the ongoing nature of it, he didn't want to come up, come forth and tell his story to the public until he was in a pretty stable situation with the entire matter, which, as I told you guys before the segment, has a semi-happy ending. But uh, I'm going to introduce it, and then uh, I'm going to ask him some questions, and he can tell us some things that happened. So to introduce it here, Christopher Mitchell is a Baccarat coaching scammer. And the reason I call him a coaching scammer is that he sells a system to play live Baccarat that does not work. It simply does not work. It's mathematically a losing system. It can be mathematically proven to be a losing system. It, it's basically just the Martingale system. Uh, with with a few little tweaks, but it's it's definitely a losing system. You can mathematically prove it's a losing system. He sometimes tweaks the system, changes the system. It's always losing. And he sells it. He sells his coaching, and he makes claims like it wins 99% of the time, which is absurd. You're not going to find any system that wins 99% of the time, but uh, let alone a, a system that actually is a losing system. Uh, he likes to say he's a millionaire. That's also not true. He likes to say that uh, he makes money gambling. That's also not true. He may win individual sessions, but he is not an overall winner in gambling. And I can say that without seeing his results because the systems that he claims to use would produce a loss, not just in the long run, but also even in kind of like the short medium run. So it's uh, this is not how he's making his money. And he's actually – it's one thing to lie about uh, how you're making your money or claiming that you're losing systems winning, but to actually be selling this to people for as much as uh, $2,500 – is insane, and uh, he's been doing this for at least a year now. And he also does this in very clownish fashion. He, you know, he 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 just says such ridiculous things on his channel and makes such outlandish claims. And uh, people enjoy following him because he's so ridiculous. That's uh, there's like a, a certain entertainment value to this guy. It's not intentional, but there is. He's not someone who's very slick about what he does. He really only ropes in people who are very ignorant about gambling, and who are very gullible. So uh, 
he Christopher Mitchell's existence was brought to my attention by uh, Jeff Dime, who was a listener to this show, and he's called in before. And then I found Kevin Davis, who is obsessed with exposing Christopher Mitchell. Kevin Davis makes just an a shocking number of videos all about Christopher Mitchell and exposing him. Like he does these every few days. And uh, so those two have been in a battle for a long time where you've got Kevin Davis. We've had him on the show twice before. We have Kevin Davis who is obsessed with exposing Christopher Mitchell. And we have Christopher Mitchell himself. And then we have a lot of people on the Poker Fraud Alert Forum in the scam scandals and shadiness portion who are very fascinated with the whole thing as well. Now, Everybody on Poker Fraud Alert has the same opinion, and that is that uh, Christopher Mitchell is full of crap, and that his whole system is a scam, and that uh, it's a losing system, and that Christopher Mitchell is selling everyone a losing system and lying about his results. Like Everybody's pretty sure about that, and you, you watch his videos and, and quickly understand the math of the whole thing, you'll know he is too. But nevertheless, there is a, pay, a, a more than 100-page thread on Poker Fraud Alert of a bunch of people discussing Christopher Mitchell and his ongoing antics because the whole thing is just so ridiculous and clownish. So uh, anyway, one of the people who was interested in the story was A. Hoosier A. here, and there was a guy named Bob Hesley, an old man. I think he's like 74 years old. Bob Hesley, who was one of those gullible people who was falling for what Christopher Mitchell was selling. And at first, Kevin Davis believed that Bob Hesley was fake and there was a character invented by Christopher Mitchell. Turned out that wasn't true. Turned out Bob Hesley is a real human being. In fact, we saw him on subsequent videos where he was uh, coming into Vegas to get coached by Christopher Mitchell. And he is uh, an older guy who just seems very gullible. Anyway, before we knew much about Bob Hesley, A. Hoosier A. found him on Facebook. And A. Hoosier A. tried to do something very noble. He saw that Bob Hesley was an old man who was being conned by someone and being tricked into believing he was buying a winning system. And, yeah, of course, you don't want to see an old man uh, not only pay a charlatan who's selling systems for gambling that don't work, but you also don't want to see that old man utilize that system and lose all his money. Like, even if Christopher Mitchell gave it to him for free, that wouldn't be good, because then Bob would take it to the casino and get crushed and, and lose his retirement. So you, you don't want that. You want to warn these elderly people. And remember, elderly people are frequently the victim of scams. That's often who scammers target because elderly people are, uh, they, st they start to suffer from uh, diminished mental capacity. Even the ones that can take care of themselves, a lot of them just aren't the same as when they were 50 years old. Their mind just isn't as sharp anymore. And combine that with the fact that they know they're on a fixed income and they would love to feel more comfortable with their retirement nest egg and they're uh, often ripe for being scammed. And it's very sad that you, you got to be a real scumbag, a real piece of shit to scam old people. But sadly, it happens all the time. They're the most frequent victims. And uh, I, I hate seeing that. That's really what gets me the angriest to see scammed. Well, Ehud saw the same thing, and he was saying of all the people, like Bob Hesley, he's, he's 74 years old. And you can clearly see on his Facebook picture he's an old man. Uh, he wanted to help. So Ehud A messaged Bob Hesley on Facebook and tried to warn him and even referred him to the Poker Fraud Alert thread and to the Poker Fraud Alert radio show and said, listen to the show, you know, read the thread, and you will see. You'll see the truth. Well, unfortunately, another characteristic of a lot of elderly people 
is that they're very stubborn. Once they get something in their head, they uh, they don't want to change their minds. Some of this, again, is because of diminished mental capacity, and some of it is because old people are often talked down to by younger people. Even old people who are very sharp are talked down to by younger people who just assume they're not sharp. And old people start to feel like, hey, I'm not going to let all these young people tell me what to do. And these, these people were kids back when I was younger, so I'm not going to have the – like even 50-year-olds, they kind of see as kids because they remember many years ago when they were kids. So um, they feel, I'm not going to let these young people talk down to me just because I've gotten older. I'm still fine, and you're not going to change my mind. So for that reason, a lot of old people can be very stubborn, and uh, it can be very difficult to talk them into understanding – that they are being ripped off, especially if the person ripping them off is very friendly and kind, uh, or it comes off that way. Of course, he's not really friendly and kind, but so a lot of scammers come off as the nicest, most caring, most friendly guys, and they're very likable. And it's hard for these elderly people who really get to like them and really invest a lot of emotion in liking and trusting these people. It's very hard for them to uh, want to believe that they're being ripped off. And also they kind of feel emotionally invested in their decision and they feel like if they admit they're being ripped off, then that's kind of an acknowledgement that uh, they were foolish and, and tricked and that they were the stereotypical old person who was gullible. So the, so it's much easier for them to stick with, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. So that, that's basically what happened with Bob Hesley. And there is a weird anomaly in that there were like three different Bob Hesley accounts on Facebook. And there's been some theories on this, and I still don't know which one's correct. I know what Kevin Davis believes, but I don't know if he's right. Uh, he could be right. He could be wrong. I have kind of mixed feelings on this. But there are three Bob Hesley accounts that are all supposed to be the same guy. So it's possible that Bob Hesley is just confused and, like, lost his password and made other accounts. And he's only actively using one, I think. But anyway, even if he's actively using two, you, you never know. You know, old people are not always the best with computers. So this could be something that's innocent, the fact that there's three accounts for Bob Hesley. Uh, Kevin Davis was suggesting that Christopher Mitchell was actually operating one of the Bob Hesley accounts with or without Bob's knowledge, but that uh, that he that perhaps Christopher Mitchell got Bob to agree to let him operate the account or or that uh, Christopher Mitchell just did it on his own. These these are theories by Christopher by, by uh, Kevin Davis that the person a Hoosier was really talking to was not Bob Hesley. It was really Christopher Mitchell pretending to be Bob Hesley. Either way, it doesn't matter because. What happened was Christopher Mitchell became aware that A. Hoosier A. was trying to expose him to one of his clients, which, again, was a good thing. It was a very good and noble thing to do, but uh, Christopher Mitchell obviously was not very happy about that. However, Christopher Mitchell being someone who isn't very bright, and he isn't. That's why his scam is not very sophisticated. That's why he comes off as such a clown on his videos, because he's just not that bright. So Christopher Mitchell decided that not only is A. Hoosier A., who was using his real name, Lee Bradbury, when he was contacting Bob Hesley, not only was Lee Bradbury a hostile force, but he decided and convinced himself that A. Hoosier A. and Kevin Davis were the same person. And we talked about this before when we had A. Hoosier A. and Kevin Davis on the show at the same time. I even had them both talk at the same time. And you also got to hear their two voices, and you can hear their two very different people. But Christopher Mitchell was so obsessed with finding out who Kevin Davis was, because Kevin Davis has been uh, anonymous. It's not even clear if that's his real name. It may not be. 
and whatever it is, Christopher Mitchell can't find him, and that infuriates him because he's got a guy following him around and uh, making videos about him every few days about him being a scammer. So Christopher Mitchell is furious about this. He doesn't like being exposed like this, and he doesn't like this dedicated person ruining what he's doing. I'm sure that Kevin Davis has cost him a lot of money. So he's been really looking for someone to blame here, and he finally found someone. He just decided, okay, well, that's got to be Kevin Davis. There it is. We finally figured out his real name. Kevin Davis is Lee Bradbury, he decided. It's incorrect, 100% incorrect, but nevertheless, uh, Christopher Mitchell became convinced this was true. I don't know how, because like, if you listen to the videos, because he actually found some videos of Ahusher A's, of the real Ahusher A, so I don't know how you listen to that voice and then listen to Kevin Davis and think it's the same person. But as I said, Christopher Mitchell isn't that bright. So he just – he came to a decision. He came to a conclusion, and that was that, and uh, he decided that's who he thinks it is. So he started – he already started doing some very nasty things. He hired a private investigator in Las Vegas to look into uh, A. Hoosier A. Lee Bradbury and then got a lot of information. And why, why don't you tell us, Lee, what happened after he got the information from this private investigator? Yeah, so uh, you can hear me fine, right? Yeah, I can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so I, I, I'll continue with that. I, I want to kind of back up a little bit and just kind of – I don't want to really rehash. You, you did a pretty good job of summing it up. But, you know, back I, – I wasn't actually even really interested in the story. I, I saw the thread created back there in April. Um, I didn't even really watch a full one of his videos. You're talking about um, Kevin Davis or which one? Kevin Davis or Christopher Mitchell? Or both, uh, Christopher Mitchell. Uh, okay. Kind of both. Um, okay. Actually, I I'd watched one of Kevin Davis's videos. I hadn't watched a full one of Christopher Mitchell's videos. Um, I wasn't even. You know, I'm not even really. I've never played baccarat. I've very rarely play blackjack. So I wasn't even really interested in the story. Um, but you know, once I heard the story, I, I went to one of Christopher Mitchell's videos. I looked in the comment. Uh, I have a history. Uh, one of my former careers, I was a skip tracer, so I'm, you know, able to find people pretty easily on the internet. And I just thought, hey, like I'll, I'll find a couple of people posting in his comments, send them a message on Facebook, and whatever happens, happens. Um, even up until uh, I was actually contacted by Kevin Davis, I had actually never watched a Christopher Mitchell video. Um, I've commented in the thread a couple of times prior to all that, but yeah. So anyway, uh, then, uh, Kevin Davis back on, uh, May 17th, uh, uh so I, I messaged Bob Hesley on May 6th and then more than a week later on May 17th is when I was actually just sitting at my computer at home and I get a call from a number that I didn't recognize answered it. And it happened to be Kevin Davis. And, uh, you know, he told me about the doxing video. Christopher Mitchell made a video where he had posted a lot of information. He posted the uh, front page of the comprehensive report, which showed my name, date of birth, uh, social security number, other different private information as well. Yeah, that's really bad. uh, Yeah. And so, you know, that, that was actually my first time ever you know, in contact with Kevin Davis um, during that point in time, you know, I contacted the uh, private investigator myself and I spoke with him. You know, I was kind of shocked uh, being a previous skip tracer. There was a lot of rules and regulations that I had to follow to protect, you know, people's private information. 
And so I contacted him to find out, you know, kind of his part of the story. He told me that Kevin Davis, or I'm sorry, that Christopher Mitchell had contacted him and said that he was at the police station to file a, uh, you know, report against me and that he needed more information to give to the police. So the, the private investigator ran that comprehensive report and just gave all the information to Christopher Mitchell. Yeah, which of course, uh, which of course is stupid, and that was a huge mistake on the private investigator's part. Because if Christopher Mitchell, I don't even believe was telling the truth, but whether he was or not, even if he was down there to file a frivolous police report, um, because you know you hadn't committed any crime, it's insane. You know, you can go to Bob Hesley all you want; that's your free speech rights to do. But uh, um, if, even if the PI thought he was doing this to assist someone to bring it to the police, all he has to do is say, "Okay, have the police officer call me, and I'll give him this information." That's uh, what. Well, I even went to the, the cops, and when I talked to the cops, they were like, we, we wouldn't have a private investigator get your information. We could look it up ourselves. Right, that too, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and actually, I know that Christopher Mitchell lied to the private investigator because I have Christopher Mitchell's actual police report. And so on the doxing video, uh, it shows that the DeBecker investigations, the private uh, investigator that he hired, the comprehensive report shows the date of May nineteenth, 2020 on it. And the police report that I'm looking at, he didn't actually file the police report until over a week later. Okay, uh, so, May, he was, so he wasn't down at the May, station. Yeah, that was a big lie. Yeah, May 18th is when this was uh, dated. So, yeah, he, he lied to the private investigator, I assume, unless the private investigator is lying. But uh, when I spoke with the private investigator, uh, and I mentioned the name Kevin Davis, he had no idea who Kevin Davis was. He said that Christopher Mitchell never mentioned the name Kevin Davis to him at all. So the fact that uh, there are some other claims that Christopher Mitchell made in his video, he claimed that uh, if you want to go back to something that you said is, you know, if you listen to my voice and you listen to Kevin Davis's voice, they're, they're two totally different voices. One of the claims that he made in the doxing video is that his private investigator ran a voice analysis. Yeah, (laughs) I saw that. And claimed that uh, my voice and Kevin Davis's voice was one and the same, just using something to alter the voice. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And by, by the way, I've met a Hoosier a, and he has the same voice on the phone here as he did in person when I met him. So there's no voice alteration. I can guarantee you there's no voice altering going on here. And that, uh, the, the voice you hear now is the same voice I heard in person when I've met with a Hoosier a in Las Vegas. So, uh, yeah, so that, there was a lot of BS there. So, uh, um, now, well, one thing, and we'll, we'll kind of move forward with this. I'm going to try not to ramble too much and try to stay on topic, but, you know, as we move f- further into the story, uh, you know, if, if that was the truth, if he had a private investigator run a, a voice analysis test, which I'm not even sure is possible, maybe it is, but, you know, that would be a pretty uh, pretty good thing to take to court, right? So uh, fast forward, um, you know, I received a uh, call from Kevin Davis on May 17th. I was served papers. Uh, I don't know the exact date. I was served papers by the Clark County Sheriff, I believe. Probably. Um, sometime in the beginning of June, I believe. Okay, so so let's let's stop here. So he actually was served papers for a restraining order, 
from Christopher Mitchell, and this, this is how outrageous this is. The restraining order was based upon the belief that he was being stalked by Lee Bradbury, A. Hoosier A., because Lee Bradbury is Kevin Davis. I mean, come on. <laughs> so there was actually a restraining order filed against him. So you usually think this should be a slam dunk in court because the burden of proof is on Christopher Mitchell for this. Even, even restraining orders, which are not uh, – uh, there's not – Major investigations done with these, they are, sometimes they're granted fairly easily depending on the judge. But still, the burden of proof, you can't just say such and such random person is some anonymous guy who's harassing me on the internet. I know it. I'm getting restraining order. You can't just come into court and go, yeah, I know it's him. So rest- give a restraining order. Uh, judges won't do that. You, you have to, The burden of proof is on the one filing the restraining order that an anonymous character on the internet is the person you're accusing. So I, when I heard this, I go, okay, he's going to get clobbered in court, and and uh, this this has no chance of succeeding because any sane judge is going to say, okay, so this person saying their name is Kevin Davis, the judge may even notice the voice is different, and of course, uh, uh, Ahujere would say that in court. Uh, so so he would ask uh, Christopher Mitchell. Um, Where's the proof that they're the same person? Christopher Mitchell, being the dummy he is, wouldn't have such proof or whatever, quote, proof he'd have would be laughable because it wouldn't be true and it wouldn't be anything that was conclusive and it would be laughed out of court. I was sure that was the way it was going to go. And uh, so so I assume you thought that too, Lee. And uh, so did you hire an attorney uh, for, to represent you in court for this or did you just go go at it alone because it was such a laughable case? Yeah, so, so actually back when I found out that he had doxxed me, I had actually immediately called several different attorneys and basically got the runaround from every single attorney that I spoke with about how I really didn't have a case against them because doxing is not technically illegal. And even giving out somebody's social security number, as long as, unless that I could prove that my social security number was used fraudulently, there's really not any kind of case. There's no defamation, slander, libel case that I can really hold against them, that it would be extremely difficult and extremely expensive to try to get, go into court because there wasn't any kind of financial damages. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I immediately went to the Las Vegas uh, police station. I went to a couple of different uh, departments trying to file a uh, – a report against Christopher Mitchell. Uh, basically, I was told that since I live technically in Henderson, that I would have to file in Henderson. And I'll be honest, I mean, just kind of after talking to, you know, three or four different attorneys, plus a couple of people that are attorneys that I know that necessarily aren't in uh, Nevada, but they're pretty familiar with just general law. And after speaking with a couple of, you know, cops that I had spoken with, I kind of was just a, uh, you know, a little, little uh, down about not being able to do anything about it. Right, and, and you're so discuss- I, just, just to clarify for the listeners, there's two different things going on here. Uh, had you gotten the re- there's a restraining order matter, and the, there's also the matter that uh, Lee wanted to do something to Christopher for publishing all his info, including his social security number, based upon this false accusation that Lee was uh, was Kevin Davis. So, so, so Lee expressing the frustration that there wasn't much he could do criminally or civilly about what. Christopher had done, which I agree is very frustrating. Uh, but had, had you, when you went to the police station about this, and you went to do the, when you went to do this stuff yourself, had the restraining order been filed against you yet, or did that come after? That came after. Okay. So I, I didn't know anything about like the restraining order at that point in time. 
Um, I had tried to find if he had filed a police report against me. The cops that I spoke with said that unless uh, I had kind of a report number or something like that, they couldn't really tell me anything. But uh, at that point in time, he he had filed the police report the same day that I was going to the cops because Kevin Davis had contacted me on, again, May 17th. I actually wasn't able to go and speak to the cops or anything like that until the, the following day, which is the same day that Christopher Mitchell actually filed that report. So nothing was able to be done. Nothing got done on my end on May 18th. And again, uh, I actually didn't get served by the sheriff's department until either like a couple of weeks later, or it might've been like the first week of June. Okay. And, and let me say, ask you again, by the first week of June, when you got served with a restraining order, was there any police report that you had filed or you just decided not to bother? I didn't file my police report. I finally went to the Henderson police uh, department and filed my report the day that I got served. And even at that point in time, they were very hesitant, very hesitant to take a report saying basically there, there wasn't, any kind of law broken or anything like that. Right. So finally I, you know, I just told him like, Hey, like this guy is making some subtle threats saying, you know, like he's going to knock me out if he sees me or, you know, inviting me to his house to fight him, meet him outside and stuff like that. So I said, look, I said, I'm going to court with this guy. I just want something on file stating that I have went to the cops in regards to this. So basically the cop just was like, okay, whatever. Here's the report (laughs) form wrote up a report and, you know, basically he didn't want to do the paperwork on it. Yeah, well, you know, I will say this. I I believe that those lawyers were correct. I think that while it's crappy what he did, and I I wish there was something that could be done because there there should be some sort of law about publishing somebody's social security number maliciously, which he did, Uh, and and not even for a good reason. It's not even like he published it because he felt you were a scammer or something. He was publishing it to get back at you. He, He was very clear about that when he did it in his video. So... I would love to see some sort of criminal law for publishing someone's social security number, given what can be done with it, given that uh, you shouldn't have to wait till someone takes it and victimizes you with it. Just It should be that publishing someone's social security number on the Internet for purposes of uh, of harassment, there, there should be some sort of law, or at the very least uh, some sort of uh, civil remedy for it if, if they don't want to make criminal law about it. But there, I, I believe there probably isn't in Nevada, and they're probably correct that as crappy as it is, there probably wasn't much you could do. Uh, I understand why you eventually went down there. I was actually uh, of the belief, and I, I told you this at the time, that I didn't think that there would be much you could do yourself about this. But but when I heard the, about the restraining order, I said this is absolutely outrageous. So okay, let's uh, so let's get to the, back to the restraining order here. So you you chose not to get an attorney, correct? Yeah. So once I once I got served. Um, couple of things that I'd done right away is I actually contacted while well, I contacted you uh, the, at the time I was still on some speaking terms with Kevin Davis and I had contacted him saying, Hey, like I, I was actually excited that I got served because, you know, again, previously no attorney would take my case in regards to the defamation. And so finally I, I felt like, you know, even though I know that going to court about one thing is the judge doesn't really want to hear about anything else. The way I kind of saw it was, well, at least I get a day in court where I can say that this guy is basically harassing me and and doxing me and putting my private information out there. And, you know, to this day, I've actually never contacted Christopher Mitchell myself in any form. That's true. I've never tried to email him. I've never texted him. I've never 
I've never saw him in person other than inside the courtroom. I've never, you know, up until that point and still to this day, I've never contacted or attempted to contact Christopher Mitchell. So I figured, um, you know, and other than the couple of times that I've spoke with Kevin Davis, you know, after Christopher Mitchell adopts me, uh, there was nothing tying me to Kevin Davis. There was nothing tying me to contacting Christopher Mitchell. I had this proof that Christopher Mitchell had doxed me. And so I felt like, you know, I had a really good, I felt like I had a slam dunk case in the courtroom. I had spoke with a couple of different attorneys. I got a price of approximately $2,000 for an attorney to represent me in court. Um, I'm not super, super poor, but I'm also not rich. And $2,000 to defend a frivolous uh, restraining order is, is a lot of money to me. Right, and this is worse than a, a frivolous restraining order. I, I've known people who have been hit with f- frivolous restraining orders where uh, the restraining order is aimed at the right person, but it's it's frivolous details where, where people are uh, – um, I, I've seen it where someone's ex-girlfriend files it against them because uh, they claim that the the guy's stalking her when in reality that's not what he's doing. You know, that that she's just doing to get back at him. Or I've seen it where I've seen it between guys before where one does it to the other. I've seen more than one of these of friends I've had who have been hit with very frivolous restraining order cases that uh, that were just really a matter of revenge. And those are bad enough. This one is much worse than that because this is a restraining order based upon you being someone that you are not. And that that I've never seen before. I've never seen a restraining order where someone the, the whole basis of the restraining order is you are such and such anonymous person on the internet when that person actually is not. So that was that's why this one was beyond frivolous. It was even aimed at the wrong person. So so I understand and in fact had I been in your shoes I would also not have shown up in court with an attorney because if there's ever a case where you think I can handle this myself and he didn't have an attorney so you didn't have to worry about going against an attorney it's you versus dumb Christopher Mitchell who's who's making a wild accusation of that you being some character on the internet uh from another state uh, Kevin Davis uh, I would not be the slightest bit worried that well, I would lose it- this in court and I was fully aware that, you know, with him making the allegations against me, that he has the burden of proof to prove that I'm Kevin Davis and to prove that I run the YouTube scam exposure site and to prove that I'm harassing and stalking him. Right. And so, and I knew that there was zero, uh, zero proof of any of that. So I, I felt extremely comfortable going into court. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm also not, uh, not super dumb when it comes to that kind of stuff. And again, you know, if it was something that was aimed at me, you know, from like a girl or like an ex or something like that, saying that I did something, then I would have got an attorney because I've made, I've I've had contact with that person. Um, I have a history with that person and anything could happen in court, but you know, I don't have a history with Christopher Mitchell. There was nothing that he could show where I, I, you know, had personally contacted him or anything like that. And so I felt super comfortable in the court, and so I decided to go without an attorney. I did contact you um, to be kind of a witness if they would if they would call you. Right. And and again, you know, I'd contacted Kevin Davis and told him about you know again that I was excited to be able to take Christopher Mitchell into court and kind of get somebody to to see how big of an idiot this guy was. Well. You know, and where Kevin Davis and I's fallout happened is, so when I told Kevin Davis this information, like he immediately wanted me to send him over 
the police report and the court document, uh, basically the court filing that Christopher Mitchell had made. Now, you know, again, with me not being Kevin Davis and never, you know, not, not having much contact with Kevin Davis, I, I know that Kevin Davis likes to make videos about stuff. And my fear was that, you know, I would give this information to Kevin Davis and Kevin Davis would make a video about it. And then that would make my case in court even harder because if I'm not Christopher, if I'm not Kevin Davis, then how would Kevin Davis have all this, all these documents? Right. If I wasn't him? Right. And, and just to explain to the listener who may not be familiar with this, uh, in, in a, a long uh, case that's in uh, superior court where you can go through discovery processes, then you, then that can all be fleshed out and you can show that I gave this to Kevin Davis and he put it up there. And there's a lot, a whole lot that can be done to show that you're not the same person. But on, with restraining order cases, it's kind of like small claims where the judge just hears things and makes a snap decision. So you, you, you were correct to not want to do anything that was going to give the wrong idea. So while there's nothing wrong with you giving Kevin Davis a copy of uh, court documents and that, and Kevin Davis publishing that, that's all legal. You, you can do it. It's fine. That's within your rights. Unfortunately, it could look bad if you did it because, uh, as you said, they may think, well, he's accusing him of being Kevin Davis. And yet, sure enough, Kevin Davis has what was served on him. So how did that happen? He, the, the judge may start to believe the wrong thing. So uh, A. Hoosier A. was correctly cautious. Anyway, Kevin Davis still really wanted to be part of this in some way. And uh, in his defense, I will say that Kevin Davis is actually trying to do something helpful, kind of by injecting himself into it. He was trying to help A. Hoosier Hay not lose. And unfortunately, it backfired and made him lose. So I, the intention was good. The result was bad. Uh, and, and I blame the judge for this, not Kevin. Actually, Kevin, I don't even blame for this. Tell us what happened in court. Tell us from the start to finish with, the, with that day's hearing where uh, Christopher showed up, you showed up. Tell us how this hearing went. Yeah, so, you know, again, you know, me and Kevin Davis's downfall was basically he got upset that I wouldn't give him the court documents. Uh, we cut ties from there, and I've not had any more contact with Kevin Davis since then. So, anyway, I show up to court, and I'm sitting there. Uh, there was two restraining order cases that the judge had to, to hear that morning. And so I, I show up. And I'm the only one there. Uh, Christopher Mitchell is not in court. He's not in the hallway or anything like that. I get brought into the courtroom. The judge decides, since that both parties on, on my case isn't there and that the both parties are there in the other restraining order case, that he would hear them first. And I would say that their case took about 10 to 15 minutes for the judge to hear. And what's actually very interesting in that case is the it was two ladies that had uh, one was a mistress. One was the, the wife of the, the husband that was cheating on her. And they basically went back and forth in court. The lady showed proof that this other lady was going to her job and stalking her and calling her names and all that stuff. And the judge just basically told him like, Hey, look, knock it off guys. I'm not issuing a restraining order. You guys just need to stay away from each other. But I, None of this is enough proof for me to issue a restraining order. Wow. So the I, judge did, I, I, I didn't know that part. That yeah, I didn't know that part of the story. That, that part's new to me. I did not know that you had the, the case before you where the judge was kind of a hard ass about giving the restraining order, even though one might have been justified there. Wow. I did right. not know so, that. You know, at this point in time, Christopher Mitchell still actually isn't in the courtroom. And uh, I even made mention to the marshal that was there in the court. You know, I, I 
he asked me if I, you know, had any kind of contact with Christopher Mitchell to see if he was coming. And I said, honestly, I've never talked to him in my life. I said, but my guess is he's not coming. Uh, you know, I didn't really get into too much details, but my guess is the the whole police report thing and, and serving me was just kind of to scare me and that he wasn't actually going to show up to court. So uh, the judge actually brings me up and he's, uh, you know, I, I'm standing in front of the judge and he basically says, well, you know, with the, the other party not here, there's nothing I can really do. Um, I'm going to close this, blah, blah, blah. And then at that point in time, the marshal come, comes in. He's like, hold on, your honor, you know, he's here. And so uh, Christopher Mitchell walks into the courtroom. He's wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt. <laughs> he's more than 15 minutes late from the time that we're scheduled at court. And he comes in, he has no attorney. He has no paperwork or anything like that with him. And... Uh, so basically the, the judge at that point in time, here's the case. The judge is talking to him. He's telling the judge that, you know, I run this channel, that I'm stalking him, that I've taken video of his house, that I follow him around to different casinos, including to the, the casino in California. And by, by um, the, let, me, let me stop for a second here. The thing in California is referring to is that uh, when Christopher visited Sequan Casino in the San Diego area, and didn't do very well and lost. Somehow Kevin Davis had either a friend or a viewer of his channel. Somehow someone was there who recognized Christopher Mitchell and took video of him losing and then gave it to Kevin who then put it on a video and Christopher was furious about this. And in fact, that's one of the few videos Christopher made saying that he lost because it was already on video that he knew uh, Kevin's guy had recorded him. At one point, Christopher caught it and, and yelled about it and demanded that the casino stop the person from recording, which the casino did. But uh, he knew the video was going to be sent to Kevin and he knew it was going to be uh, up there. So uh, Christopher was furious about this. So he, he was using – remember, still believing that Lee is Kevin Davis. He was claiming that that California thing, that's what he was talking about. Anyway, go on. Yeah, so anyway, the, the judge, you know, goes back and forth with Christopher Mitchell for a few minutes, and then the judge comes to me and asks for my side of the story. I explained to him that, you know, I had never contacted Christopher Mitchell. I kind of explained the story that, you know, he had doxxed me, and, you know, he had put my personal information out there. The judge basically responded to Christopher saying, like, so you're doing exactly uh, to him what you're claiming that he's doing to you. You know, unfortunately, if he's making videos about you, I can't, you know, go against the First Amendment and silence him. He has the, the freedom of speech. But if he's following you around to different casinos, that's another thing. And he asked Christopher Mitchell if he had any kind of proof of it. And, you know, Christopher Mitchell tried to claim that the video uh, of him, there was proof that it was on the YouTube Scammer Exposed channel. The judge basically said, well, that's not actually proof that anybody could be him or anybody could be running that channel. Uh, him and so, so again, the judge asked Christopher Mitchell if Christopher, if he had indeed doxed me and posted my social security number online and Christopher Mitchell said that he had not. And I responded to the judge that I actually had proof and I had, uh, I had a flash drive with me and I also had taken some short video clips of the doxing video on my phone, just in case the judge wouldn't take a look at the flash drive. And so the, the judge asked to see, you know, the short clips on my phone. 
And he had asked Christopher Mitchell, he goes, I'm going to ask you one more time. Am I going to see his social security number on these videos? And then at that point in time, Christopher Mitchell switched up his story and said, well, it may, it may be. And so at that point in time, like he had lied to the judge, the judge was completely frustrated with him. The judge took my phone, had my phone in his hand and looked at the video, was disgusted at what he had saw and started ripping into Christopher Mitchell. At that point in time, the judge had you know, handed the marshal my phone. The marshal had handed my phone back to me and I'd set my phone on the desk uh, there in front of me. And so the, the judge is actually ripping Christopher Mitchell at this point in time about, you know, uh, doxing me and filing this lawsuit with no proof and all this stuff. At this point in time, him and Christopher Mitchell actually get into a verbal altercation where Christopher Mitchell is actually yelling at the judge. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the marshal comes in and he's like, you know, you need to stop yelling at the judge. And Christopher Mitchell actually asked the, the marshal, what are you going to do about it? Wow. And he gets extremely cocky with the marshal and the marshal is, you know, telling him that he's going to, so the, the judge actually issues, tells him that he may need to spend some time in County jail to, to cool off. Now kind of, this is where it's all kind of a blur because as all this is going on at the same time, uh, one of the judge's clerks who was, I, I don't exactly know who she is or what her title is, but you know, you, you have the judge, you have the person that, that types the the written report of the, the court proceedings. And then the judge also had two other uh, females that were sitting kind of off to the side of him, off to the, bent, yeah, off now, of now the before, bench. Before you continue, hang on. I want to just review this for the listener. So you guys, listen to this story. Can you imagine any scenario where, where – Lee loses this restraining order case because look at this. You have the judge who's not buying that uh, Lee is Kevin, that there's he, he's telling Christopher correctly. There's no proof. There's nothing that shows that's the same person. He's he's annoyed with him for even bringing the case into his courtroom. It feels like it's wasting the court's time. And then Christopher starts acting like a jerk and actually arguing with him to the point where he's threatening to put him in county jail. And he's not just making idle threats. He's actually very close to, to really putting him in county jail for contempt of court. And this is where there's no jury here. This is where the judge decides for himself whether to grant this. And keep in mind the case right before this was a, a very standard run-of-the-mill case where one person was alleging stalking against the other, where there was some real evidence of stalking, and yet the judge still wouldn't issue it. So what was the chance at that point, right, right where we are in the story right here, what was the chance at that point that Christopher Mitchell was going to win this? I would say one in thousands. I mean, talk about he had every strike against him possible. So how could this have possibly turned around to where Christopher won this? Well, listen to this. Go, go on and tell him what happened. Yeah, so as all this is you know transpiring, I'm kind of just standing off almost in disbelief that this guy's actually acting like this in the courtroom. And... You know, at this point in time, I see the, the clerk or whatever she is go to the judge. And, I, of course, I don't know what she's doing at the time. Now, keep in mind that my phone is still on the desk and has not moved since the marshals brought it back to me. And she's, she looks – she's showing the judge something on her phone. You know, I can, I can tell by the, the, the judge's uh, facial expressions that he's not exactly happy with it. And so at that point in time, the, the judge kind of, you know, calms everything down in the court. and He's like – okay, somebody is recording the audio in the courtroom. At that point in time, I'm kind of just not really understanding what's going on. 
And at that point in time, the judge said, somebody is audio recording this courtroom. It's on YouTube. And it's on the YouTube Scam Exposers channel. And immediately, Christopher Mitchell's like, that's him. That's him. That's his channel. And the judge looks at me and he goes, are you audio recording my courtroom? And I said, no, Your Honor, I'm, I'm not. I said, I have nothing on me. My phone is right here. You can take a look at my phone. The marshal actually, I, I handed the phone to the marshal. My phone was locked. Uh, and the marshal didn't actually ask me to unlock it or anything like that. But, you know, he, he kind of takes a look at it. And so the judge was like, okay, so explain to me. He's like, so Christopher Mitchell is accusing you of being YouTube scam exposures. At that point in time, the judge said, and I heard audio of this courtroom being played on YouTube scam exposures, and you're the one being accused of being YouTube scam exposures. He said, so explain to me, like I'm seven years old, how there could be audio recording of this courtroom on this channel if you're not recording me and you're not YouTube scammer exposed. And at, at this point in time, I was actually speechless. I said, Your Honor, I have no idea. Now, at this point in time, the marshal brings up that I brought somebody with me. My wife had actually came to court with me, except she wasn't allowed in the courtroom because of the COVID-19 restrictions. They were only letting uh, people that had a case in the courtroom. And so she was actually sitting out in the hallway. And so at that point in time, the judge was like, well, maybe she's like the, the way that the courtroom was set up is you have the hallway and then you have doors that go into like a little hallway, maybe like a 10 to 12 foot hallway. And then a second set of doors that opens up into the courtroom. And so at that point in time, they, they speculated that maybe my wife had snuck into the, the middle little hallway there and somehow had caught a portion of the video at that point in time, the judge had claimed, you know, well, unfortunately I can't play it back. The video has been deleted. Now, of course I had no idea what was going on at this time. I was still basically in shock. I didn't know what the judge had heard because the way that she had played it, um, you know, she didn't have the volume up or anything like that. And I was standing a good 30 feet from the judge or so. And uh, so anyway, the judge's mood completely flipped once he found, you know, once he thought that I was recording the audio of the courtroom, he told me, you know, that he's not going to be disrespected and lied to in his courtroom. I tried to speak up and he, he literally told me to stop talking that he wasn't going to allow me to speak anymore because I'm a liar. And that at that point in time, he was going to issue the restraining order against me for Christopher Mitchell. And at that point in time, I just, I again, I was in complete disbelief, uh, completely speechless. Yeah, that's that's a, a, an incredible story. And so let me tell you what uh, what Kevin Davis really put up there. You're probably wondering now it, what was really on that channel. What did they listen to? Was the somehow the courtroom being recorded by Kevin Davis or somebody associated with him? And uh, what was going on there? Well. When I heard this story, I, I got I got a call from uh, Lee telling me what happened, and he actually woke me up with a phone call. But I, I quick right after I got off the call, I went directly to YouTube scam exposures to see what was there. Well, there was a video, but it was not, and it was not deleted. It was a video of just Kevin Davis talking, which was the timestamp on it was during 
the court proceedings, but it was not anything in the courtroom. It was Kevin Davis saying, okay, so I'm recording this as Lee Bradbury is in court. And as you can see, there's no way that this could be recorded while he's there in court if I were him. So again, this is me, Kevin Davis, recording this while Lee Bradbury is in court. This should be proof that I am not the same person. So Kevin Davis is actually trying to help there. And he was actually trying to uh, make it clear that, uh, you know, how could I be recording this video on my own when you can see that, uh, that Lee is in court and isn't making this? He was trying to show that. But somehow, and we don't know why, somehow this court, this court clerk went over to the YouTube Scam Exposures channel to kind of take a look at it, saw something about, uh, about the court case that day, played it, and for whatever reason they got confused – that Kevin Davis saying, hey, you know, this is proof that I'm not him, the court's going on right now, somehow this confused them into believing they were listening to audio in the courtroom. I don't know how it happened, but that's well, – yeah. So I actually have a little bit of a, a guess on how this happened. So first of all, uh, for, for the viewers that may be interested of how Kevin Davis got the information of when I was going to be in court. So – when I was excited about my court date, you know, and I, I was speaking with Todd and I was speaking with Kevin Davis about the court date, I did say the date and time that I was going to be in court. I just didn't share the documents with Kevin Davis, but he, he was made aware of the date and time that I was going to be there. And so, you know, he made that video at, he actually made the video about 25 minutes after I was scheduled to be in court. If I would have been the first hearing that day, if, if, Christopher Mitchell would have showed up on time and the judge would have heard our story first, then that video would have been made probably 10 to 15 minutes after I was already out of the courtroom and it wouldn't have mattered. But my guess is knowing kind of how YouTube works with live videos is so when a YouTube channel goes live, it'll have the video on the, on the channel and it will have a little red thing that says live. Oh yeah. And then, and then when, when that person that is doing the live video ends the video. It does the the video does disappear for a short time because then it takes YouTube takes that live video and then uploads it to your channel and there's a, a delay in between that. So and uh, Kevin Davis's video was only like three and a half to four minutes long, saying, "Hey, I'm not Lee Bradbury. How could I be Lee Bradbury talking on the audio channel right now? You know, on the YouTube channel right now if he's in court." And so what I think is that the, the clerk saw the, the you know, because the, the title of the video was Christopher Mitchell and Lee Bradbury in court right now. And oh. I think that the clerk saw that video title, saw that it said live, and took it over to the judge, and the judge caught the very, very tell end of the quote-unquote live video and then Christopher or Kevin Davis ended the video, which therefore he made the video disappear. And then he couldn't replay it. Wow. Okay, that's, that's a very good theory. He's correct. By the way, I, I don't know you guys if you have played live videos on YouTube or seen. I, I'm sure you guys have seen like a channel post a live video, and then you're a little bit too late to get there, and then you try to play it, and it just says video deleted, and then then it does reappear a little bit later once it it shows in in. Uh, archive format so that's so some in that period in between that probably is what happened and yeah that's a, it's a really unfortunate timing and really unfortunate that they got confused and that they thought they heard the courtroom when really they just really were listening to kevin davis but somehow i guess seeing that title 
live in courtroom. And it was up. It's gone now, but it was up for several hours before Kevin Davis deleted it. And you could have heard what that video was. And some of you did, in case you guys think I might be making this up. I was. I, I heard it personally myself. And it was just Kevin talking. There was no audio of the courtroom. It was just Kevin talking to himself for three and a half minutes saying, hey, how could I be Lee Bradbury if he's in court right now? He's basically saying various forms of that for three and a half, four minutes. I personally heard it, and then uh, Kevin deleted it later. Now, I also want to point something else out. Even if there was secret audio of the courtroom, which there was not, but let's say there was, that does not prove anything because it could be anybody. It could be Kevin Davis had one of his friends go down there and secretly record it. Lee can't control that. Once Lee has, has told him of the court case, or Kevin could have looked this up on the calendar. He wouldn't even need Lee to tell him, but it's also Lee's right to tell him when it is. Kevin could have, uh, out of uh, interest in the story, brought someone down there to record the courtroom. Also, another problem is this does not prove any kind of stalking, and this does not even prove that he's YouTube scam exposers. In fact, uh, at, at what if, um, even if, he knew Kevin Davis, and even if Kevin Davis was secretly down there himself recording it, this doesn't make it that he's Kevin Davis. It just, at, at the very worst, it means that uh, either Kevin got someone down there or they're in cooperation in some way. It does not mean that he's stalking Christopher Mitchell. Just being friends with someone who is making videos about Christopher Mitchell, even friends with someone who's stalking Christopher Mitchell, doesn't mean that he is. And furthermore, the the thing the judge was mad about was what he considered contempt of court that he was recording the courtroom without permission. And notice there was never any kind of contempt of court charge or even threatened against uh, Lee here, that, that he just decided that because he was mad that he thought his courtroom was being recorded, that to punish Lee, he's going to give him, he's going to grant the restraining order, assuming that this means he's YouTube scam exposed, which is a gigantic leap. I mean, the, a, a court case that's publicly posted of when it's going to be, and you're saying that uh, a guy who frequently makes videos about Kevin, about uh, Christopher Mitchell couldn't be down there doing it. <laughs> That's what's so absurd. How, do, how does he know that Kevin Davis is not down there or does not have someone down there for him recording the audio, even if it was happening? So even if that was happening, that does not mean that uh, he'd have to, the judge would have to know that it's actually Lee doing it, not just that it's happening. And the judge can't just guess at that. So that's insane. The whole thing was insane. It was a judge who was very, who felt insulted that he thought he was being lied to and that his courtroom was being secretly recorded. He thought he was being made a fool of, and he decided to punish Lee here and grant the restraining order. So that, and then he wouldn't let him speak further. So a complete miscarriage of justice. You simply do not grant a restraining order unless you see real proof that that person is being stalked. Not even just that you think they own a channel which criticizes that person, but that you actually see proof it's them and that you carefully consider, okay, does this really mean it's them? Does the audio of the, of the recording of the courtroom, which wasn't even happening, but if it was, does that mean that's him or does that mean there might be a third party involved just doing this on their own, which it easily could have been even if it were really happening. So uh, a terrible decision. And very and bad as, luck, as you said. Even if I was, that's you know con, uh, that's a contempt of court, uh, you know contempt of court charge, not a you're stalking. That's proof that you're stalking him charge. Yeah. So and also it could it could mean that you were just you, it could have meant you were recording it and sending it to Kevin Davis who was putting it live. Which again maybe they could consider contempt of court. That has nothing to do with stalking Christopher Mitchell. It could have been hey you know may, this is up there because we want to show how how stupid Christopher Mitchell is. That doesn't mean I'm stalking him. It just uh, here's the audio of the frivolous case he's putting up there. And that, so again they can they can the court can attack this from a contempt standpoint. This does not affect the stalking accusation at all. It was an absolutely insane decision. I'm sure the. 
attorneys listening to this are just shaking their heads going, oh, my God, I can't believe a, a judge in the Las Vegas court did this, but he did. So then, unfortunately, Lee had a very bad situation in that he had a restraining order on his record at that point, which you may say, if you don't know much about it, you may say, well, no big deal. He's not, you know, he's never contacted Christopher anyway, so just don't contact him. And uh, after three years, it'll expire, and there will be no consequence unless he actually does contact Christopher Mitchell. Well, there's there's two reasons why you don't want this. Number one, they both live in Las Vegas. They both go to casinos. He would not want it where he goes to a casino and Christopher Mitchell happens to be there and sees him and then calls the police, and somehow the police are convinced that it's a stalking and, uh, and, and arrest him. You don't want that there. You, you don't want a restraining order on you uh, – and especially in places like Las Vegas where a lot of people go to the same places like casinos and when it's frivolous. You just never want that. Number two, the bigger reason, is that it can affect employment. And uh, Lee is not a professional poker player. He is someone who does hold regular jobs. He is someone who sometimes switches jobs and wants to apply for a new job. And these can come up in background checks. And this can really affect the ability to be employed because they – they, you know, they're they're thinking of hiring you. They do a background check. They find a restraining order. They go, ah, I don't want to take a chance on this guy. That shows he's unstable. Something wrong with him. Shows he's probably stalkerish. Maybe he's going to give us trouble. Maybe he'll be dangerous if we ever have to fire him. You know what? Let's just pass on him and take somebody else who doesn't have this baggage. And and that that can be a huge detriment to you when you're attempting to get a job. It's not as big of a deal if you're never going to go work for somebody else. But if you are going to work for somebody else, then that's a terrible thing to have. And that is something which I, I've i always had a, a big criticism of restraining orders in general in that they're handed out too easily. It's just done by a judge who just uh, makes a decision willy-nilly if he hands it out or not. And once you get one against you, there are very severe consequences to it, especially if you're someone who uh, needs to be employed by somebody else. And so, well, so, it, so it's kind of like the consequences of a criminal case, but yet uh, judged like a small claims case, which is horrible. So the 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 job thing actually was number the, the second you know concern of mine. One of my biggest concerns and immediate concerns was that now this judge thinks that I'm YouTube scam exposed and, and thinks that I'm Kevin Davis, and I I know that Kevin Davis wasn't going to stop making videos about Christopher Mitchell. So now uh, that, you know, he has this restraining order against me and the, the judge believes that I'm YouTube scam exposed, is the next video that Kevin Davis puts out of Christopher Mitchell, if, if Kevin Davis has somebody following Christopher Mitchell around again, all it takes is Christopher Mitchell to go back to the judge and say, hey, here's another video of where he's following me around. Right. And then the judge at that point in time could decide to arrest me based on Breaking the restraining order. Yes, that that's, that is a big problem too, and that's uh, now. Um, yes, it, after such a thing were to happen, then Lee could probably uh, sue the uh, the city once he got arrested uh, for false arrest, and once he could prove he's not a YouTube scam exposer, he could possibly win money. And but still, who wants to go through all that? And also, there's no guarantee you'd win such a case. It is sometimes hard to bring uh, successful cases against the city like this. So uh, obviously, that was a real concern that now. He was believed to be somebody else, and now whatever actions this someone else takes, including taking videos, uh, could he could have consequences for it, which which is another problem. You always want uh, 
you always want consequences only for your own actions. To have to have consequences for a third party that you have no control over in another state, uh, you, you don't want consequences for them action, for their actions, and that is what uh, Lee was dealing with, plus the employment situation. So when he told me about all this, I felt horrible for him, as you probably do too, hearing this story. And uh, obviously my first thought was, is there a way to get this reversed? Is there a way to get this reviewed? And I didn't know this because I had never looked into whether there is a way to reverse a restraining order. So I Googled it and I looked it up. And of course, it only matters to the state of Nevada. It doesn't matter how other states handle it. But it turned out that, yes, in Nevada, there is a way to get uh, restraining orders appealed. Now, when you appeal restraining orders, the only thing that gets appealed is uh, if a mistake was made based upon the existing information at the time of the case. If that would have, if, if there was some mistake made that had it not been made would have changed the outcome. Well, in this case, yes, there's a huge mistake made that they, they believe that there is audio of the courtroom that uh, um, that that somehow proved that he was uh, that he was Kevin Davis. Which number one, that wouldn't prove it, and number two, there was no audio of the courtroom. So uh, this was a huge mistake. So yes, this was a perfect thing for appeal. See, like something you couldn't do on appeal is bring in new information that you hadn't presented the first time. They're, they would not allow that. But uh, it seemed to me that this was one that could easily win on appeal and that uh, the way the appeals process works there is uh, first the original judge. This goes back to him. And uh, and if you cannot get this uh, resolved through the original judge, you do have a right to have another judge hear it at that point. And uh, so that – so then – now, at this point, with a restraining order already against him, it's very clear that Lee could not afford to just go at it alone at this point, that he did need an attorney at this point. So uh, so you went in and researched attorneys, and what did you find? Yeah, so I hadn't even left the parking garage to the the courthouse before, you know, I was looking up attorneys and so, uh, stuff to, to try to talk to. Um, I called around to several different attorneys, and finally I landed on one that, uh, you know, could meet with me that day. Uh, it was going to be like two or three hours later, uh, which was which was fine because it gave me a little bit of time to go home and, and kind of put a timeline together to try to break down the story to this attorney to where I'm not wasting his time. And so I, I went home, put a timeline together. I you know, put everything on my flash drive as far as all my evidence of, you know, him doxing me, all of my communication with Kevin Davis. And, you know, I, I met with my attorney a few hours later. Um, he was actually, so I really, you know, one of the things that I really liked about this attorney is, you know, there, it wasn't a free consultation, but he basically heard my entire story before he even talked about money. Um, you know, he didn't say, Hey, like your consultation is $75 or a hundred dollars. I need that money before I even talk to you. So he, he sat down and talked to me for about two hours and he was completely shocked at the story. Um, when I, you know, had told him that there was absolutely uh, no evidence presented in the courtroom, he was really shocked. He was really convinced that this would be an easy shut and close, you know, uh, open shut case for an appeal. And uh, you know, decided that he would take my case. Uh, he did inform me at that point, you know, uh, he informed me beforehand that it was going to be $15 to retain him, but that would include, you know, 
it wouldn't be. Wait, wait, hold, hold on a second. You, you said fifteen dollars to to retain him. Fifteen hundred. Okay, fifteen hundred dollars to retain him. Fifteen, that'd be a good deal. I would have snap taken that one. <laughs> that was uh, fifteen hundred dollars to retain him, but it wasn't going to be like a, you know, he wasn't going to charge me like a an hourly, like three hundred or four hundred dollars an hour. You know, he agreed to take on the case for fifteen hundred dollars, no additional charges or anything like that. Thought it was going to be an easy open shut case. So as I'm so I was in his office for the, the majority of the time. And then after I'd spoke with him for about an hour and a half, two hours, we're out in the lobby. He's having his, you know, admin or paralegal or whatever, take my uh, card information to pay him. And there was another attorney that had walked by. And this is where things kind of just get kind of unreal. Is So the, this other attorney walks by and he kind of looks at me. I kind of look at him. I, I think that he kind of looks familiar. And he kind of looked at me like he knew me. And then I it, it clicked that I saw this attorney in the same courtroom that I was in with Christopher Mitchell. And he was there for a different case after mine and was just sitting in the courtroom listening to my case. Yeah, so that's very fortunate that it just by sheer coincidence, a lot of coincidences here, that the that the whole weird thing with, with Kevin Davis happened, that they happened to look it up at the time when that was on there, and they, they were misled into believing that it was – uh, th- that it was the audio of the courtroom, but then the, the, a good coincidence finally that the attorney he happened to choose had uh, an associate there that happened to be in court and witnessed this whole thing go down. So that that was very helpful. When I had told you know my my attorney all the ridiculous of him not presenting evidence and him almost getting arrested in court, you know, and I didn't blame my attorney for this, but I kind of got the impression that the attorney kind of thought that I was just over exaggerating of things that happened in the court and when his partner attorney told him you know he's like yeah i was in that court that was the most you know he's like i've been practicing years uh law for 10 plus years and that's one of the most ridiculous things i've ever seen in a courtroom and he's like the the judge was about ready to arrest this guy then all of a sudden uh you know he turns and and starts in on you know on him and so that attorney said that the case was so ridiculous that him and the marshal was actually talking about my case, like after the fact and both him and my marsh and the marshal was uh, the understanding that my wife had to have snuck in somehow and got the recording. And that's kind of what they were going with is that, you know, it must've been my wife uh, because the marshal even said like I had his phone, his phone wasn't, it didn't look to be on recording, and the judge had just had his phone less yeah. than five minutes prior. And it wasn't his wife. Like this, this never happened. You guys understand it was Kevin Davis putting that up with that misleading title. But, but anyway, uh, so it, it was fortunate though that at least they had uh, an attorney there in that same firm that had seen it all go down and was able to just go right from there. It didn't have to be a description or maybe this didn't really happen the way he said. And they had an attorney that could come right there and say, yeah, I was right here when this all happened. And let me tell you where, where the mistake was. So that was very fortunate that that coincidence occurred. He did not know this when he went to go hire these attorneys. So let, let's fast forward a bit. since There's more to the story, you guys. Here. So let's fast forward a bit to, well, let, let's, let's get to the point where, where there was a hearing and Christopher had, had claimed that he, that he didn't know about it. Well, yeah. So, okay. So fast forward, uh, with COVID going on, and plus, you know, the court proceedings is very slow in general, plus COVID-19 doesn't make it any easier. Uh, fast forward, it was like four or five weeks later was my next 
uh, court appearance. I show up, my attorney shows up, and then they find out that the courts actually never served Christopher Mitchell at all. So Christopher <laughs> Mitchell had no idea about the court proceedings that were going to be happening in July. So they decided to uh, postpone the, the court hearing, and they set it again for like four or five weeks later. Great. And at that point in time, it was uh, the the court made it my attorney's office responsibility to serve Christopher Mitchell. So fast forward again, uh, four or five weeks later, um, you know, I'm in contact with my attorney's office. They're telling me like, look, you know, we've tried to uh, have Christopher Mitchell served. Uh, it was like 12 or 13 times. Uh, the process server, you know, had documented each individual time that he had tried, including, you know, on three or four different occasions, the process server had made it very clear that, you know, he could hear or see movement inside the home and still wasn't getting any kind of response. Plus, you know, he was leaving, uh, you know, some kind of sticky notes or something on the garage or on the door and that they were being removed each time. But uh, he was unable to uh, serve Christopher Mitchell. Plus, my attorney's office had mailed something to Christopher Mitchell's address as well. So, uh, you know, fast forward to ultimately my third court hearing. Uh, I'd spoke with my attorney the day before and the morning of, and he was like, look, he's like, you know, uh, unfortunately, our process server hasn't been able to serve Christopher Mitchell. I'm going to go in here and talk to the judge. Uh, one other kind of perfect, uh, one other thing important to note is the second court hearing where Christopher Mitchell didn't show up because he actually really didn't know about the court hearing is uh, my attorney actually got to speak with the judge and the judge had uh, admitted to my attorney that he never actually heard any audio whatsoever on the YouTube uh, channel. Wow. That he was actually taking his clerk's word for it and was still upset, basically claiming that, um, I was calling his clerk a liar <laughs> and I, I was because he was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, but you know, that, that he was basically pissed off at me because, you know, I'm claiming that his clerk's a liar and, you know, he's going to take his clerk's word over mine and that, you know, he basically still believed that I was the YouTube, you know, responsible for the YouTube scammer exposed page. Um, so anyway, uh, that, that was on the, the hearing where Christopher Mitchell didn't show up and that he really had no idea that was going on. So then, like, uh, four or five weeks later, we go into court that morning, and my attorney was like, look, you know, we weren't able to serve him, but we did make multiple attempts. He's like, so I'm going to go in and talk to the judge and say, look, you know, we made multiple attempts. There was no evidence presented other than, you know, you – the, the YouTube channel or whatever, but there was no actual evidence presented by the, you know, the, the plaintiff. Can we just get rid of this? And so uh, he goes and he, he somehow talks to the judge and he comes back and he tells me, he's like, okay, the judge is going to dismiss this. Um, he's going to, he's going to go ahead and reverse it. So we, we have to go in the courtroom. He do, he still doesn't want to talk to you. He's, he still doesn't like you. 
<laughs> but, you know, we got to go into the courtroom. He's got to get up on the bench and basically say that this was dismissed. So he's like, so when we go in there, don't say a word. So we go in, into the courtroom. Uh, I'm standing there with my uh, my attorneys at this point in time. The original attorney that I hired was there, plus the attorney that had got to witness everything firsthand. Uh, the first trial or the, the first court hearing was there. And, uh, you know, they started, you know, talking to the judge. And next thing you know, the marshal comes in and says, Your Honor, Christopher Mitchell is actually here. <laughs> another, another, another late appearance at the last second. So, uh, again, you know, Christopher Mitchell at this point in time was late. And they bring him in. The judge asked him, you know, how uh, he knew about the court hearing if he was never served. He claimed that he had just got something in the mail the day before. Yeah, right. And that, you know, he only had, you know, he had less than 24 hours to prepare for this because he hadn't been served. And so uh, basically the judge kind of saw right through that, you know, the judge definitely wasn't a fan of Christopher Mitchell, regardless of his feelings towards me. Right. He was already pissed at him and almost about to put him in jail. So, yeah, he didn't like him either. Right. Now, now I will give Christopher Mitchell credit this time. He showed up in a suit. Oh, good, good. And and not a sweatsuit, just, just a regular suit. So, anyway, uh, the judge, you know, is, is basically pulling his hair out at this point in time. Like, he's got Christopher Mitchell, who he thinks is a fucking idiot. He's got me, who thinks that, you know, I'm a liar, that I've disrespected him in his courtroom. And he's basically just ready to be done with this. And, you know... He's telling Christopher Mitchell, he's like, okay, do you have any kind of evidence uh, to, to be able to present to me for me not to reverse this this restraining order? And at this point in time, Christopher Mitchell is like, Your Honor, yes, I do. Um, uh, you know, I have evidence. He, he was like, I was at the Cosmopolitan, and I received a phone call from a friend who told me that uh, YouTube scammer exposed was was having a live video following me around the Cosmopolitan, and he's like, so I I went to the the YouTube scam exposed uh, YouTube channel and and unfortunately the channel was the the video was already deleted before I could actually see it, but you know if you look at his wife's Facebook profile she has a picture. Of her at the Cosmopolitan. Yeah, like like that proves anything. Like, oh my God, somebody in Las Vegas actually their their wife was at the Cosmopolitan. That's that pr that proves he was stalking Christopher at the Cosmopolitan because there's no reason to go to the Cosmopolitan other than to stalk Christopher Mitchell, of course. But so at this point in time, so the judge was like, okay, so you saw a video, but you have no proof, and he's like, no, 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 I have proof of the video. I have video evidence that he was stalking me. And so the the judge, he's like, okay, let me see it, and then the judge. The judge paused, and he was like, actually, he's like, we're going to take a quick recess. He's like, his attorneys should have the chance to see this evidence before it's presented to the court. And so he's like, we're going to take a, a quick 10-minute recess. And Christopher Mitch, he's like, uh, you know, Mr. Bradbury is going to go out in the hallway. Uh, Mr. Mitchell, you're going to actually go into this room with his attorneys, and you're going to present the evidence to his attorney and let the attorney see this video. So I go out to the hallway. My attorneys go into the office. 
uh, into like a little back room or whatever. And, uh, you know, a few minutes later, the, uh, the attorney that was present for the first hearing comes out and he's like, Hey man, I just want to let you know, you need to cut this shit out. And, and this is kind of where I got annoyed with, with this attorney is like, he's like, you just need to cut this shit out. I was like, cut what out, man? I'm not doing anything. And he's like, look, he's like, I don't know if you are, if you are or aren't, but why do you care about this guy? I was like, I don't care about this guy. <laughs> shit. And I, I, this is so like, frustrating. Before you continue, this is so frustrating because this is so easy and simple. It, like, I, this is what I don't get. Okay, it's it's one thing if uh, if there's uh, an idiot who brings a frivolous case against you. It's one thing if one person gets confused about something and makes the wrong decision. But this is like a big chain. Now he's got his own attorneys believing. Okay, maybe there maybe there is something going on here. Maybe uh, maybe Lee is harassing him. It's it's very simple. It's open and shut. You take a look at it. You can see obviously the, that that there's no proof or not even. Any indication that Lee is the same person? You can hear its different voices. You can hear that. You can clearly see that Christopher's full of crap. You can clearly see that everything that Christopher's been saying about the whole thing isn't true, and uh, and and everything that Christopher claims he has as quote evidence really isn't. Anyone with the slightest bit of common sense could see what the truth is here, and it's amazing that even his attorneys. We're getting confused by this and thinking, okay, maybe these guys are both screwing with each other. And this this can tend to happen when you have people who aren't critical thinkers, when you have people who may be book smart, but they don't have the ability to just stop and take something apart and look at it logically and critically and not just go, ah, uh, you know, both of these people are kind of acting weird. I bet they're both, I bet they're both guilty of something. Like a, that, that's what was going on here. And it was so unfair because and, every bit of evidence pointed uh, to the truth, which people were, were ignoring here. Now, you know, again, admittedly, my wife actually did have a picture as her Facebook profile of her standing in front of the chandelier bar at the Cosmopolitan, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, but so does everybody. And, you know who has that same picture? Uh, Danielle Burreal. Danielle Burreal, who, who uh, is the, the head of WSP.com. Does that mean she was stalking Christopher Mitchell? I mean, that's that's an iconic place in Cosmopolitan, which is one of the biggest and best-known casinos in Vegas. So to, to even that, – that's insulting to try to claim that – the guy's wife having a picture in front of an iconic uh, chandelier in Vegas is somehow proof of stalking. I mean, that's just it's just I mean, even a five year old could figure out how that doesn't make any sense. Right. And and not that I felt like I'd need to defend myself, you know, to you. But, you know, I'm telling my attorney, I was like, look, I was like, I so my wife and I, we as a as a married couple, we had our first drink as a married couple at the Cosmopolitan. So now every year on our anniversary, we go to the Cosmopolitan to have a drink. It's kind of just a tradition. So, and our anniversary is in June. So, uh, you know, it was actually a couple of weeks after my first case with Christopher Mitchell when I when I actually did have the restraining order against me uh, that I went to the Cosmopolitan, not because I was looking for him, just because you know we. Actually, we're going there for a drink. I had some friends from out of town that were actually in town. And I, I showed my attorney. I was like, look, I was like, I have a text message conversation with a friend that shows, hey, do you want to go to, the, you know, do you want to go out to eat? Yeah, sure. Where do you want to go? Well, I don't know. Me and my wife is going to go to the Cosmopolitan first to have a drink. And then we can go anywhere from there. So I, I show my attorney this, you know, he's like, whatever, like, just <laughs> stop with this guy. Like, if you're doing something, stop. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. And he's like, okay, whatever. So he goes back in, a few minutes pass, and eventually they bring me back into the courtroom. 
uh, the judge gets back up on the bench and he goes, okay, guys, uh, did you have a, a enough time to review the evidence uh, that he has against, you know, the defendant? And my attorney speaks up and he's like, no, your honor. Um, yeah, there is no evidence. There was no video. And the, the judge kind of like pauses a little bit. He's like, what do you mean there's no video? And uh, the, the attorney, now at this point in time, uh, my actual attorney, the one that I hired, uh, had another case in a different court that he had to go to. And so he asked me if it was okay if I let his partner, who was familiar with the case, take over at that point in time for that hearing. I said, yeah, that's fine, whatever. So at this point in time, it's only uh, the other attorney. His name is Roy. So uh, so Roy is, you know, saying, you know, Your Honor, there, there was no evidence. He brought us in there. He wanted to show us pictures when we kept pressing for the video that he claims that he had of, you know, our client following him around the Cosmopolitan. Uh, he couldn't present it. Um, you know, he can't tell the date that, you know, our client was following him around. All he has is a picture of him, you know, his wife at the Cosmopolitan on a Facebook profile, which proves nothing. So, Your Honor, again, he's not shown us any proof. And so the, the judge, stunned by all this, goes to Christopher and he's like, I thought you said that you have video evidence of him stalking you. And Christopher Mitchell's like, no, I never said that. I never said that. <laughs> he tells the judge, uh, I have evidence. The judge is like, okay, show it to his attorneys. Okay, what? I never said I had any evidence. The judge is like, am I in the freaking twilight zone? What the hell is going on here? The, the judge says, we went on a recess solely because you said that there was a video that you needed to show his attorney. And so they go back and forth. The judge, you know, makes the claim, you two are meant for each other. You guys are both out there, basically. <laughs> and at this point in time, like, I, during this trial, I actually never spoke to the judge one time. I never actually spoke in court at all. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, at this point in time, uh, this attorney uh, made a statement that he didn't talk to me about beforehand. Uh, I didn't really approve of. I actually wasn't very happy with it. Um, you know, he kind of later explained himself after the fact, but he said, you know, your honor, you know, clearly my defendant has made a, a mistake, but that mistake doesn't prove that he is actually stalking Mr. Mitchell. And still to this day, Mr. Mitchell has not been able to present any evidence whatsoever that our client is stalking him. And for that reason, we asked for this case to be dismissed. Yeah, which which is basically saying, yes, okay, my, without directly saying it, okay, my, my client did record the card room, but that doesn't mean that he didn't do it, which is crazy because that's not true, and nor did Lee ever tell him it was true. It's not like Lee said it to the attorney We said, please don't present this in court. Lee has been insisting the entire time, I didn't do it. My wife didn't do it. I have no idea what they're talking about. And then the, the attorney just goes rogue and says this. Uh, and and uh, and so your attorney said to you later that that he uh, he used that strategy because he felt the judge was not going to change his mind. So this would be the best thing to to kind of get the judge past it. Yeah. So so first of all, he chose his words very carefully. He never said my my client, you know, made a big mistake by recording the the courtroom. Yeah, I just he said he made a big mistake. He, yeah. He never. He just said that I made a big mistake. 
He didn't say what that big mistake was. And he felt that, you know, uh, being sympathetic and apologetic to the judge would get a lot further than continuing to basically say, we think that you're lying. You didn't hear what you thought you heard. And so, um, so anyway, the, the judge at this point in time was like, okay, well, you know, based on everything here, um, he even said, you know, I can't believe that this is in my courtroom a second time. (laughs) I can't either. Go ahead and reverse the, uh, the, Temporary restraining order or temporary protection order, TPO. Um, Christopher Mitchell, do you have any objection to this? And of course, you know, uh, now this is like fast forward like 10 to 15 minutes or whatever, maybe 10 minutes. So Christopher Mitchell's like, yeah, I have objection to this. He's stalking me. He's, you know, making threats against me and my wife and my child, blah, blah, blah. The judge goes, well, you know, unless you're able to provide me some proof of, you know, this happening. Unfortunately, you know, I'm going to have to reverse this. And then Christopher's like, I got proof. I got a video. (laughs) (laughs) So the the judge goes, now you got a video again. And he's like, yeah, I have a video of him uh, recording me in a California casino. And the judge said, you know, is this before or after our June court date? And Christopher was like, oh, I don't know the exact date. I'll have to look it up. So the judge gives him a chance to look it up. This, this should have been dismissed a long time ago. I mean, even with the first mistake of, of granting it, it, just the second that Christopher went back there and then failed to show him what, what, what he promised he was going to show, every judge in the world would have been justified to say, you know what? This is ridiculous. You had your chance to show the evidence. You wouldn't show it to the opposing attorneys. I'm dismissing it. That, that's what I would have done immediately if I were judge. This is crazy. He gave him a second chance. So the uh, the judge, you know, gives him a chance to look at the video. Uh, at that point in time, uh, Christopher Mitchell says that the video of the California casino happened prior to our first court date. And the judge goes, well, you know, that's nothing. You know, there wasn't a restraining order prior to that court date. So unfortunately, I, you know, there's no punishment there. Um, so unless you can provide some new evidence, uh, there's nothing to, to hold this you know, restraining order on, and I'm going to reverse it. So we're going to go ahead and reverse this. He's like, now what I will say uh, is he said that he's going to put a one-year uh, no-contact order. And what he explained that the no-contact order was is it's basically off the books, and it's basically the judge just telling – both of us to leave each other alone. The judge said, you know, uh, he, so the, the judge actually said, you know, in six months, we're going to come back and, uh, kind of do like a follow up to make sure that you guys are both leaving each other alone. But, uh, basically he said within that six months, the one year time frame, if either of us had an issue with, each other as far as like following each other around, then we could file something back into the court and he would hear a case and, and decide to put the restraining order back in place. So that's actually where I stand now. Um, I do have a, another court hearing, uh, the beginning of 2021, not sure the exact date, but, uh, I do have another court hearing that 
the judge is going to, I assume, have us back in or maybe just talk to the attorney to see, you know, if there's been anything more going on. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I still have not tried to contact him. I have no intentions of contacting him. I've not been in contact with Kevin Davis. And honestly, like, I've, I've distanced myself from this because it's just, you know, where, where I found it a little interesting at the beginning, it became just such a headache. No, it was a huge nightmare, this whole thing. I, I don't blame you. You weren't that invested in this in the first place, and somehow you got roped into to this bogus restraining order being, uh, and, and then what, actually being granted through those crazy circumstances, and then it was actually even more difficult to, to win on appeal than it appeared it would be. Now, so there, there's good and bad news I want to tell everybody here for the, the whole situation regarding his costs for the, for the appeal, because, of course, he had to hire an attorney at that point. The good news is that uh, for a lot of work is being done for this $1,500 that he spent, which is a flat fee, and, and until the matter is concluded, either for or against him, until it's actually concluded, uh, that's all covered in that same flat fee. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure when his attorneys took this, they had no idea how long this was going to drag because it seemed open and shut. It was just all this weirdness that, that even followed there that it uh, that there's more work that they've had to do for this than probably they expected. But nevertheless, that's what they agreed to, and that's it, it's not going to cost him any anything further until this is uh, until this is done. So that's that's the good news is it's not going to be running up further uh, attorney's fees. The bad news is he's out fifteen hundred dollars for something that. Absolutely was not his fault because he should have won. Remember, he represented himself at the beginning, and rightfully so because this was so outrageous, and there just there, there was no way that Christopher Mitchell was going to be able to satisfy the burden of proof to show that he was Kevin Davis, to show that Lee was Kevin Davis because he wasn't, and there's no nothing indication he no no indication he was other than in, in Christopher's head. So um, this seemed super easy to beat on his own, and through that weird thing that happened with Kevin Davis's video. He ended up with a totally unfair restraining order against him, at which point, of course, he had to go get attorney. So he's out $1,500 basically because he tried to go protect an old man that uh, he thought might be receptive to seeing and hearing evidence that Christopher Mitchell's winning Baccarat system was not at all what it appeared to be and was actually a scam. And that uh, thanks to that attempt, which was his right to do, you can contact, for those of you that don't know, most of you probably know, but... You have a right to contact anyone at any time for any reason, um, provided you don't break the law while you're contacting them. Some people believe that you don't have a right to contact someone's friend or someone's family. You do. It, it may be an asshole thing to do in certain cases, like if you have a problem with someone to harass their mom. That, that's an asshole thing to do. Um, e- even calling that person's mom and, and trying to get her involved, that could be kind of uh, – an asshole thing to do, but it's not illegal. There's nothing. You have a right to contact anyone at any time, especially if they have not yet told you to stop contacting them. Once they say stop contacting me and you continue to, then the person could uh, could claim you're harassing them. But an initial contact with anyone, especially done respectfully and without any kind of threats, which is what he did with Bob Hesley. With Bob Hesley, he was trying to help. He tried to go, hey, the, let me let me help you. Let me show you that the coaching you're about to buy is bogus. Let me show you some evidence the coaching you're about to buy is bogus. I don't want to see you get cheated, Bob. That, that's what he was saying. And uh, so th- there was no harassment. It's not like he showed up to Bob and started uh, attacking him or threatening him. You better not come down there. Or I'm going to do this to you. He was trying to say, don't do it. Here, that's my advice to you. And here's some evidence that what I'm telling you is correct. That is totally within his legal rights to do. And it was actually something that was uh, morally good because he was trying to protect an old guy from getting scammed. And 
look at what he had to go through because of this. So for that reason, and and I, I wouldn't do this lightly, and I've never done it before on this show, but uh, and I suggested this, by the way. He did he did not ask this. I, I suggested this uh, early on, but we said we're not going to do this until he can actually come on and tell the story because it, it wouldn't have made sense to do if we can't tell you the story. That wouldn't be fair. But I said, I am going to see if radio listeners here want to help Lee pay for the uh, attorney's fees that he had to, uh, you know, it's just money out the window, $1,500, which could have been worse, but it ended up being $1,500 that uh, that are out of his pocket. And as he said, he's not a rich guy. He's, he's not uh, dirt poor, but this this is someone who, where the money is is definitely meaningful. And, uh, and and it sucks to have to waste the money on this. Forget all the stress and the time and all this, which you'll never get back. But uh, but at least the monetary portion, I said, you know what? If I'm going to tell the story. We'll tell the story out here. And I'll see if any listeners want to donate to this cause. And uh, and if, if even if we can't raise the, the whole 1500 uh, at least it'll defray some of the cost. At least it will we'll, uh, bring his out-of-pocket costs down. So, uh, so if you if you want to donate to a good cause, and this really is, and I can tell you, I've been following this the whole way. He didn't just tell me this story yesterday. I've been following it the whole way. It, it's got it got me mad to hear as it went on. It, it got me mad to know that Lee did nothing to deserve this. It's not even like Lee heard what Christopher was doing and said, "You know what? I'm going to fuck with Christopher Mitchell because he's a piece of shit. I'm going to fuck with him. I'm going to harass him. I'm going to stalk him because he deserves it." And then Lee got in some kind of trouble. Well, then you could say, even if you think Christopher deserves it, Lee still knowingly broke the law. But that's not what happened here. Lee did not break any laws. Lee went to go warn someone, and that's all he did. He warned someone with the truth, with links to the truth to go read on this site, pokerfraudalert.com, and for that, he got a restraining order placed against him based upon bogus pretenses that he was this other individual, Kevin Davis, who doesn't even live on the in the western U.S. Kevin Davis lives on the east coast. That uh, he, he had to go through all this and is out $1,500 too. It's, it's horrible. So I, I felt so bad for him. I so badly wanted him to win this. I was at least somewhat happy when he got the restraining order reversed because now there is no actual restraining order against him on his record. If there's a background check done, this will not show up now. And if... Uh, and also, if if Kevin Davis does future videos where there's where there where he does get someone to record Christopher, then uh, Lee is not responsible for it in any way, which of course is very important because who knows what Kevin Davis is going to do? He always wants to make uh, Christopher Mitchell look bad and expose him. So, um, and I'm not saying even Kevin Davis is wrong to do this. Like if, if Kevin Davis is exposing things that. Christopher's doing that uh, is dishonest and is warning people, and then that's fine. I don't even see anything. Like, uh, by the way, recording someone in public is not necessarily a crime either, or, that, or nor does it mean you're stalking them. I mean, there's people who post videos all the time that go viral of being someone being recorded. So if you, if you record someone out in public doing something bad, that doesn't make you a stalker. A stalking is 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 much more. Uh, it's not super well defined, but it's much much more than that. It's where basically somebody is is following you around from place to place, and and uh, uh, frequently harassing you in person or making electronic or or threats over the telephone you know, they're, they're, where they're either harassing you online in a way with through direct contact or following you or your family to harass you through direct contact not not that you happen to see someone at the casino engaging in wrongdoing and record them that's not even stalking by the way that's uh um so so that even that wouldn't be stalking but he wasn't even doing that again this was kevin kevin had somebody who saw christopher at sequan and, and, and recorded him and they put it on the channel again that's legal too Saquon asked him not to do it, 
and the guy stopped, but uh, but that was not illegal either. So anyway, and this had nothing to do with Lee. This is all stuff that Kevin and his friend did. This has nothing to do with Lee. So this this is a real miscarriage of justice. It's a very frustrating thing he went through here. So if 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 there is a if you'd like to donate, and it, it can be any amount. And by the way, you may say, well, how do we know that he really spent fifteen hundred dollars? Well, I will verify before I, I the money will be donated to me, and I will be the one distributing it. I will not distribute a penny to Lee until I am convinced. And, and I, I believe it, by the way. It's not like I have any doubts. But uh, Lee will, will send me proof that he actually paid the $1,500 to the attorney. And once I'm satisfied with that proof that he paid $1,500 to the attorney, uh, then I will send him whatever I receive. And, uh, if I re- and I will not take more than $1,500. If we get to $1,500, it's going to stop. It's not going to be like these GoFundMe campaigns where someone uh, has a, a sob story out there and they say, oh, I'm out to $1,000. And then they end up getting uh, – it goes viral and they get 100000 and they made 99000 out of it. Lee's not going to make any money here. Once we get to $1,500, i am going to tell everybody – Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I'm not taking another penny because we reached 1500. So, so at best, he's going to break even in this whole thing, which he won't break even because it'll be the the time and the stress of this whole thing. But uh, financially, he will not make any. He will not make a penny because once we get to 1500, I'm not, I'm not going to take anything more. I'm, I'm, I'm going to refuse, and you're going to be giving it to me. So you'll know that uh, there will be even if you even if you don't know or trust Lee, you will know that I am not going to take more than 1500 from people. Because it's all going to go through me. So once we get to that, that's it. And I'm going to send it to him. If we don't get to 1500 I'll send him whatever we get. And uh, I am going to make an announcement here that uh, nobody knew, not even Lee. Put up some music here. I'm going to tell you something surprising. So you guys know that I don't usually uh, get involved with donating things like this, but... Just to show how much I believe in this, I am going to start off by donating one million dollars. Actually, I, I shouldn't say that. That may put me legally on the hook for it. But no, I'm not going to donate a million dollars. I am going to donate one hundred dollars to this cause to bring down his legal expenses. So we're going to start at $100 that is already there now for me. I'm going to personally give $100 here because I just I feel so bad for him. And so we're, he's already going to have 100 taken off here. But uh, you don't have to donate $100. do not don't feel like compelled to donate. You want to donate $10. You want to donate uh, $1. Now, I cannot take PayPal at the moment, as you guys know. But I can take uh, Zelle. I can take Bitcoin. I can take Cash App. I can take Venmo. So uh, I can take a bank transfer in some cases. So if you'd like to donate here, please let me know, and I will make sure that uh, – I will not give Lee a penny until I'm sure he really paid this 1500 which, by the way, I 100% believe, but uh, I will still demand the proof, and uh, I, I will not take more than 1500 so Lee will not make any money from this. Just Those, those are my guarantees, and the, this is not through GoFundMe. This is going to be done just direct payments to me, and I'm going to manage the whole thing. And uh, so, I, and this was my idea. He didn't say, hey, can I come on and beg for money? I said – I feel so bad for you. I, I I I want to put it on the radio and ask people to see if they want to donate to this. And uh, no, now nobody has to feel obligated. You know, I'm not going to think you're a cheapskate if you don't donate to this. Uh, this is not your problem. So if if you as a listener said, you know, this is an interesting story, but I this is not really my problem. I don't want to donate anything. Don't feel bad. Then don't donate anything. But if 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 you think, hey, you know, this is a crappy thing, and uh, you know, I'd like to help a little bit. You want to donate a little money? Uh, you can. And uh, Lee will appreciate it. 
And uh, if if you want, I will put your name out on the radio that you did. If you want me not to say that you did, then I can put it. It was just anonymously. I will give you guys updates of what was donated, whether anonymously or uh, or if people want their info put out there, or even their screen name put out there, whatever they want to be referred as. And I'll collect it, and, and we'll see what we can get to uh, get those last uh, fourteen hundred dollars. Now that I've uh, put in a hundred here. And uh, hopefully, at least Lee can get that back for everything he went through. And I, I never like to see when someone who tries to do the right thing to prevent uh, someone from getting ripped off ends up uh, suffering for it. And he definitely did here. So uh, anyway, Lee, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and telling your story. Yeah, just a couple of things. Uh, so first of all, thanks, Todd, for the donation. Also, thanks for putting that out there. Um, you know, I do have the uh, attorney-client uh, retainer agreement that I can actually send you to show you the proof of the $1,500, which again, I don't think anybody would think that I just came up with that number out of my head. But, uh, you know, also I wanted to tell the listeners cause there was, you know, quite a few people that were interested in the story. I had quite a few people reach out to me privately. Um, you know, some that I had interacted with before and I was a little bit more open with, uh, and those that reached out to me that I wasn't completely open with. It wasn't that I didn't trust them. It was just, I, you know, I didn't really know them. And, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to get my story out here a lot sooner uh, originally, but just due with you know due to the the legal reasons, you know, still going through the courts trying to get this reversed. Uh, I didn't want to give Christopher Mitchell any other you know kind of fuel to use against me in the courtroom. Now that you know, once the restraining order was dismissed, at that point in time, I was just so tired of dealing with it. You know, I originally had this plan to put out a comedy skit where I called myself Christopher Mitchell. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to come out with a comedy skit of, you know, going around Vegas going, keep watching, guys. This is the this is the Bellagio. This is the Venetian. This is all the shit that I've showed you the past few videos. But, you know, once all this was said and done, you know, I was just exhausted with it. I was tired of it. Um, originally, you know, I, I came out with a video basically saying that I was going to release the story. My whole plan was I was actually going to go back. I still have the video where he doxed me, uh, where he, you know, made just, just a bunch of shit up. Um, said that I grew up in a trailer. I've never, not that, not that, not that growing up in a trailer is bad, but I've never lived in a trailer in my life. And, uh, you know, I've had people contact me saying, hey, Christopher Mitchell's said your name again in a video, said your name again in a video. And at this point in time, I'm just really tired of this guy. And, you know. Yeah, that's a good point, too, that, that we haven't really said yet, that Christopher Mitchell still puts it out there in his videos that you know, he'll mention. So some guy's accusing me of being a scammer, this guy who goes by Kevin Davis, whose real name is William Lee Bradbury in Las Vegas. He's the one who's been stalking me forever, and he, he calls himself Kevin Davis. Like, he'll put this in his current videos. He's been doing this over the last two months. So it's not like this is over in Chris's head. It's not like Christopher realized that he was wrong or he was incorrect. He's he's continuing to taunt him and put out this false information that Kevin Davis is Lee Bradbury and and that he's being stalked by Lee Bradbury. It's just simply not happening, and it's it's really obnoxious, and that's uh, another frustrating thing that's still going which, on. Which, by definition of the law, is is defamation. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, you know, with there not being any kind of financial harm to me, uh, any direct financial harm to me. Uh, I can't find, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of other attorneys. I've talked to my attorney and unfortunately just, it wouldn't be, uh, financially worth going after. Yeah. And uh, I, I understand that. With, and so, you know, again, I was going to put this all behind me and, you know, him saying my name 
whatever. It doesn't really bother me all that much. But again, you know, I, I was just going to let it go, let bygones be got bygones. But with him still bringing up my name, uh, you know, if me putting out my story wants to light a fire up under his ass and he wants to go back to court or whatever, like, a, I don't want to. But if he goes back to court and says, well, you know, he put out a story, blah, 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 I'd be like, look, like, for uh, two months, I didn't say shit. And... One can only take so much. Yeah, he's he's bringing it out there. He's the one who is. In fact, this is actually a defense uh, to, to defamation. If uh, the person who claims they're being defamed is, continues to to bring the story back out there, whatever it's about, and and they're voluntarily uh, keeping the story going, then that that weakens any defamation case. So, um, so yeah, definitely him him putting that out there first, saying that you're the one who's harassing him and stalking him and still putting that out there even after this no contact thing, which he can say that I guess it's not technically violating no contact because he's not actually contacting you, but it, he's not keeping within the spirit of it by putting this false information about you. So you're you're coming on here to rebut that, and that's fine, and this is your right to free speech, and, and everything you've said, uh, it seems to be an accurate uh, portrayal of what occurred. And uh, so, so that's fine. And you're not you're not stalking him. We're not contacting him here. And I, just like you, I've never made any contact with him. I've never had any kind of direct contact with Christopher in any way. There's discussion about him on my forum, but the, I I have never made contact with him. I have never seen him. I've never been to his house. I've never uh, sent anyone to do like I I have no interest in any of that. I have no interest in any contact with him, or uh, or or never to see him. Uh, now, if he wants to come on this show and rebut what you've had to say, then he's welcome to come on, just as everybody is welcome to come on this show if there's anything said about them that isn't true. I don't just protect, I don't just present one side, even if I like one side better personally, which I do here, but uh, I, I would not refuse him coming on here if he wanted to come on and give his side. I would not, this would not be a softball interview. I would ask him some tough questions about a lot of things, so that's why he'd never come on. But if he wants to, the invitation's open. If he'd like to rebut any of this or show proof that what he's saying is correct, but he never will because it's not correct and he knows it. So anyway, Lee, uh, thanks for coming on here. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, anybody who wants to donate, please uh, text me, 775-372-8355. That's 775-372-8355, which is the main phone number to the show. Uh, please text that number if you wish to donate, or you can email dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. That's all lowercase, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Or you can PM me on the forum, dan space druff on the, on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. Or you can even use the contact form on Poker Fraud Alert. That will go to me as well. And, and then you can arrange a donation. I promise the money will be used exactly as intended and that uh, all due diligence will be done here. I'm sure you guys can trust that I'll handle that here and that uh, the money will be used as it's supposed to be. So uh, thank you for coming on, one, Lee. And I hope One last thing. Yeah. One last thing. I've been a part of this forum for a very, very long time, and i got to say, Todd, if there's people out there that can donate to One Step's things that he has going on. <laughs> I will say, no, no offense to One Step, but I will say this is a better cause than donating to One Step uh, getting sucked off in stairwells in Vegas. If you gotta, if you got to choose one, i got to say this is probably the better cause. Shout out to One Step, though. Yes. But if you still have money left over, then you can donate to, to One Step's trips. Okay. All right. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, Lee. Goodbye. What a story that was. I know we guys, we took a long time discussing it, but it was a long thing, and I, I kind of always wanted you guys to know what happened, and it was very, very frustrating. Can you imagine, 
I mean, you guys have seen this on TV and in the movies where the court's just totally screwing somebody and there's these miscarriages of justice and you just feel so bad for the main character and then you go, well, okay, at least it's just a movie. At least I don't have to feel bad for this person in real life. This isn't a movie. This really happened. Imagine if this was you. You just tried to warn an old man he's getting scammed and this happens to you. What a freaking joke. I, I hate abuses of the court system. I hate frivolous lawsuits. I especially hate them now. But I've always hated them. Even when it's not against me. And I think people who utilize the court system to bully people with frivolous lawsuits are scum. And they deserve harsh uh, legal consequences for doing so. I, I would love to see an increase in legal consequences for people who... Uh, Utilize the court system. That's actually what the anti-slap system's for. But I, th- I think it should go further. I mean, this is just awful. What uh, what happened here? And I've, I've seen so many different stories over time of things that are being. I've even seen restraining orders before this being abused. None involving me. I've seen ones that are, that uh, involve people I knew, and I they gave me all the facts. And boy, boy, these were frivolous and vengeful, and it just really. Uh, and and I, I knew of another one, nothing having to do with anyone in poker, but I knew of another one that was granted for horrible reasons by uh, a judge who just wasn't thinking. That one wasn't an emotional thing, that the judge was just stupid. But, yeah, it's it's frustrating to see this type of thing happen. That's why I wanted to put this out here to at least cut down the guy's costs. Because he's just a working guy, you know, he's not some rich poker pro or anything who just... It's not like he's betting $1,500 in every pot and it's nothing to him, you know, this is uh, this is... Something that that hurt him. Okay, we're going to move on. Very long first topic. We're going to move on, and believe it or not, we're going to we're going to have a, a second topic. We have a second topic that has an interview, but uh, not right now. Probably about an hour from now. Actually, fifty minutes away at two a.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, we're going to move on and talk about other things. The, the next interview will be about something totally different about the roving Cubans who have been cheating people allegedly in live PLO games. Anyway, let's talk about Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu and their heads-up match and the side betting and all that good stuff with it. So we've talked about that on the show before, about this heads-up grudge match that they're constantly going back and forth to Twitter and debating about and insulting each other about. And, you know, for a while they seem civil, and for a while they're not civil. And, you know, these two clearly hate each other. Negreanu and Polk, and that's not going to change. Like the, at the end of this match, they're not going to go. Oh, you know what? You know what, Doug? You're an okay guy. It's, it's not going to be like that. They're they're, they're going to hate each other after this. This is not going to change that, no matter who wins or the way this goes. But I'm not even sure the reason they're doing it. I know why Doug is doing. It. He just kind of enjoys the attention from this, and he thinks he's the better player, and that at least in heads up, no limit, which he probably is. And he, he wants Daniel's money, and he wants Daniel to be humiliated and losing money to him, like. Yeah, imagine you can beat someone in poker where you have the edge in that form of poker and that someone is someone you dislike. So that's like win-win-win for him, provided he actually wins the match. Negreanu, I'm not sure why he's doing it, but nevertheless, he's doing it. Anyway, this is what Negreanu announced on October 28th. He said, it's soon, so I figured I would get everyone straight on the start date for the match. It will start November 4th. It will be on Poker Go. It will. They will be showing the actual chips and cards which I don't know what that means. Uh, uh, but it's the first 200 hands will be shown where you can see the whole cards. He says, then I imagine roughly every other day 
w, uh, on WSOP.com with various streams available. So he's saying that you can watch on Poker Go. They're going to show the betting and the whole cards. Remember, they're going to be playing on WSOP.com. They're not going to be playing live. Actually, I'm not sure about that. Maybe he means they're going to play the first 200 hands live. I don't know. Or maybe they're just going to be representing it live on Poker Go. I'm a little confused by that. But on Poker Go, you can see uh, some of it, the first 200 hands. And then uh, after that, you can see it on WSOP.com. Still got to get clarification on that. It's kind of a weird tweet. I didn't really think critically about it until just now as I'm reading it out loud. I go, wait a minute, that doesn't totally make sense. On October 28th, he also tweeted regarding side bets, I have no bets on the match yet. Zero. Looking to bet 100K to win 500K. Get get at me if interested in laying 5 to 1. So that is, uh, you can side bet directly with Negranu, but you got to give him 5 to 1 odds. So for every $1 you bet that uh, he will win $5 from you. So that is, you'll win one for every five he wins. So if you if you send him $1,000, if uh, Doug wins, he'll send you back your 1000 plus 200 and then if he wins, he just keeps it. So is 5 to 1 the real odds? Well, there are no real odds, but at the moment, that's not really the market rate. It's above market rate. You can get a better... Uh, you can get better odds than that by betting with other people. So I wouldn't suggest you bet with Negreanu. I'm not even sure what minimum he's taking. I don't know if he wants someone to bet the entire 100K or if he'll just take a portion of that. But I, I assume he's not going to be taking small bets from you for like 100 bucks. But anyway, those aren't good odds. So you shouldn't bother with that anyway. What I've seen, because they have this on poker shares, and I've also seen people privately offering odds. I've seen odds kind of uh, four to four and a half to one is what I've been seeing, not 5-1. to one. The only one I've seen asking for 5-1 to one is Negranu. So I was thinking about this. And, and, and by the way, Mike Matisau, who is friends with Daniel, they, they had an interesting uh, situation with their friendship, just as a little side story. Mike Matisau is a very uh, vocal Trump supporter, and Daniel Negranu is a very vocal Trump hater. And this actually affected the friendship, and they actually stopped being friends for a while because of politics. And it was more on Daniel's side, where Daniel was just so furious at Mike for supporting Trump and vocally supporting Trump that uh, Daniel got mad at him and wasn't friends with him for a while. But apparently they've made up in the last year or so, maybe year, year and a half, so they're friends again. And I, I heard this from Mike directly. This is one of the things Mike told me a while ago. So they're friends again, and Mike believes in him, and Mike Matisau is, is putting like 20 k on this or something. He claims it's half his bankroll. Who knows if that's true? I'm talking about Mike. Not it's not half a Daniel's bankroll. But uh, Mike uh, is betting like like 20k here on da- not with Daniel, but on Daniel, and he's insisting that he thinks uh, Daniel has much better odds than that to win. I don't know what odds Mike is getting, but probably something around four to one. Others have bet on. Daniel, like Phil Helmuth, bet on Daniel. Basically, Daniel's friends are betting on Daniel. There's others, too. There's a lot of people taking action back and forth on this through Twitter. But uh, the, the people who, the old school poker pros who are friends with Daniel believe in him and are betting, doing side bets on Daniel. I don't know who's taking the other side, but they're doing side bets uh, that Daniel's going to win the match. So I was thinking about this. I thought, number one, what are the true odds here? And number two... Do I want to bet on it? And if so, which side? So I thought about it, and I decided, you know, four to one 
or around 4 to 1. Those are pretty long odds if you think about it. Now, if Daniel were a big fish, then yeah, of course, 4 to 1 uh, wouldn't be a very good deal because uh, Doug is such a good heads-up player. Some people say he's the best uh, heads-up, no-limit player in the world. Maybe he's not anymore because he hasn't played much in the last two years. He might be rusty. I know he's been practicing, but uh, maybe he's not quite as good as he was at his peak. But obviously a very tough player at heads-up, no-limit. And Daniel is more of a limit player. Daniel is a mixed game player. He's more of a limit player. He came up playing limit like I did. He did before I did, but uh, you know he was playing poker professionally many years before I even played a single hand. But uh, Daniel is a much better limit player than no limit player. And he admits this. At the same time, Doug admits that Daniel is a much better mixed game and limit player than he is. So this match is not going to have any mixed games or limit games. This is only going to be no limit hold'em heads up, which is Doug's specialty and which is definitely not Daniel's specialty. With that said, something Daniel has been good at has been keeping up with the times. Daniel is not a guy who was killing it back in the day and now sucks compared to the modern players. I mean, you saw him in this last World Series, which this is not the the same as uh, heads up no limit, but Daniel played a lot on WSP.com when they had the online World Series, and he cashed more than anybody. And he had some very deep runs. And every year at the live World Series, when they have it in a normal year, Daniel's very competitive. He makes final tables. Uh, even when he doesn't win a bracelet, he finishes second or third. Like he, he just uh, And yeah, he enters a lot of uh, high buy-in events where if he doesn't cash, it's, it's a lot of variance to it. So sometimes he won't have a profitable series. But, but boy, you see so many times he's running deep and, and so many times he's cashing. And you look at it and say, okay, this is not a guy who was left behind by time. This is not someone still playing a 1995 style in 2020 and and didn't adjust. This is someone who definitely has a very, very good feel for the game that is timeless and has been adjusting and has continued to do well and has continued to be competitive, even in No Limit Hold'em, which, again, is different than heads-up No Limit Hold'em. But still, in, in at least the No Limit Hold'em tournament format, Daniel has shown to be very competitive in modern times. And he has just a very good feel for poker. Very, very good card sense. I've seen it in person. I've played with him at the World Series of Poker. Now, yes, I'm talking more about limit games where I've seen him play where he's... That's definitely his strength. He's definitely better at limit games. But uh, he's not one of these old school guys who couldn't compare to the pros today. So... Knowing that and knowing that he has time to study and and train with people who are better heads-up, no-limit players than he is, and knowing that he is going to prepare just like Doug will, and knowing that this is not – you're not treating – you're not teaching someone who is new to poker how to play Doug Polk. You're not just picking some smart businessman who goes, you know, I bet I can make this guy good at poker if if given enough time, if given a few months to train him, and you try to train him and then drop him with Doug Polk. I – that person would have a very hard time because unless you have the experience, unless you know that person actually has raw poker talent, uh, they'd probably still be a fish, even with all the training. Even a very smart person with all the training, they just wouldn't they just wouldn't have it. But Daniel has stood the test of time. And I figured, okay, I think it's very hard to believe he's a four-to-one dog here, I thought to myself. It should, I, I didn't think he was a favorite. I didn't think he was 50-50 to win. Because this is Doug Polk's game, and Doug Polk has proven 
his uh, not just competency but dominance in the heads up no limit format. But at the same time, four to one are pretty long odds, especially because there's a lot of variance to the game. It's not just skill; there's also luck. So it's not just a matter of uh, how much better is Polk than Negranu in heads up no limit. It's how much better is Polk over Negranu to where it can overcome if Negranu gets better luck. And that's important, too. I'm sure you've played players before. And forget heads up. Maybe you haven't played much heads up or any heads up. But I'm sure you've played players before in poker who are much worse than you. And you think to yourself, even if my luck is a below average against this guy, I'm going to beat him if he stays long enough because he's so bad. I don't even need average luck to beat this person. I, I don't need good luck. I don't need average luck. Even below average luck. As long as they don't run horrible, I'm going to beat this guy. I have been in games before where everybody sucks. Like, every single player is just really bad. And there's no good players in the game. And I say to myself, unless I run awful, I'm going to win in this game. It's possible I'll lose. possible I'll be the unluckiest guy at the table. But even if I have, like, kind of bad luck but not really bad, I'm still going to win here because everyone sucks so badly. And you probably have been in games like that, too. Now, this doesn't apply to Daniel or Doug here. Neither of them is anywhere near a fish. But the point I'm making is that there's a certain amount that you can have an edge over someone that can really overcome the luck factor to a large degree. But if the edge isn't super large, if there's an edge but it's not gigantic, then luck can play a big part in... uh, 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 you know, in, in, over time, that isn't a super long time. Now you say, well, how long are they playing? Well, they're playing. They're going to play twenty five thousand hands. One could quit after twelve thousand five hundred hands if they're getting clobbered. But uh, you know, the, whoever's losing can cry uncle at twelve thousand five hundred. But assuming they play to the end, twenty five thousand hands is a lot of hands. And you think, okay, that, that's going to smooth variance over time. But there is still luck there, because there's no limit hold'em. No limit hold'em, there can be very large pots, and they're going to be playing fairly deep, so there can be very large pots that even if uh, Daniel's making the wrong move, as long as it's not horribly wrong, uh, these could be big swings in the match. And a few big pots like that going the other way could give Daniel a big edge overall in uh, finishing ahead in the match. Now, if Daniel was a big fish, this wouldn't matter, but he's not. So that was my thinking, is that to be getting four to one or better on Daniel looks pretty good to me. I would never take him at even money. I would never even take him at two to one. But four to one, that looked like a good value to me. So I put out that I'm going to take uh, 4.25 to one. Reason was because I saw bets being placed at four to one. I saw bets being placed at four and a half to one. I saw... Daniel himself wanted 5 to 1, which is kind of laughable. So I said, okay, I'm going to offer 4.25 to 1. And the advantage here is that I'm a known person in poker who's not going to stiff anybody. You know if you bet with me, you're going to get paid. You know I'm not going to just run off on you. So uh, people can feel good about betting with me, even if they don't really know me very well. And I'm offering what looks like a market rate. Maybe you can do a little bit better with 4 to 1, but maybe that person's going to possibly no pay you, which we know I'm not going to do. So I said, okay, I'll put it out there. If anyone wants to take it, they can take it. If they don't, they don't. So I actually got two people saying they wanted to bet with me on Twitter. 
Uh, one of them, who I'm not going to name, is a uh, – well, actually, I'm not going to name either. But one of them was kind of – he's a poker player but not very well known. And the other one is a WSFP bracelet winner. The bracelet winner, uh, we were in discussions to bet, and then he kind of just stopped answering me. So I assume he's not interested anymore, which which is fine. Uh, the other guy who wasn't that well known, but seems to have been around a while in poker, he's an LA player. Uh, he is betting with me and has uh, offered to post. So that bet is is happening. In fact, he claims he sent the money. I haven't checked if it actually has been received, but uh, he claims he sent me the money. And uh, I don't think the guy's going to stiff me. I'm taking some precautions. It's uh, I'll tell you how much it is. Um, he sent uh, I think twenty one twenty five. So he sent he's sending me the money first and trusting me not to stiff him, no, knowing that I have the reputation I do, and especially for two K. Like you, you guys think I would trash my reputation for my twenty year reputation for two K to stiff someone? Obviously not. So uh, he he sent me a little more than two K. So this way he wins uh, five hundred, and it's at four point twenty five to one odds. So I'm getting plus four twenty five on Daniel here, and that bet is booked. We've agreed to it. He sent he says he sent me the money. I haven't actually checked it's in the bank, but I assume it's there. And uh, that that has been agreed to, so that I'm committed to that, and he's committed to that. We neither of us can back out at this point, no matter what. Uh, now I wasn't exposed that much because remember it's four point twenty five to one, so the most I can lose here is five hundred. Even if Doug clobbers Daniel and just destroys him, I'm out five hundred dollars. If Daniel wins, I get to keep the twenty one twenty five that was sent to me. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll take more action because I'm only. Exposed $500. Big deal. So I put out that I'm willing to take more action. And then Seriously Serious. Remember, Seriously Serious is Doug's friend. And also has worked with Doug. And uh, did you know, he's the one producing all of Doug's videos. So Seriously Serious said that he has uh, 1% of Doug's action. And he put that publicly. I'm not exposing any secrets here. And then Seriously Serious said that... Uh, he doesn't advise I place any further bets because there's some things that he knows that would indicate to him that 4 to 1 or 4.25 to 1 on Daniel is a bad value. Uh-oh. Now, credit to Seriously Serious for not taking advantage of the situation and just saying, yeah, okay, Druff, I'll take your action because I would have totally given him action. I don't know how much, but I would have I would have done a bet with Seriously Serious, and I would assume, yeah, he believes in Doug because Doug's his friend. And even if Seriously Serious had his own opinions of why uh, Doug is better value than that, um, you know, that none of this is concrete. None of, there's no proof to this. These are these are Seriously Serious' opinions, and obviously he's biased somewhat. So I would not be mad at him if he did not warn me that he knows certain things that makes him believe that my my side is bad. So I would place the bet with him, and even if I found out that he had information that he didn't mention to me of, of why he thought his side was good, I wouldn't blame him because um, it, the only way I'd blame anybody if there was some like if there was something nefarious going on where someone's throwing the match, then I would be mad if he knew about this in advance. But uh, which I doubt is happening. I'm just about sure that wouldn't be happening. So uh, something short of that, if he has reasons to believe that. Doug is more of a favorite than the odds are saying, then great. Then he should he should bet it. <laughs> he should bet it on uh, Doug's side. There's people who are taking action, and I was one offering the action, so he could have easily done that with me. But instead, he was 
nice enough to say, I'll tell you privately the things I've seen and the things I know, and then you can decide if you still want to bet further. So I messaged him privately and said, okay, what things do you know? And then he told me some things. Now, this is privately, so I, I can't mention anything that was told to me. None of this was like a gotcha. None of this was like shocking stuff. Like, I, even if I could read this, I don't even think I'd be playing. I don't, I don't think any of that information is even worth that. But he made some good points. Okay, like when I read that, like, oh, no, I may have just thrown $500 away. <laughs> betting with that other guy. If I did, I did. You know, just some things that he told me. But these are basically judgments, like in his opinion, from things he's uh, witnessed about it. And, and that he just thinks that Doug is a bigger favor that people are giving credit for. I do acknowledge that Doug is his friend and also his employer. And that, uh, of course, he has reason to back Doug on this. But uh, it gave me pause. And I said, hmm. Yeah, this isn't as good as I thought it was. Okay, I think I'm just going to kind of stick to this. And someone on Poker Fraud Alert said they wanted to bet with me and they really wanted to just get a sweat. The bet, bet won't be that big. So I told that person, okay, fine, whatever. You know, if it's something not very doesn't leave me very exposed further than this, then uh, I'll, I'll just give it to you for fun, even though I don't really like my side that much anymore. Uh, I don't think it's dead money. Like, remember, it, it's 4.25 to 1. So when you place a plus 425 bet, meaning 4.25 to 1, you're not betting based upon the belief that you're a favorite to win. If you are, you're getting tremendous value and you should be putting big money on it. Because if you if you think you're a favorite to win on a plus 425, uh, that is an incredible bet. And I did not think that. So I was betting this, believing I was an underdog to win it. Now I think I'm a bigger underdog, but I, I don't think that I'm uh, drawing dead. I just think, you know, maybe I have less than a 1 in 4.25 chance to win, which means I have poor value, but I don't think it's, like, horrible value. I just think maybe my bet is, maybe it's negative expectation at this point. But, like, I could go back and bet the other side if I, if I felt this strongly. I could go back and bet the reverse, and, yeah, it would negate somewhat what I just uh, did there. But, um, in fact, I, I could even lay it back off because I'm not paying any VIG. You know, this is just, we're just betting directly. This is not like a casino where you're... Uh, You've got to pay a, a rake on your bet to the casino, so you can't. You could bet both sides and you still lose. Here, I could bet the identical thing on the other side. I could say, "Hey, who wants to take uh, Daniel at four point twenty-five to one for the same amount of money?" And then I'd be breaking even no matter what. But I, I'm just going to let it ride. So I'm not. Uh, so I could easily erase this if I wanted to. But you know, I already did it. I don't feel like negating it. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna leave it. And I'll root for Daniel. Otherwise, I, I I wouldn't be really rooting for anybody. I have no relationship with Doug. I've never even talked to Doug. We've had no interaction. I don't like him or dislike him. And Daniel, I I have interacted with him. And I, I think personally he doesn't care for me that much anymore. He once liked me, but we were never friends. He once seemed to like me mainly because I bash Annie Duke and he hates Annie Duke. But uh, we, we always got along. And then, you know, I, I think there was some things he didn't like that I had to say that uh, soured him on me. He doesn't hate me. Like he, He's blocked a lot of people on Twitter that he doesn't like, and I'm not blocked. So that says a lot. And I'm not one of these people who like follows him around and bashes him. Like I, In fact, I defend him sometimes. So I, I feel I'm fair about Daniel. I'm not a Daniel fanboy. I'll never be a friend of his. I'm never going to be one who's always defending him. But I'm not 
someone who's looking to bash him. So, like, I'm pretty neutral on Daniel, too. Like, I, I see his good and bad sides. I see the good things about him and bad things about him. I see he's, he does some stupid things and makes some mistakes, but I also don't believe, like, like he's a bad guy. I just think he does and says some stupid things sometimes. So I really wasn't going to be rooting for anyone. I, I was really just going to be watching it just out of interest of like, oh, this is interesting. The two big-name players who hate each other are playing heads up. Okay, that's interesting. Like that, That's the way I was going to be approaching it. I wasn't going to be rooting, yay, Doug, yay, Daniel, neither one. But now I have to say yay, Daniel, because I have money on the line. <laughs> it's only business at this point. Uh, they have agreed to allow charts, which I think is a big mistake. When I say big mistake, I mean for the fans. I think it's stupid to have a grudge match. Remember the whole chart thing? Remember I was reading the whole thing and people were making fun of Doug about it? This is one of, like, one of the few exchanges where where Doug got the worst of it on social media, where people watching the whole thing back and forth were chiding Doug and telling Doug he was being an idiot and telling Doug that he was being petty and telling Doug that he was wrong making fun of him that as the favorite that he wants to use charts. Like, why the hell do you need charts, Doug? I thought you were the better player. Which were, like, all reasonable points. And the charts he's talking about, he's not talking about having, like, a little paper chart in front of him while he plays. He means, like, a, a, a chart that you can have on your computer, which has, like, a, a big list of different uh, actions you can take pre-flop based upon stack sizes and based upon your hand and based upon what the opponent does. It really is almost like it's not quite like it, but it already starts to approach having a bot play for you pre-flop. So they've, they actually have agreed to allow pre-flop charts and allow them to uh, use notes about each other, including notes that would have been pre-produced. So you, not just about taking notes as, uh, as they play each other, but actually uh, notes that you have taken on the player based upon play you've seen of theirs prior to the match. So you're allowed to bring notes on anything you want, and you're allowed to use preflop charts, including charts that would be so large that to print them would take up five football fields. Like you can use any kind of chart for preflop action. You just a postflop cannot use anything like that. So I think that's stupid. And Doug has wanted the charts and was criticized for that. Daniel at first said, oh, I'm open to charts. Then he's like, no, I don't want charts. Then Doug got mad and was raising objection to that saying, hey, I thought you were open to it. Well, I, I said, yeah, well, he was open, and he decided he's not open anymore. He, open doesn't mean I agree to it. Open means I'm open to like thinking about allowing it. But Daniel was definitely in his rights to say, no, I don't want charts. And then somehow Daniel agreed to the charts, and now they've agreed, and the charts are going to happen for the preflop. I think it's horrible for the fans, because we're watching because it's supposed to be like a grudge match between two guys who have hated each other for years and gone after each other for years. And now you get to see them play heads-up poker for a lot of money. That's interesting. It becomes less interesting when they're using some form of assistance for their play. So now pre-flop, it becomes not a battle of Doug and Daniel. It's a battle of Doug's charts versus Daniel's charts. Doug's notes versus Daniel's notes. And that's stupid. We shouldn't care about who can compile the better charts or who can compile the better notes. It should be sit these two at a table and see who can beat the other with only what's in their brains. That's that's the way it should happen. There should not be any charts. If they want to allow notes during the match that you, you can start noting what you see of your opponent doing, that's fine. But that should be it. There should be nothing beyond noting things that 
happen during that match. There should not be any notes allowed based upon things you've seen about them in, in, in matches other than this one, nor there should be any charts. The charts are really stupid because that's, uh, that really is taking the pre-flop game out of the equation. It becomes uh, a battle of charts pre-flop. It's crazy. Like, why should this be allowed? If they agree to it, nobody's cheating, of course. If they agree, they agree. But it's, it's a dumb thing to agree to. They shouldn't have it. That's not the, the whole point of this is that they're having a grudge match and we're going to watch who can beat the other heads up. Why, sh- why should charts be involved here? That changes everything. And I brought this up on Twitter and I had people mocking me for it. Some people agreed with me, but some people are saying, oh, well, you realize the game is not just pre-flop. You, you realize that post-flop decisions are bigger and heads up no limit than pre-flop. You realize that, right? And I go, yeah, I realize it, but why take out the pre-flop? I don't care if it's not as big as the post-flop. I don't care if they can't use the charge for post-flop. They shouldn't have it for pre-flop either. It's just the whole, it, it really perverts the whole concept of a heads up grudge match for the public to be interested in. It's not like they're they're playing this away from everybody and we just happen to want to see. They're doing this for the fans. They're doing this for the public. And when I say the fans, I don't mean they're doing it for everybody. I mean that they are doing this uh, knowing that the reason that uh, they're doing it is there's interest in it. So, yes, each may gain from it publicity-wise, and that's fine. But this is being done as like a spectator sport. This isn't, hey, we're going to play heads up and if people happen to want to see, great. This is, we're playing heads up as an event. We want everybody to come show up and see. Oh, and by the way, we have charts now. (laughs) That's not as much of an event anymore. Think about a more extreme version of this. What if just Daniel could bring his own heads up bot that he could produce or have have people working for him produce, and Doug could do the same. He could bring his own bot for heads up no limit, and the bots just play each other. Would you care whose bot won? And let's say Daniel's bot beat Doug's bot. Would you say, oh, well, that proves Daniel's a better player? You'd say, no, it means that Daniel had a better programmer. (laughs) That's all it would mean. It, it, It would say nothing about Daniel's skill. It would say nothing about Doug's skill. Now, they're not using bots, and they're only doing the preflop charts and not postflop charts. So I understand there's a big difference, but still, it's already going that direction. There should not be any assistance tools used Period, for this type of match. Otherwise, it takes away from what this it takes away from what this whole match is supposed to be. So I'm very disappointed to hear this. Not not even about my bet. I'm just talking about in general as a as an observer of this match, as someone who's going to be watching this kind of like as a fan of poker. This is disappointing to see. I really wanted to see these two guys just go at it with whatever they had in their head, and it's too bad that they didn't agree to that. I was very much on Daniel's side when he said he doesn't want to do this. And I I told you guys on a previous show that's how I felt. And the people mocking Doug for pushing these charts so hard, these people were right. Somehow uh, Daniel's agreed to it, so it's it's going forward. So to answer any question you may have about am I taking bets on this, the answer is pretty much no. So don't come to me and say, hey, I want to bet on Doug. No, I told that one guy on the forum that because – he wanted action so badly that I'll take some small amount of action. Not not as much as the original bet that that other guy placed with me, but like for that guy's sake, as a longtime forum user, I said I'll do it just for his fun, but that's it. I, I don't want to be too exposed in this. So I, I kind of just want to watch this as a fun thing, and once I have too much money on it, it'll be stressful. 
<laughs> Especially if I think my money isn't in good. But even if it is, like I don't want this to be stressful. I don't want to be stressing over how Daniel's doing every day. I want to be able to watch this and have fun. And if I don't have that much money on it, I can. If I have too much money, I can't. Okay. Moving along, we're going to talk about Sam Grizzle. And then I think after Sam Grizzle, we'll, we'll do our interview. Hopefully the guy going to be calling is awake because he's actually asleep and he said he'll set his alarm to wake up in time. He's on the East Coast. He's actually going to wake up at 5 a.m. to do this interview. So Sam Grizzle is a figure, or shall I say was a figure, in Las Vegas poker for decades. He wasn't always the nicest guy. He wasn't always the classiest guy. He wasn't always the most pleasant guy. But he was a character. He was someone that was never boring. He was someone who uh, could be entertaining. He was someone who was memorable. Uh, He was a good poker player, but not a great poker player. He was someone who had a lot of trouble with bankroll management. He seemed to not have much money uh, in recent years. Sam Grizzle has passed away. And he was only uh, 60 years old. And, you know, it's always unfortunate when somebody in poker passes away, especially a a known name in poker. But uh, also, a lot of times people in poker don't make it very long because they don't always have the healthiest lifestyles. And I, I don't know that much about Sam Grizzle's lifestyle, but... I would guess it probably wasn't the healthiest. He wasn't one of the poker players I thought was living a, a conventional life that uh, would lead to a long life expectancy. So anyway, uh, rumors started going around because of uh, a Mike Mattisau tweet. And on October 19th, Mike tweeted, I just got a text that Sam Grizzle had a massive brain hemorrhage last night and is in critical condition at the hospital here in Vegas. No matter your feelings on Sam, I ask everyone to pray for him as he's been a huge part of poker history over the years. Thank you all. Pray for Sam. So Sam had not passed away yet. He uh, w- he had a massive brain hemorrhage, which of course isn't very good. And uh, they, he was in critical condition. So... There was some uh, question whether he had actually died yet. People were speculating. Uh, It it seemed that this was likely that at the very least he was in pretty bad shape. But it wasn't known for sure. I'm sorry, he wasn't 60. He was 67. I I got that wrong. So he was 67. But still, you know, that's, that's much below the life expectancy of somebody in today's day and age. Even males who don't live as long as females. 67. I hope I live longer than 67. So anyway, uh, it was then announced that Sam Grizzle did pass away. And uh, even his daughter, I didn't even know he had a daughter, but his daughter confirmed this in a social media post. And uh, that brought out a lot of different stories about Sam Grizzle. And a lot of people were sharing things that they had experienced with him. Uh, I'll tell you two stories I had of Sam Grizzles. Well, actually, before I get to my stories, I'll tell you one of the best-known stories about Sam Grizzle, and that is with Phil Helmuth, that they got into an argument 
at the table. Uh, this is in the 2000s, but uh, they got into an argument at the table, and, and apparently, according to Phil, the argument had to do with Phil being asked to save his seat while he went to dinner. So Sam went to dinner and said to Phil, can you hold my seat for me? And stupidly, Phil said yes. Phil should have said, you know, can you just do it through the floor or whatever? But somehow uh, Phil said, yeah, I'll make sure your seat gets saved. Well, 90 minutes passed and Sam didn't come back. So uh, they were taking Rake out of Sam's stack. And and for whatever reason, Phil decided that uh, Sam was better off not having the Rake taken from his stack and uh, and told the floor to pick him up that it's been 90 minutes. Now, maybe that isn't true. Maybe Phil's just uh, telling people – and this this is probably 20 years ago or something. It was a long time ago. But you know, Phil may have just been uh, telling the story that way. Maybe Phil wanted a fish to get in the game and Sam's seat was hogging up a, a space with him not there. So Phil's like, you know what? Sam's not coming back. He may not come back for hours. So F it, just, just take him, just pick him up, and I'll, I'll tell him I didn't want to see him wasting rake. It may have been something like that. But anyway, uh, what happened was that Sam came back and saw that his seat was gone and was really furious about this and said to Phil, what the hell? You said you're saving my seat. And, and Phil said, look, you know, I'm trying to save you the rake. And Sam's like, I don't care about the fucking rake. I wanted my seat saved, and you didn't, you didn't do it. So anyway, it escalated, escalated. And Sam asked Phil to step outside and, and actually fight him. And Phil agreed. They actually both went outside to the parking lot to have a fist fight. Now, Phil Helmuth, I don't know if you've noticed this or if you've seen him in person or if you can even see this on TV. He's very tall. He's like six foot six or something. Because when I stand next to Phil Helmuth, he is uh, taller than me by at least a few inches. So, uh, you know, probably two to three inches taller than me, Phil Helmuth. So yeah, he's a pretty big guy. And Sam is is not that big. But uh, nevertheless, Phil Helmuth uh, admits that he had never had a fight before. He'd never been in a fist fight in his life. <laughs> so this is going to be Phil Helmuth's first fist fight. He didn't even have one in school, which is surprising because growing up in the time that Phil grew up and in the time I grew up too, I, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than Phil. But you know, if you grew up in the 70s, there were plenty of fist fights in school. It was hard to grow up in the 70s or 80s and not have at least one fist fight in school. I had some. Nowadays, a lot of kids grow up without ever getting in a fist fight. Things have changed. But uh, back in those days, you usually get at least a few fights, but apparently Phil Helmuth avoided the fights over the years, and this is going to be his first fist fight. Well, he fought like it was his first fist fight, and despite being a lot bigger than Sam Grizzle, Sam knocked him out in one punch, and Phil went down for the count. (laughs) Very, very fast fight there between Sam and Phil. I think this is about 20 years ago. It was described as, quote, before the poker boom, which began in 2003. I remember I heard about this in, like, 2003 or four or something that Sam had knocked out Phil Helmuth a few years before that. <laughs> Do you find there wasn't video of that fight? Wouldn't it be great if there was actual video of the fight? Where, like, if this happened today, there totally would be. Someone would have brought a cell phone out there. But, you know, this is back before smartphones. And we, we didn't have something like that. So that would, that would have been great to see just Sam throw one punch and Phil Helmuth goes down. Now, Sam became a hero for this years later because of Phil's behavior at the tables. 
where he's kind of a villain. And even to, to some people, Phil Helmuth is kind of a lovable villain, but nevertheless, uh, people always wondered, like, is anyone ever going to kick Phil's ass over the way he behaves at the table? And, well, it wasn't quite over the way he behaved at the table, but still, someone did kick Phil's ass one time, and it was Sam Grizzle. So some people knew F- Sam Grizzle as the guy who beat up Phil Helmuth one time, and uh, some people admired him for that. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's a number of other stories with, with Sam. Uh there was one where Shannon Shore, who was one of those online players who also had some success live, Shannon Shore uh, three-bet Sam Grizzle three hands in a row, and Grizzle said, what the hell is this, Revenge of the Nerds? <laughs> so uh, then the Shannon Shore himself had a story. He said... Uh, was down the stretch of the 2011 $2,500 Six Max Limit Hold'em event. Shortly before commenting through a before commenting through a pot, a guy bets flop. I have close decision with Sam still to act. Uh, watch as car as Sam moves cards towards the muck out of turn. I call Sam raises. All time great comic, all time great angler. Good game, Sam. So, yeah, Sam was known for things like that. If you don't quite understand the story which you might not if you don't know this poker terminology. And I know we have people who listen to the show who don't. Uh, basically, Shannon had to act first. And Shannon Shore is a guy, by the way, for those, some of these that don't know. But Shannon Shore, he had to act before Sam. So a guy bets the flop on the pot, and this is limit hold'em. So there's no bet sizing involved. Just you call, raise, or fold. And Shannon almost folds, but he looks at Sam to see if he can get any tell over what Sam's going to do behind him. And Sam starts to slide his cards like he's going to fold. So Shannon's thinking, okay, well, um, if I know Sam's not going to raise, if it looks like he's going to fold even just for one bet, then, uh, yeah, I feel safe to call here. If, if it, you know, it looks like Sam is just can't wait to fold and get his hand over with. So, 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 so Shannon calls, and then Sam raises him. So Sam was was putting on an act. Sam was pretending like he was uh, moving his cards towards folding to get to get a call behind him, and then raised. So, so uh, Shannon wasn't bitter about this, at least not now in 2020. After uh, Sam passed away, he's like, "Yeah, all time great comic, all time great angler." Uh, Len Ashby said, told the story. He said, heard Sam Grizzle passed playing 2550 PLO game at Rio. Pot like $1,200. It was checked to the river. Board was ace, king, three, queen, jack. This is PLO, not hold'em. With you know, four cards, of course. Uh, Sam walked up to the table. I turned over 10, 3, 6, 8 and said, I got the three, which is a, which is a horrible hand. I mean, how could in a three-way hand in PLO... 10-3-6-8 win on an ace-king, three-queen-jack board. All he's really got is a pair of threes. So he says, I got the three. Two players mucked. Sam looked at me and said, and I'm on the fucking rail. Got a mock- mocking all three players in this hand that they got to the river in this 2550 PLO game. And Sam's like, what the hell? How did I end up on the rail to play like this? Randy O'Hell told the story. My favorite little quirk about Sam was that back in the days when cash was allowed on the table. I remember those days. I like those days when he could use cash. He would always keep bills in one of his hands. I never saw him put them down. He just always had bills in his hands. I don't remember that, but I guess 
he saw that. I love this story from Brant Hale. This is about Sam Grizzle and another character from poker, Eskimo Clark, who has uh, since passed away. They actually had some similarities. They both had uh, poor bankroll management. They both had a lot of uh, off-the-felt issues, and uh, they both passed away early, and they both uh, were known for angling. So uh, you'll get that from this story. Brant Hale said, I was in the bathroom at the Gold Strike on break of a PLO tournament in 2008. Eskimo Clark was at the sink, and Sam Grizzle walks in. Eskimo says, Grizz, you want to swap 20%? That is referring to the tournament that was going on during a break. And and Sam said, you got it. So they both agreed to swap 20%. Eskimo leaves, and a young guy in the bathroom says, Sam, I was at his table. He just busted last hand before the break. So it looks like Sam got angled, right? Sam just uh, traded 20% with Eskimo, who was already out of the event and pretending he was still in. But no, Sam said, that's okay. I'm not even playing. <laughs> so they, both, they took 20% of each other. One was busted already and one was not in the event. They both thought they were angling the other. From someone named Danny Sepiol said, We were sitting next to each other a few days ago. This is a recent story. Live uh, $400 Venetian. I think he means that means $400 uh, no limit buy-in. So that kind of a low to mid-stakes table. We've been chatting. He wins a massive flip, meaning uh, kind of a 50-50 all-in. He wins a massive flip off me. Then he asks if I'll take a pic of his stack and text to him because his phone is shit. L-O-L-O-L-L rip. <laughs> R-I-P. So he's, he's laughing about the fact that just days before Sam died that he couldn't even take a picture of a, of a big stack that he built up because his phone was so bad. This is an interesting one from Mike Matisau. He posted a screenshot. Remember we had Brandon on here saying that uh, Sam went under the name Texas Molly? Brandon said that was his name on uh, WCB.com. That's kind of a a joke. The the fact that Doa Brunson is known as Texas Dolly. So Sam was Texas Molly. Uh, Probably a drug reference on WCB.com is his name. And he was talking all kinds of trash back when they had chat there, which they don't anymore. But uh, believe it or not, Sam Grizzle was the chip leader at a WSOP.com event one minute before he had his massive stroke. And somehow there was a picture taken of it. I'm not sure why or how or who took the picture. But uh, sure enough, there's the picture. The event was on break. And... There he was with 57,854 chips, Texas Molly, and uh, he was in first place. One minute later, he had his stroke. So Mike Mattisau said, here's Sam Grizzle with a chip lead in his last tournament just one minute before his massive stroke. At least he went out on top. Prayers to his family in these tough times. Wow. Isn't that weird? He was actually the chip leader. They go on break and he has a massive stroke and dies. I always wondered, like, how often does it occur that someone actually dies during a poker tournament? I've never seen it before. I've never seen actually someone die as a tournament's happening. I, I've seen it where people just don't show up or where they get sick or they can't come back or they're they're in some kind of drug-induced stupor and never come back. But I've never seen it where someone actually dies during the tournament. I'm not saying it's never happened. I just haven't seen it. But I always wondered, with the World Series of Poker, given the massive number of people, including many who are old and some of whom abuse drugs – in between the days of the tournaments, like 
has anyone died during a tournament? And like I just never hear of that happening. And even better, has anyone died at the table of a tournament? And I haven't really heard of that either. But Sam Grizzle died kind of at the table of a tournament. He died in an online tournament during a break as the chip leader. Weird, huh? Now, Sam Grizzle does have about $1.35 million in caches in his Hendon Mob, but uh, it was said even by his own daughter that he was playing, quote, small stakes poker in his final years. So even though he played very high at some points, uh, he probably didn't have that much money left, and he probably was getting backed for the events he was playing. He did manage uh, some caches in the 2020 Online World Series, which he was able to play living in Las Vegas. He managed seven caches in the 2020 Online World Series, including a third place in the Monster Stack event, and he cashed for 77K. How much of that is left, I don't know, but he did cash for 77K on WCB.com. But uh, as we, we had Brandon on here talking about how he was shooting off some of that money on WCB.com and just uh, playing very wild. Sam Grizzle, no matter how much money he'd ever win, would find a way to shoot it off. He just really had no concept of bankroll management, never did, was uh, always finding himself eventually on the rail. Yep, not a bad player. Definitely knew what he was doing. Have I played with him before? Yes, I have. Do I have any kind of real exciting, interesting stories about him? Not really. Uh, I'll tell you my two. Uh, one of them I just witnessed, and the other one I was um, there for, but wasn't really part of. Uh Sam was uh, on UB. I forgot his name. I think I think he played as Sam Grizzle. But uh, he was on UB, and he was losing. This is back in the mid-2000s. Who knows if he was getting cheated since it was UB. But that wasn't the story. The story was that he was bragging about the fact that uh, even though he's losing, even though he's losing a lot that he is the only one who's so successful and so rich that he orders expensive meals from Piero's every day for delivery. He said, yeah, I may be busted on here right now, but yeah, do you, any of you have a $200 delivery coming from Piero's right now? I get that every day. Every day I do a $200 delivery order from Piero's. That's how little I care about money. That's how much I have. That's how much I've won in poker. Yeah, you, you broke losers can't do that. You, you, so he was mocking everybody, even though he, he just lost a ton there and had zero dollars in front of him. He was mocking everybody because he had the $200 meal from Piero's coming, which is a high-end Italian restaurant in Vegas, or semi-high-end, uh, and, and that they don't. He's eating the Piero's guys, and you aren't. So I watched that happen on UB in the 2000s. Second was from the early 2010s in Bellagio. This one, I was actually physically there. 100-200, limit hold'em, and... Before Sam showed up, there was some obnoxious and somewhat drunk woman at the table who was around 60. Uh, she was somewhat known. People knew her name. Regulars there knew her name. I didn't know who she was, but she acted like everyone's supposed to know her. I don't know who she was. I did not know who she was then. I still don't. But uh, she was very, very loud, very, very brash, and she was wearing a robe, kind of like the type you wear when you get out of the shower. It wasn't a Bellagio robe. She probably lived in Vegas, but it was probably one she owned. But she, she showed up to the game in a robe. She actually may have been staying there, but uh, it was not a Bellagio robe. She was in like a blue robe. And 
she had these big tits that are hanging out of the robe. And you may think, oh, that's pretty hot. No, it wasn't. She was like 60 and they were really saggy and she just wasn't attractive. You know, it's like it, this isn't who I want to see with her with her tits hanging out of the robe. You know, if she, if she was 25 and hot, yeah, I, I would have been happy to have her at the table. But she was, you know, she was 60 with her, her big saggy tits hanging out of the robe. And she doesn't care. She's aware of it. She just didn't care. And to show you how little she cared, she was constantly making like just really crass and rude sexual comments at the table to all the men there, especially the men that were interacting with her. I actually tried to have limited interaction with her because I, I didn't want to hear those comments. I didn't want them directed at me. I was, I was grossed out by her. So, uh, I, I didn't like any of this stuff that she was doing. Uh, I saw it was like a gross older woman that was, uh, making these like overt sexual comments to everybody while she's drunk. I just, I didn't want to think about that with a saggy tits hanging out of the robe. So this is going on for a while. And uh, then who shows up at the table, but Sam Grizzle. I'm thinking, Oh boy, what's going to happen now? Like, is he, is he going to start going off on her? Is he going to start, uh, you know, how is he going to respond to this? Is, is he going to insult her? Like what's going to happen? So I was waiting for the fireworks. Well, there wasn't really fireworks. He was getting involved with the sexual talk too. So he started making his own dirty comments back to her, which of course she wasn't offended. She was, she was happy to have that. She was happy to have a, a partner there to go back and forth with. So they're making the, the, the grossest sexual comments to each other. Your old ass Sam Grizzle and, and this old, older woman. And they're, they're just back and forth doing this for about half an hour. And everybody at the table are just going like, we just have looks on our face like, what is happening here? This is a live and hold them game. This is, we don't see this normally. So everyone else just went quiet as the two of them just bantered sexually back and forth. And then finally, uh, uh, one of them left. I forgot who it was. I, I think it was Sam who left. Oh, no, no, it was her that she left. That's right. She left the game. And then Sam just went quiet. So she left the game. And at that point, Sam didn't have that much to say anymore. I guess he burnt out his energy uh, with, with a sexual banter with a 60-year-old woman. But, uh, yeah, I, I got to hear Sam Grizzle talking sexually. That was a thrill. By the way, the, the guys that she was talking to before, some of them were like 25. <laughs> it wasn't even like she was saying it to guys who were, were 40 or 50. Like, so a lot of these guys were in their 20s. It was gross. Anyway, uh, those are my little stories about Sam Grizzle. Many other stories. You can Google it if you want. Um, I'll tell you one more story from Mickey Krim. Mickey Krim is a longtime gambler, also an, an older person himself. He, Mickey Krim, in fact, I wasn't sure if he would still be with us because he actually uh, had a heart attack and was in the hospital recently. I think he's like 65 or 66. He's a, he's a traveling gambler. He's an advantage player who travels from casino to casino. Uh, so he said, I remember Grizzle at the horseshoe bailing out Benny Binion's grandson, Benny Benin. It's funny. It is kind of funny that Benny Binion's grandson has a last name that sounds like Binion but isn't. It's actually totally unrelated to the fact that his uh, <laughs> that he's related to Benny Binion. It's Benny B E H N E N. Benny Benin. It was when Becky, which is Benny Binion's daughter, took over the horseshoe and made the kid the casino manager. The kid was playing heads up, three hundred, six hundred, seven card stud, hundred K freezeouts with some dude. When the kid got behind, he put. Grizzle in to get the money back. So uh, Benny Bennon actually, uh, once he fell behind in this heads-up freeze-out, he actually got the uh, person playing to agree to let uh, Sam Grizzle take his place. 
Grizzle would get the money back, then the kid took over again, got behind again, then Grizzle was back in, it went on for hours, I never left, I left so I never got to see the outcome. That's interesting. Benny Bennon was a part of the Vegas poker scene for a while in the 2000s. I don't know what happened to him. I know he had some problems with the law, I, I believe, from what I heard, and he was kind of a, kind of a troublemaker. Uh, he was actually friends with Neverwin for a while. Oh, I'm going to give you a bonus topic, by the way. I forgot. There's a, a Neverwin update i got to give you guys. I'm going to try to remember to do that bonus topic. Totally, I totally forgot it until I mentioned this right now. But anyway, that's interesting that Benny Benin, which is Benny Benin's grandson, was putting Grizzle in <laughs> to allow him to win the money back, and that it just kept happening where Grizzle was beating Benny Benny's opponent and then uh, would take back over and would lose again. So it looks like Grizzle was probably the best player of the three, and then the opponent was probably the second best, and Benny was the fish. Okay, well, those are some Eskimo Clark stories. Eskimo Clark. See, I'm getting confused now. Sam Grizzle stories. You can look up more. He was uh, 67 years old and uh, definitely a character. Uh, It's a a person who was uh, without flaws. Definitely not. Did he do some crappy things? Yes. Was he an angle shooter? Yes. Was he a nice guy? Not really. Was he rude and crass? Yes. Did he say really nasty things to people, even on WSB.com before they took away chat? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of reasonable criticism that could be thrown in Sam Grizzle's direction, and most of it is probably true. But uh, he was a well-known old schooler in poker. As far as they know, he never did anything horrible. He just was uh, an imperfect individual, let's just say that. And he was part of Vegas and poker history, and people who were part of the Vegas gambling scene knew him. Like Mickey Krim, for example. Mickey Krim uh, is more of an advantage player than a poker player. And he knew Sam pretty well. So you knew Sam if you were around the Vegas gambling scene over the last few decades. So anyway, rest in peace, Sam Grizzle. And uh, I guess... He did have to, he did have a, a nice uh, final few hours because he was enjoying being the chip leader in a tournament, and I don't know if he was even aware of the brain hemorrhage. I don't know if it was so bad that maybe he couldn't even consciously think anymore. But yeah, sometimes these things can just pop you out of nowhere when you're older. There's some things where you have a long time to take in what's happening, like cancer. And there's other things like heart attacks and uh, strokes or brain hemorrhages where you just get popped and you're gone or you're very close to gone. And as you get older, the chance of one of those things happening gets higher. Personally, I would actually rather have the slower one, though maybe I'd change my mind once uh, the cancer got very bad and I was uh, living an unbearable existence. That's The one good thing about it being fast is you don't suffer. The bad thing is you don't get to prepare for your own death and say goodbye to people. So uh, at least if you know you have terminal cancer, you get a lot of time to get everything in order. And if you have kids or whatever, that's that's uh, good to have that time. Though it does suck knowing your end is coming, and that not just your end is coming, but your health is getting horrible and your existence becomes uh, very tortured because of the uh, physical condition you're in. Anyway, 
another uh, poker player has passed. We will, of course, have more of these stories as time passes. Quickly, before we move on, from the 916, uh, Sam Grizzle for Shizzle. From the uh, 609, mad props to an older man who would grind all night with us a lot. DGNs for life. That's about Sam Grizzle, presumably. From the 727, another person on the East Coast who uh, woke up. Uh, I woke up at like 1.30 Eastern and saw the tweet that PFA Radio was starting. Thought I could fall back asleep pretty quickly if I put it on. But three hours later, I'm still up. And because Lee's story was so interesting. Okay, that's good. I'm glad. See, Lee, you didn't bore anybody. Even though it was long, you didn't bore people. Let me know the Venmo, then the Venmo address to use, and I will send something for the Go Druff Me. That's the Go Fund Me, the Go Druff Me. I have parents that are the age of the guy Lee was trying to protect from Christopher Mitchell's scam and appreciate him looking out for seniors like that. Yeah, and that that's part of the reason I, I put out this uh, request for anyone who wants to donate to send the money to me on behalf of uh, Lee because he was trying to do the right thing. And that, uh, you know, his heart was definitely in the right place and he did a good thing and then got uh, shit on for it. So thank you, person in the 727. And I'll send you that information after the show. And uh, let's see, from the 410, uh, can you announce on radio only a new contest on the Doug Polk match to guess the amount won and and look inside the betting thread for details. I can call in to discuss when you want when the segment starts. Mention it, mention it during possible posts in the side bet thread. Okay, well, I mentioned it. So apparently if, if you go take a look at the, the thread, you will see uh, about this contest, about guessing the amount that uh, will be the result of this match. So thank you, person at the 510. Uh, 410, not 510. Anybody else who wants to know my Venmo, I saw someone else asked about that too. Uh, I will let you know at the end of the show through text. Just text me 775-372-8355 and I will send you my Venmo. I'm not going to put it out publicly, but uh, I will send it to you uh, privately and then you can send me the money that way, which I will forward on to Lee. Okay, so I'm going to call up Knish and he's going to tell us about the Cubans. He's going to tell us about the two Cubans who are traveling the USA and who are uh, apparently cheating poker games, according to him, which is pretty bad. But before we call Kanish, I actually found the theme song of these two alleged Cuban cheaters. They actually were playing this as inspirational music as they would drive around the country. So this has never been played before anywhere. It's going to be a Poker Fraud Alert exclusive. Here it is. We went cheating across the USA. In that hold'em and PLO eight, we will mark cards every day. We went cheating, cheating, cheating across the USA, where we got thrown out too early. So we say. Had to go, couldn't have our way. So we found a new casino, friends. Some brand new cards for you. You know I think they're catching on. I think it's time we flew. Cause we are cheating, 
across the USA. A fair game is not what we'll play. We might collude. We might soft play. We went cheating, cheating, cheating across the USA. Hey, morning, Todd. Hello, welcome, uh, Knish, on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I saw your post. Yeah, man, that 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 song was fantastic. I need to mention three of that. That that was from National Lampoon's Vacation. If anyone recognized it, the, the, that was the end song <laughs> when they were they were on the uh, the roller coaster, which which by the way took place at Six Flags Magic Mountain. That you got to see them on the Colossus and the Revolution. The Colossus they've changed; it's not the same roller coaster anymore. But okay. Let's talk about the the Cubans cheating across the USA. Um, Yes. So uh, this was posted by Knish on October 26, 2020. It looks like uh, Knish just registered to the site uh, because it says joint date was October 2020. I didn't look up your exact date, but it looks like – did you actually sign up to Poker Fraud Alert to actually call this out? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay, good. All right. So – you're claiming in this post, and I'll, I'll let you tell the, the story, but uh, you're claiming in this sure. post that there's uh, a 1-2 PLO game with a $5 mandatory button straddle and that uh, there are two Cubans who are playing in the game, and they're always in seats one and six, and you called yep. what they're doing a, a Cuban sandwich where, where people yeah. are are stuck between them because you know, they're on opposite sides of the table with seats one and six, and they're raising sure. back and forth, and that uh, some people noticed that they were signaling each other with hand motions, uh, and and that uh, and and the way they do it, you described as if someone has a very strong hand, like uh, like like pocket aces, and then there's uh, players already all in that they try to entice another player in, and. Uh, and then they would uh, they, they would pull other various tricks here to uh, to get people to put in a lot of money and and then they would raise back and forth and basically everybody would be stuck between these uh, two Cubans raising and a lot of money would go in and the people who were uh, victims of this would sometimes have the money in bad. However, uh, these were not necessarily good players or even good cheaters. And that that's actually something people often overlook is that uh, you you assume people are cheating at poker that they've got to be uh, masters and just really good at their craft and that uh, they'll destroy you because they're cheating and uh, you know so they can both play normal poker and cheat you and also cheat you effectively. Sometimes that's not true. Sometimes cheaters are also yeah. not only bad poker players but also their whole cheating scheme is not thought out very well. I once had one of these. I once on, this was uh, Limit Hold'em many years ago on the Inner Poker Network, and at like the $1,500 Limit Hold'em game, there were two guys who were just hammering it back and forth. And I I saw what they were doing. I knew they were colluding. But you know what I realized? These guys sucked. These guys had no awareness of when you were just – you're, you're, that you're exploiting them back by knowing what they're doing sure. and that you're adjusting your strategy to the fact that they're just going to endlessly raise so, uh, so so that you quickly come up with a counter strategy and at that point they actually become negative expectation because – and then they don't adjust to it. So I made a lot of money off these idiots 
who uh, who thought they're going to raise me out, and either I just call them down with something fairly strong, or uh, um, you know, or I'd have something really strong. But but the thing was, they weren't forcing me out. If I had top pair, they weren't forcing me out. I'm just going to I'll let them cap every street, and then guess what? Top pair is good. And uh, yep. they, they had no creativity to what they were doing, nor did they slow down when people clearly saw what they were doing and, and, and were able to counter back at it. So that can happen. And so that's – according to your post, uh, something similar is going on. So why don't you tell us uh, the story here? All right. So um, there's, there's a Monday game at Tampa Greyhound Track, a.k.a. Lucky's Poker Room. Um, they, uh, they hand shuffle. There's no automatic shufflers there. And the game is 1-2 PLO, $5 mandatory button straddle, and unlimited re-straddles. And so the buy-in is 200 to 1,000. And uh, it's a game where, uh, you know, it's, it's actually uh, been uh, one of my most profitable uh, games to play because the players are so bad. There's a lot of players that are trying to play bingo. You know, they'll buy in for 200 to 400, and they're just trying to, you know, get it in pre-flop. And so, you know, I'm a nit. I'm playing tight. I'm playing, you know, strong four-way holdings, and uh, you know, I get it in good multi-way, um, and and I've done well there on an hourly basis. But I also play less hours. You know, I, I go in at 10 a.m. when it starts, and you know, I was typically leaving by 4 p.m. And so uh, I quit my job last September to uh, to play PLO uh, for a living, and um, it's gone well. But uh, I, I knew, uh, you know, everyone had talked about, you know, the two Cubans and how, you know, they always sit in seats one and seat six. They always get there when it opens. And, um, you know, we knew they, they signaled each other, but they played so bad that, you know, nobody seemed to care. But uh, I, I wasn't there as late as they were. So I wasn't seeing how they were ending up at the end of this question. And uh, over the past couple of months, um, I've been getting it in these spots where I'm 78% equity favored against their hands. And I'm, they're coming out smelling like roses every time. And they will pick and choose. They will run it twice with specific players and they'll only run it once against others. And I'm one that they'll only run it once with. And so, um, you know, I just started noticing these weird spots and, and weird betting lines that didn't make any sense. Um, you know, an example would be, uh, you know, the Cuban in C1 has straddled the $10. He's in the blinds. Everyone calls. I call, I think, you know, on, in the cutoff or, or the button with, uh, you know, King King 5-4-1 suit. Now, it gets back to him. He pops it to $75. There's a few more callers. I spring my trap because I know he's playing like shit. And I repot it to like $680. Okay, so he's, he's raised to 75 on that 680 he just calls, leaving himself $130. Uh, another player's all in for less. And the flop is like, you know, queen, jack, rag. So he gets it in, I get it in. He has queen, nine, three deuce with the three deuce of diamonds. Absolute trash. Binks the queen on the turn oh, to win the pot. Horrible. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, is like in a vacuum, you know, as one-off situations, I can see it, you know, because people do play bad at PLO. I've been one outed, you know, so I, I, I understand that, you know, the bad players are sometimes going to get there. The thing is, is that these guys have been doing it consistently uh, in spots where their opponents have monster holdings that they're never holding. Um, and, and they're just getting there every time, you know, and it just didn't make any sense to me. And after two months of it, you know, it's just my spidey senses are tingling. Um, there was another one where, you know, I wasn't, I was at the table. I wasn't in the hand, but the, the Cuban in seat six, 
um, got it in for $1,500 pre-flop with Jack 943, two suits. And he's up against, you know, Ace, Ace, something, something. And I think it was either King, King, something, something, or no, no, he was up against Ace, Ace, something, Ace, Ace, King, Deuce. I think it was one suit. And then he was up against uh, Queen, 10, 10, 8. And he's got Jack, 943. And the flop comes Jack, Jack, blank. And then by the river, one of the, his opponents made a straight, one of his opponents made the flush, and he boats um, and, and scoops this massive pot. Um, but there was a lot of different examples of these these crazy hands that just don't make any sense. Um, just one more real quick was uh, the Cuban in seat one was against me. He has King Jack 6-5, all diamonds. And the flop is Queen 10-3, uh, with, I think it was two spades and one club. And I have queen, queen, five, five, I think. So I flop top set and I've got, you know, one spade and one, one club in my hand. Uh, he checks, he's out of position to me and I pot it. He calls the turn brings a, um, a five. So now I've made two sets and it also brings another, uh, black card. So now there's the spade and, and uh, club flush draw out there. He has no blockers to that. Um, he still just has an open-ended straight draw. He has no flush draw. He has no full wrap, you know. And now all of a sudden he leaves into me on a turn card that makes absolutely no sense. It it, it makes his hand worse. And um, and I have, you know, I still have the nuts. I'm not folding. So we get it in. He just binks the red ace on the river, you know. And I'm just like, how is this fucking happening? Wow. You know? And I'm sitting there like, how am I losing in these games? And these guys are sitting here with, you know, six grand in front of them, 10 grand in front of them. It just, you know, so, you know, one, once in a while. All right. But, you know, for two months straight, I'm like, it just isn't right. You know, so I, I, uh, I did a, you know, a search online and I, I found a, a tweet um, where uh, Christy Arnett had talked about a, a 510 uh, game of commerce with uh, two Cuban guys at the table. They were escorted out. Um, supposedly they were they were cheating marking cards and uh, you know someone else uh, poker sasha had replied to it saying um her and some other plo regulars had suspicions but they could never really confirm and uh, they finally got caught um two cubans always playing at the same table always requesting to sit in diagonal positions and uh you know both with you know hats and headphones on and one had a large device in their pocket yeah i see that i see so so so, yeah i saw you posted a a screenshot of this and yes it was uh, on october 26 2019 just about exactly a year ago uh chris internet said that uh two cuban guys at her table were actually escorted out from commerce and their the floor picked up their their chips they were actually booted in the middle of the game and uh she heard that she heard that they were uh marking cards and and then so as you mentioned this person sasha poker sasha on twitter said that uh they were suspecting it and that it just like what you're describing two cubans always at the same table always requesting to sit at uh something like one to six something exactly diagonal from each other and then, yeah, yeah and they both have uh, hats and headphones and one has a large device in the pocket and then ryan feldman he said played with them a bunch same seats very suspicious but they want some out of line hands that don't correlate with marking like called pre uh, jack three offsuit called bet and raise three bet with bottom pair turn two pair limp raise and called shove king three offsuit, um, and then uh, someone that someone actually also that they also had three bet uh, ten 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 six uh, yeah. one one off under the gun and flopped a set which for those of you that don't know uh, PLO 
you never play a hand where you're dealt trips. De- being dealt trips yeah. out of because you can only use two of your four cards. So you guys see you see the problem here. If you if you dealt four cards and can, you can only use two of them, if you get three of the same card, that's a big problem because you can't use all three. So once you get dealt trips, then you that that hand's gone. So that, this guy out of way out of position, actually three bets with ten 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 six, and and still gets the last ten. He gets the last ten of the deck somehow. <laughs> Amazing, and so so uh, it's it's just uncanny. Yeah, and and that uh, and then Ryan went on to say uh, played played with them a bunch. Oh no, that was another one. He said they, they definitely played tight, 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 and then randomly spewed where they got a bluff through or got lucky. They won a lot, but not always. There were some red flags, but I don't think card marking was it. Could be something else. Could be nothing. One of them stacked off with me in PLO in bad spots. So so Ryan saw kind of mixed things, some really weird things that were happening, but also sometimes they were. Uh, Lighting money on fire, and then uh, uh, so that there was a lot of uh, back and forth there. And then another person, uh, Janosh uh, Mahmudian, Mahmudian, said, uh, "Sounds exactly like them." A friend who was at Commerce that day said it was confirmed that they somehow marked cards. Unlikely they have somebody else in on it, given how they changed casinos. And that's the, that's the mystery here. So, uh, what is your theory here? Since they've been, you know, you're seeing them in Florida. They were in commerce sure, yeah. and got thrown out of there. Uh, why? Well, and, and others have just, said they've seen them elsewhere. And hell, did one, you, one, hold one on, hand, did you, uh, I wasn't playing at the time, uh, but one hand um, that I heard about was, um, you know, the Cuban in seat six has uh, 10, 10, 6, 5, one suit. You know, he pots a pre-flop to like $135. He gets repotted, and I think they're like five ways to the flop. And... Uh, the flop is nine ten kings, so he flops you know middle set of tens. Now one of his opponents has king king queen jack, so his opponent has flopped the absolute nuts to the king. He also has uh, the straight to the king. He also has top set. So the Cuban is drawing the one out here, and I, I think it got all in you know all five ways somehow pre flop uh, on the flop, and uh, it was like a thirteen thousand dollar pot, and he just binks the ten. Wow, I mean, it's just, you know. Yeah, so that's it, that's really weird. At one point, there's so much there's so much smoke. There's got to be some fire, you right? Know? So I, and, I, 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 I'm sorry. Before you continue, you know, we I, we have a call here. Yeah, maybe they tried to call twice, so maybe it's about this. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Okay. Viva Castro. Okay, that's <laughs> that's very useful information. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad I interrupted you to take that one. Okay, so, so looks like looks like the Cubans have a fan, though. I will say that it looks it looks like uh, that's oh, that's that's the rebuttal from their side. So okay, that, um, they're on to me. <laughs> maybe it's so, one. Of, maybe it's so one of them. As, as, as far as uh, you know, my thoughts on the whole situation. Um, you know, the thing is, is what happened was, you know, I, I after two months of it, I get suspicious. You know, I find this tweet. Um, so I message the manager. I'm friends with him on Facebook. Um, you know, I messaged the manager for this book room and I, you know, I, I shared the tweet with him. I'm like, you know, uh, I hope you can catch these guys, you know? And he's like, well, you know, he's, he's like, I, I've been in this industry for 25 years and, uh, you know, if they're marking cards, you know, I don't see how they can know the outcome because, you know, we have a burn card, which makes sense. You know, I, I don't know how they can either. Um, uh, but I said, you look, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know how they're doing it. I just know something doesn't smell right. Something's off. I, you know, and, um, I'm not going to play there anymore. You know, if these guys are playing. So he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to put a fresh deck in on Monday, you know, and I'll, I'll monitor it throughout the day. So I hadn't played there in a couple of weeks. 
And um, I get a, a call, a text from one of my buddies, and uh, he's like, hey, you know, uh, the Cubans uh, were escorted out by security today to get a lifetime ban. Wow. So I messaged, yeah, you know, two weeks after I notify the manager. So I, I messaged the manager. I'm like, hey, can you confirm, you know, this is true? You know, he's like, yeah, they're, they're banned for, quote, multiple reasons. Uh, now, obviously, you know, the room is going to tell me how they were cheating. You know, the room doesn't want to have that liability and, you know, admit that they had any fault. But my understanding is these guys were playing there for years, you know, getting away with this. And um, I noticed they had been wearing Best Bet Jacksonville hats uh, the last time I had seen them. So I messaged the man- one of the managers over at Best Bet Jacksonville to give them a heads up, like, hey, you know, these guys just got booted for cheating and, you know, be on the lookout. He's like, oh, yeah, we banned them two weeks ago. <laughs> so I'm like, aha, all right. So very interesting, you know. And um, so I, I really don't know what they're doing or how they were doing it, I, you know, but everything that I found points to somehow they're marking cards. I don't know if it's edge marking, you know, and where maybe the de- they've got some sloppy dealers that they know are going to, you know, not have the deck properly set up so they can see what the card's going to be after the burn card. If they're marking the edges and they're in seat six and one, they can see both sides of the card. You know, I, I do know that I have witnessed them, you know, signal each other the way they look at each other, the way they play with their chips, you know, different hand motions. They're very, you know, uh, squirrely as far as their movements and stuff. So there's definitely some, some odd stuff where, you know, I've noticed that, but they played so bad and their, their hand selection was so bad. I was like, you know, they, they cheat, but, who gives a fuck? Like the game is so good. Yeah, but then, yeah, then it's a problem but if they then, know it's coming in some way. Uh, see, here's yeah. the, so first of all, anybody who's interested in seeing one of the Cubans, you can go to uh, Poker Fraud Alerts, Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum, the the thread that was started about them by Kanish, and uh, you can see if you scroll down, there is a picture of one of them playing at Commerce, a very clear picture of of one of the faces that you can watch. He's putting chips out as he's. The picture taken. Uh, now you said also in the thread that uh, I guess they may have gotten some comeuppance, though. Yeah, I uh, I heard from a buddy the other day that supposedly at least one of them was uh, at Best Buy Jacksonville again, despite being banned, and uh, supposedly he um, uh, he he went in disguise and he was using another player's card. Uh, so there may have been other players that were involved in this whole situation that, you know, I don't even know about. Um, but uh, supposedly some players um, confronted him, you know, and, and he admitted to, you know, having been banned, but uh, stated that he uh, he wasn't cheating. And I guess, you know, some big dude like dragged him outside and, and beat the shit out of him and kicked his teeth in and robbed him. Um, I don't have confirmation on that, but I, you know, I heard it from someone who heard it from someone. So, yeah. You know how that goes, but it's it's nice to think that maybe you know he got some poker comment. Karma, yeah, you know, if, if the guy was really guilty of this, which it sounds like a good chance he was, and and then someone beat him up for it, that's that's great. I'm, I I usually don't uh, condone these type of things in poker rooms where people get uh, beaten up, but if, if someone's a serial cheater going around ripping off uh, uh, player after player in poker rooms, and, and then uh, that happens to them, then I I give a thumbs up to whoever did it. So anyway. Um, that's that's really uh, a crazy story. Now, is there any working theory of what they were doing? Because we had uh, Clayton Jang on uh, on our last episode, and he talked about a private game, which of course is much easier to okay. rig. And and, uh, and and he talked about that 
that device, which we knew existed, where you put two cell phones on the table and one of them reads a, a deck that's pre-prepared with, with RFID to, to send the deck's contents to the phone, which then transmits to an earpiece of which seat sure. is going to win. And then, of course, it's super easy to, to just you know, pound it when you know you're going to get there. But but these guys playing at Commerce and playing at all these other rooms, they can't have people in cahoots with them everywhere. You'd think that'd be impossible. So. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I would think too. Like I, I don't know if they're if they're marking the deck with some type of you know ink and they've got contacts on or something, or if, if they have some type of device that's reading something. Um, all I know is that you know in the Tampa area uh, for Palm and Omaha, there's this game at Lucky's on Mondays, and then there's the Hard Rock in Tampa, which has automatic shufflers, and um, the PLO runs every day of the week at the Hard Rock in Tampa. Um, and really nowhere else except for Lucky's on Mondays. And, um, you know, for these guys to never go to the Hard Rock in Tampa, I've never seen them. I've never heard about them playing there. Um, but they're always driving. They're driving from Miami is my understanding. So they're driving four hours to play this game, you know, where, where it's hand shuffled. Um, but they're, they're skipping the Hard Rock in Tampa where, you know, there's automatic shufflers. There's got to be some funny business going on. So I, Everything that I've heard points to some type of edge marking, but, it, you know, maybe there's some invisible ink and they have contacts, you know, or maybe there's some type of device and, you know, they're able to mark the cards in a way that it's, it's reading them to them. I, I yeah, don't know. I, 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 is edge marking is when a, they first buy in, when they first buy in, they're buying in short. And my theory there is that they're buying in short while they're still marking the decks. Uh-huh. And then they start ramping up their money later on um, once they have you know, enough of the deck mark that they have an edge. Yeah, even it, it could it could be some sort of edge marking. Yeah, it could be some kind of edge marking that they're doing that they have that they're able to see it with contacts. Or maybe it's a combination of the two, and uh, so they can see the edge of the cards even when there's a, a you know burn cards on top of it, and they can see what's coming uh, for certain cards, and then they can really hammer it hard if they if they know it's going to be uh, coming there. And that also that becomes a lot more positive expectation to make really bad plays like the 10 10 10 6 they played if they uh, if they know they can see if that 10 is coming even if they don't even if they can't exactly right, tell exactly. And, that, and, that, and that could also explain why they sometimes make wrong plays it may not even be for show it could be that uh it's hard to see by looking at the edges it may be hard to see exactly which cards are going to get dealt out and which are going to be the burn cards and maybe sometimes they get it wrong and they, uh, sure. the, the the cards they're expecting don't come out, and they they, they lose a big pot where you're like they, they played it horribly, and you're going, wait a minute, how, how are these people winning anything with the way they're? If this was a cheat, why they just dump money to me? It could it could be an imperfect cheat that sometimes they're wrong, but they they're right enough to where they they win money, but sometimes sometimes right. they're like not. I, I I know uh, before COVID, I remember a hand where the Cuban instant six uh, was the fourth all in pre flop. I think he had like twelve hundred in front of him. You know, and um, he had queen nine seven six one suit, and he's the fourth all in. And his opponents had ace ace, you know, something something, king king something something, ace king queen jack or ace king queen ten. Um, so you know, if he can see that they all hold cards that block each other, yeah, you know, now now he can you know he can profitably call. And I, I think he ran it twice that time, and he won both boys. I mean, it was just. Like, what the fuck is going on, you know? So if he can see that his opponents block each other and, you know, he can get it in with, with decent equity um, in those spots, you know, maybe that's what he's doing too. So I don't know. I just know that 
Um, you know, they've been banned from multiple properties. There's there's something nefarious going on. Uh, so I'm just trying to get the word out and, you know, keep other people from getting cheated because they've been doing it for years. So you're talking easily hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in Parliament Omaha games from, from, you know, California, Texas. Um, I, you know, they may have been traveling to Boston um, and, you know, obviously the Florida area as well. So. Yeah, they probably move around, but not only because they get banned, they probably they don't want to stay too long in one place, maybe because they, people will catch on to it. And the, the uh, something else to uh, that I'd love to see happen is that I would love to see instead of just banning these guys, if the rooms really are of the belief that cheating is happening, that they actually detain them, and then uh, if necessary, call the police over. And then, uh, and then search them, and, and maybe come up with this device they're using, and then finally, uh, and then get them arrested. Like it's, uh, yeah, they can ban them for any reason. And so, if they just suspect and can't prove, they can do that. But uh, why not? Uh, if if you know what's happening, and you're running one of these rooms, I would think you would just watch them like a hawk. And once you get any kind of uh, decent evidence that's going on, that's enough to hold them. Then go hold them, call the police, and then have them searched, and then uh, expose the whole thing. Uh, they, I think some of these rooms just want to wash their hands of it and just get rid of them if they. Like, yeah, I think the, I think the problem there is that uh, you know the, the casinos and the poker rooms really only care if you're cheating them. Yeah, you know if you're cheating them, they want to prosecute. But if you're cheating other players, they just want to you know have it brushed under the rug. They don't want that negative that negative information. Yeah. And I kind of wondered that there there was a similar thing going on at the world series of poker where this one guy was accused of cheating in the 10 K heads up event. And he got, and he got very deep and, and he was making really weird plays where people were starting to get more and more convinced that he could see the cards and he was making it pretty deep. Uh, So when it came to the next round, he played instead of the world series being smart and just letting it play normally and have just acting like everything's totally normal. And then just, Grabbing the deck at one point and just uh, you know just showing the yeah. floor minute showing up and just grabbing the deck and then making security make sure security's there so we can't run away just like but you know but don't act and don't act like anything's wrong until you've given the guy time to mark things and then grab it and analyze let, it let, let in, him, instead from the very beginning of that round the floor man standing around there like everybody's acting really really suspicious of him so of course the guy doesn't mark sure. so then he just played normally and lost. And yep. then they tried to analyze the deck and came up with nothing. Now I, th- th- I think they okay. banned him after that, but they they had they actually had to pay him because they had not caught him cheating. And I thought this is so stupid. Gotcha. So so here you they were suspecting it enough to really watch him like a hawk, and and they blow it by just totally tipping their hand what they're doing. So it's very simple. He just doesn't mark the cards if he thinks they're all watching him. You you you, sure, exactly. you totally let it just play out. So they they bungled that investigation, and I always wondered maybe the World Series bungled it on purpose because they'd rather that uh, uh, that they don't catch him in the act and look bad that a guy who got pretty deep in the 10K heads up was marking cards and the and then they had to disqualify him. Like maybe they wanted something where it was kind of more ambiguous. I don't know, or either that or they're just morons and just didn't know how to do, how to do an investigation but that i would it's, i, I it's think one you're or the other it's 50 50 yeah I, I but i think you're right that uh these rooms because you're not directly cheating them they just uh if they think someone's cheating they'd rather just get rid of them than actually put any consequence on that person right yeah they don't want to call attention to it they don't want the bad publicity um you know getting out yeah well, everybody should go take a look at this thread. If you play PLO, even in a public casino, even a large public casino, uh, you see they've done it in commerce apparently, but uh, go take a look at that thread and you'll see one of the Cubans. If you see him in your game, 
uh, first of all, I wouldn't advise continuing to play. But second, uh, immediately go to the floor man and tell them and uh, tell them where he's already been banned from and uh, tell them to even go read the thread and tell them to watch him. And, uh, you know, if you don't do that, then not only might you get cheated, but uh, others might as well. So you should definitely call this out. And, uh, of course, remember, just in case you think, well, maybe these guys are being falsely accused. If you just call this out to a floor man and tell him and and inform them of what's going on and what's happened with these guys already, uh, all you're doing is just alerting the casino to it, and then the casino can watch and make their own determination. You don't have the power to kick them out, so you're just alerting them that, hey, this guy might be a cheater. But definitely, if you see them say something, uh, there's a clear pick of one of them up on the site, and... Hopefully uh, these guys will get banned more and more, and their face will be known more and more, and uh, and that will be that. And really, really, hopefully they get arrested for this eventually. That, that's what I'd love to see. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to also add um, one more thing. is I, I do believe they also play Hold'em. Uh, I haven't seen them play Hold'em, but I, I've heard. Uh, and I think it may have been on Facebook or somewhere, but you know, I posted this in you know, different poker groups and things. But someone mentioned that uh, he had invited them to his private uh, home game and um, – or a private game somewhere or something, Uh-oh. and they, you know, said that they wanted to be on um, the same table, and he told them, you know, he, he could only have one of them there at a time, and they declined to come play. So just and, another, yeah, just and, another flag. and there must be some something to the whole scheme must depend on both of them being there. So if if one guy could market himself and play and get away with it, then they probably wouldn't play together because it wouldn't be as necessary. It, it's probably something that requires yeah. to be a two-man operation that maybe uh, one person marks and the other one can see it. It's something something which has to do with them both being diagonal from each other and uh, and both of them being at the table. That, and that if it's just one of them or if they're not sitting diagonally, there's a problem. That's, that's some very strong clue because they always make sure it happens that way. And you wouldn't do this. Like yeah. you, The last thing they want to do is bring up suspicion. So they... Uh, they would rather do things that are less suspicious if they could, but it seems like this scheme depends upon them being diagonal from each other and uh, and, and that they both have to be there, of course. So uh, that's something to keep in mind as well when trying to figure out what this might be. And it would also be interesting just for us to know what is being done. Forget these guys in particular. If we could figure out exactly what the scheme is or what's being used to perpetrate it, then we can watch out for others as well who might be doing the same thing. Right. Yeah, if I get any more information, I'll definitely update the thread and keep you guys informed. Um, but so far, you know, the, the poker rooms aren't telling me anything, obviously. So, yeah, that's that's unfortunate. This is happening, but uh, I'm glad at least they're getting banned from a lot of places. I'm glad you're putting the word out there. Uh, question for you: How did you find Poker Fraud Alert? Uh, I had uh, I had heard of it before. Um, you know, I just um, didn't really have any poker fraud happening that I was aware of at the time. So didn't really um you know didn't have much going on with that i don't really play online a lot i just mostly play live um so you know i i, I see you on facebook all the time and uh, you know in the different groups and stuff and um you know I, I decided hey this is uh this is something that you know would be uh would be good for the site so yeah uh, th- thanks for bringing it out here it's always good when people call these things out and uh where did this picture come from who, who took that picture of him at commerce you know uh, I got it from someone who private messaged me and said he didn't want to get involved. Okay. And, you know, people have been asking for pics and names, and I didn't have any pictures. I didn't have any names, but he sent me the pictures, and I was like, "Yeah, those, that's them." <laughs> so I was like, "Thanks." And you know, uh, that way, I was able to uh, to share that with others, and you know, and, and confirm with others who have encountered them that that that's who they, you know, that 
who they encountered at these other locations. So yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on, and uh, definitely post anything further you learn about this. All right. Thanks for having me. Tom. All right. Good morning. All right. Take care. Bye. Can't say good night. He just woke up for the day. It's uh, it's five forty four a.m. where he is on the East Coast. Always people out there looking to cheat in poker. You always got to watch out, and even live card rooms. Just because you're alive doesn't mean there's no cheating. There can be cheating everywhere, and there's always new ways people come up with, especially if there's a lot of money to be made. But it's it's good when these things get put out there. I was I've always been in favor of some sort of national cheating registry of poker players, where rooms opt in to a universal ban list of people caught cheating. Not people who are belligerent or a drunk or you know, fighting like that. Okay, whatever. Like I, I, I don't want to see this being done for behavior. Otherwise, you could piss off one floor man. You could be banned from all card rooms. But I'm talking about like a cheating registry where people who are banned for cheating, that it's shared among all poker rooms and everybody who is uh, on the cheating registry agrees to ban those players as well. And that they have pictures and that I, I think that would keep a lot of people out. And they have a right to do that, by the way. They, they don't have to actually catch cheating in their own establishment to ban these players. They can ban them for any reason. If they just say, I heard you're cheating, we don't want you here, then goodbye, kick them out. So uh, I'd love to see that because a lot of times that's what happens. They just move on to different casinos and it's even hard to get the word everywhere that these people have been kicked for cheating, even if it's happened to 20 different places. I've always been a believer, that, especially tournaments too, that there really should be a lot of information sharing between all these poker rooms that keep the serial cheaters out of everything, out of tournaments, out of cash games, just make it to where they can't play. All right, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. We're going to move on. Our next topic is the... Jonathan Duhamel situation and the taxes that Canada wants from him. So this is actually based upon his World Series win at the main event and other wins that he had in uh, 2010, 2011, and 2012. Jonathan Duhamel has been a controversial poker player who has been involved in some incidents, so to speak. There's uh, some things that have happened to him, and there have been some things that are being accused that he has done. Something that definitely happened to him, besides uh, winning the main event, which I guess is something more that he's done than something that's happened to him, but he won the 2010 main event. He won it uh, in the same year that I made it deep, though I don't believe he was ever at my table. I made it to 88th place out of 7,319 players. He won the event. He was from Montreal, Canada, and in the end of 2011, he had something pretty bad happen to him, and I, I felt bad for him at the time. He was set up by his then-girlfriend that uh, she left the door unlocked, and that two of her friends, that he didn't know were her friends, you know, she was pretending she had nothing to do with this, they came in, and they uh, beat him up, and stole his stuff, including his main event bracelet. So they stole cash, they stole jewelry, they stole his bracelet. Uh, eventually, this some of this was recovered. The bracelet was in such horrible shape that uh, 
it was it didn't resemble what it looked like when they got it. I don't know why it was beaten up so badly, but uh, the World Series of Poker remade him his 2010 bracelet, which was nice of them. Uh, but eventually this pointed back to his girlfriend and she was uh, convicted of her role in this whole thing. And I believe they also got the guys who did this. So that was something you hear about. I go, wow, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad that uh, his girlfriend would do this to him. However, in 2015, some things started to change. And this has nothing to do with, with the story I'm going to tell you about the taxes. I'm just giving you some background on him. In 2015, in April, he was abruptly dropped as a Poker Stars pro. And Poker Stars did not put out a warm statement about him like they often do when they drop pros. Poker Stars dropped him and said, we're not going to be working with him again. So something bad happened there. Something, Some issue occurred there to where they're sure they want nothing to do with him and want to say nothing good about him. So it was not known then what this was about. It obviously wasn't about anything financial. You know, they, have, they have pros that they drop because the pros don't like the compensation being offered and they go their separate ways. But in those cases, they always say nice things about the pros. Here, uh, they said, we're not going to be working with him again, which is a pretty strong statement. Uh, now, that has never been fully clarified. However, in that same year, 2015, Justin Bonomo posted a blog about accused sexual harassers and rapists in poker, but did not name names. And uh, there was some people that started to say maybe that Jonathan is one of them, and maybe that's why he was released by Poker Stars, but these were just guesses. Nobody had any proof. In May 2020, about five years later, two women came forward on Twitter claiming that Duhamel was one of the men that Bonomo was talking about. And even Duhamel's ex-girlfriend appeared. Her name was uh, Bianca Latraverse, and she appeared and uh, even made some contact with me and was claiming that uh, even though she was admitting that, yes, she set him up to have these guys come into his place and and beat him up and, and take things, that she did this out of revenge because he had been abusive during the relationship. Now, these are, of course, her claims. We don't know if that's true. And, uh, of course, she is convicted of, of doing something like that so that, uh, you know, you may say she's not very reliable. And I would say I would agree that uh, you have to take her stories with a grain of salt. But uh, the other girls who came forward did not have such a history. And they uh, they had some pretty serious accusations against him. Uh, and uh, yeah, people have told me that was the reason he was removed from Poker Stars. I don't know if that's true. But uh, anyway. Um, the story in May 2020 kind of uh, fizzled out and we never got any uh, other than these girls coming forward there. It, it never really played out much. And, and that was that as far as uh, real attention to this story. But uh, he's now back in the news over something completely different. So let's go back to Canada because that's where he's from. And let's talk about taxes in Canada for gambling winnings. Now, in the U.S., it's very simple. If you win money gambling, it's just considered income. And it's taxed the same way as regular income, with one exception. And that is you can deduct losses from wins in that same calendar year. Now, there's it's not as simple as that anymore because of some changes to the tax code. And also... Uh, if you're a professional gambler, you can deduct expenses. If you're treating gambling as a business and you're doing that as your main business, then you can uh, also deduct expenses that you incur in your professional gambling career. 
Otherwise, uh, in general, you can deduct the losses from the wins, uh, but only in that same calendar year when you file your taxes for that year. There are some other complexities to it that I won't get into now. But there's no such thing as saying, well, I, I, I was gambling. It was just luck, so I don't owe taxes. The U.S. does not treat it that way. The U.S. says gambling income is income. Many other countries do not treat it that way. And I actually agree with the other countries. I don't think gambling income should be income. I, I think it shouldn't be taxed. And that's because it's less than a zero-sum game. That you're paying a rake to the house in some way, or the house has an edge in some way. So uh, the house makes money from everybody overall. So because some people end up on the positive end of it, I don't feel it's fair that uh, taxes get taken from that. And look at something like the lottery, where there's a tremendous rake taken from it, often like 50%. And still the winners have to pay a lot of taxes, obviously, when they win those uh, big jackpots. But anyway, that's a different uh, discussion for a different time. Nevertheless, that's the way the U.S. treats it. But many countries, as I said, including Canada, treat it differently. Canada takes a view closer to what mine is, and that is that uh, if you get lucky in gambling, you shouldn't be taxed on it. It's not the same as, as income. It's uh, There's more of a chance that you're going to lose than win. So uh, we're not going to tax that. And another reason, by the way, is because people lose more than win in gambling, if someone happens to have a winning year that sometimes just wipes out previous losses and they're still down overall, so it kind of sucks to tax them on it. And Canada kept all that in mind. However, of course, the question was brought up, what about professional gamblers? What about advantage players? What about professional poker players? What about people who are expecting to win in gambling and do win year after year? Why should they be able to have a tax-free income, whereas people who are recreational gamblers, uh, why it makes more sense for them to, to be able to not pay taxes. But what about the professional gamblers? It's kind of not fair that every other profession they have to pay income tax and professional gambler doesn't, don't because most gamblers are not professionals. And that's a reasonable argument back. That's a reasonable argument. Okay, but what about the professionals? How come they get tax-free income? So Canada decided to solve this by saying that if you are a professional gambler, that you have to pay taxes on it. If you're not a professional gambler, then you don't. Well, even though that sounds fair, the problem is what defines a professional. And that's not as simple as you may think. What really defines gambling as a professional? What, why can't someone just say, I'm a recreational gambler, and I just happen to get lucky. I just happen to be a really lucky guy. And that's the problem with writing these types of things into law, is that law should always be very specific, and often it can be difficult with, with subjective concepts, like what's a professional gambler. It can be difficult to write that into law. There's an old joke that a professional poker player is an unemployed guy who plays poker, because a lot of professional poker players actually lose. So... What really makes you a professional poker player? Do you have to be a winning poker player who derives most of your income from there? But then what defines a winning poker player? What if you are a winning poker player who just runs really bad and loses? What if you've lost a few years in a row because you had some bad years? What if variants got you? What if you play too high for your role? Are you still a professional poker player? What about a fish who just goes on a heater and gets lucky or wins some big tournament? Is he a professional poker player even if he does manage to do it like two years in a row? Does that make him a professional poker player? What is a professional poker player for purposes of taxes? 
we can loosely define it for this show, but when it comes to writing it into law, that becomes a lot more complicated. And so for tax law, Canada has to determine what is a professional poker player which shows taxes and what is not a professional poker player which does not. And Jonathan Duhamel, despite his uh, considerable success in tournament poker, including that big World Series of Poker main event win in 2010, has been asserting that he is simply not a professional poker player and that uh, he does not feel that that would describe him under Canadian law. Now you can say that's absurd. He has $18 million worth of caches, including $9 million that are not his main event win. So in addition to winning $9 million at the main event, he also has cashed $9 million aside from that. Now, of course, he's put in a lot of big buy-ins, so he's not up $18 million, but he has cashed $18 million, half of which is not the main event. So wouldn't you say he's probably a professional poker player? Yes. I mean, I would say it, you would say it, uh, logically, he definitely is. But it does raise a good question. Is he legally a professional poker player according to Canadian law? Because you can't just say, oh, I know it when I see it. It has to be something that is well-defined by law. So this question has come up, which, of course, doesn't just affect Jonathan Duhamel. It affects other professional poker players in Canada, and how they're going to be treated by Canadian tax authorities. Because once a precedent is established here in this high-profile case, they might start going after others who aren't quite at uh, Jonathan Duhamel's uh, income level and start going after them for back taxes as well. Because remember, this is going back uh, many years to 2010 through 2012. So here's what uh, is going on with this specifically. Uh The Canada Revenue Agency, which is similar to the IRS in the U.S., says that his poker activities constitute running a business. And therefore, he owes 2.4 million Canadian dollars in back taxes, half of that to the country of Canada and half of this to the province of Quebec, where he lives. Remember, he's from Montreal. So that's... uh, 2.4 2.4 Canadian at stake here, 2.4 million, which is about uh, 1.8 million U.S. dollars. So that's a lot of money at stake in taxes. <laughs> so if he wins his uh, claim here that he doesn't owe it, then he saves 1.8 million dollars U.S., 2.4 million Canadian. It's a big deal here. This We're not talking about uh, $20,000 worth of back taxes. There's a lot of money at stake here. So how could Jonathan Duhamel claim that he is not a professional poker player? The tax authorities think it's absurd that he's claiming that. They're claiming that uh, he spends a lot of time playing poker, that he's taken the game very seriously, that he played a heavy volume of poker, that he did not have any other income besides poker during those years, and that he was operating as a business to the point that he was even swapping pieces of the tournaments he was entering with other professional poker players. So how can he claim given his success, given his heavy play, given the piece swapping, how can he claim, and also he didn't have any other income, how can he claim that he wasn't a professional poker player? Well, he his claims are that, first of all, he doesn't have any training in poker. He just started playing. And that he won because he was lucky. Now, the tax authorities are saying, whoa, 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 hang on a second. 
Remember you were a PokerStars pro until April 2015 when they kicked you out? Remember that? They called you a PokerStars pro, not a PokerStars lucky guy or a PokerStars successful player or PokerStars main event winner, a PokerStars pro. So how do you explain that? You went along with it. You never said, no, I'm not a pro. So how come you were with PokerStars for uh, all that time, for almost five years, calling yourself a pro, allowing them to call you a pro? How can you tell us now you're not a pro during those same years? Pretty tough one to answer, right? Well, his response to this, I don't know if it's going to be successful, but his response to this is that uh, the pro was only used for marketing purposes by PokerStars. So, uh, look, we know the truth. We know we know he's a poker pro. But is he a poker pro by Canadian law? I don't know. I don't know Canadian law that well. I don't know the Canadian tax law. I'm just saying what, what his response – he has to give some response to it. Like he has to explain why, why he was called a poker pro and why he let them do that. And if he was supporting himself with poker and if he's playing a ton of time in poker and if he was successful in supporting himself with, with poker – and if he even let them call him a pro, how is he not a pro? And if I had to rule on this, I would say, yeah, he's a pro. He owes the taxes. But but maybe he can find a way to worm out of it. With, with tax law, it's not about uh, the appearance of things. It's about, by law, do you owe the money or do you not owe the money? That's why, like, I, I don't want to get political here, but with Donald Trump and the $750 that he was said to uh, owe in taxes in certain years, people are like, oh, my God, rich Donald Trump with all those properties that he owes $750, not 1000 but $750 in taxes? What the hell? Is he a tax cheat? Well, what I said, and I still say, is that if by U.S. tax law that Donald Trump was legally able to only owe $750, then there's nothing wrong with that. Then that just means he had a good accountant. As long as he was not committing tax evasion, if he legally owed $750, then your your gripe is with the U.S. tax code, not with Donald Trump. Nobody says, hey, I could pay more taxes or less taxes. Let's prepare my taxes the way where I pay more. Nobody says that. Everybody wants to pay the minimum legally allowed, and that's what you should strive for. So uh, in that case, if Donald Trump did not commit tax evasion, which it looks like he probably didn't, then there's nothing wrong with that. It may be bad optics, but he did not do anything wrong. And in fact, he does what what every American and what every businessman does is try to pay the minimum taxes legally allowed. And if it's $750, great for you. <laughs> uh, you may want to change the tax code so that can't happen anymore, but that's that you can't blame him for it. So anyway, back to this here. Uh, it, it may be a bad look that working people in Canada have to pay a lot in taxes, and Jonathan Duhamel making millions at the World Series of Poker doesn't because he can call himself a, a, a lucky player who's not professional when clearly he is a professional, but if the way the law is written, if he can get out of play, paying that, then fine. If legally he can avoid paying it, then that's okay. That's that's what's being decided here. So I don't really have a dog in this fight. Uh, I If I had to rule on it based upon what I know, but I'm not an expert in Canadian tax law, I would say, yeah, I, I would think he should owe it. But uh, if he gets out of paying it, I'm not going to go, oh, man, he cheated Canada. No, that's what this hearing's about. This this hearing, they're, they're trying to figure out here if uh, legally he owes it. Not if morally he owes it, but, but legally if he owes it. And that's all that matters to taxes. There's, there's no such thing as morally in taxes. You either legally owe taxes or you don't legally owe taxes. And there's nothing in between. So uh, other information came out during this entire uh, 
ordeal here where they're trying to figure out who's right and wrong with the taxes. You know, information has to be provided that now has uh, been found by the public, which can be interesting for us who are observing this to know. For example, what was his compensation in 2011, the year after he was the main event champion? He was wearing Poker Stars gear when he won the main event. You can see it in the picture taken in 2010. What was his compensation the following year when he was a PokerStars pro? Well, I can tell you what mine would have been because I had a contract. Yes, I had a contract for possibly being a PokerStars pro for 2011 had I won the 2010 main event. Because remember, I was 88th place. So as we got down to the final 120, PokerStars was looking to sign as many people as possible. Now, well before that, they were sending reps around to find people who were not signed to anyone. They could see if you were not wearing any gear for competing sites that you're someone they could possibly sign. So they were going around to people and saying, hey, how would you like to sign a contract with us where you can get all kinds of guaranteed money if you either appear on TV during this event or if you win the event? And a lot of people jumped at it. A lot of people signed it because you were guaranteed a million bucks for winning the event, uh, not, not a million dollars on the spot, but you're guaranteed a million dollar contract for the following year to be a, uh, a Poker Stars pro. And uh, you were guaranteed uh, like five figures, low five figures for making it on TV tables. And you were guaranteed also some basic money for uh, making it to, uh, to certain days. But... Uh, Th- those days you'd make it to were towards the very end, not not at the moment. They weren't saying if you make tomorrow you get money. They're saying you put on our, our, our gear now. Or actually not now. You, you started wearing it the next day because World Series rules were that you couldn't start wearing it the same day, which apparently Full Tilt didn't keep to. Full Tilt was was uh, breaking the rules and having people wear it the same day. But uh, the World Series told Poker Stars you can only have people – if you sign a new person, you can't have them wear the gear the same day. They have to wear it starting the next day, and they're trying to do that to prevent them jumping on players who uh, um, suddenly uh, get big in chips that all of a sudden they're wearing uh, a Poker Stars gear after the same break. Like, they think it looked bad that uh, sites could jump on people like that, so they, they said that the rule is you can only take on a sponsor for the following day. So the deal that was offered to everybody at the time in 2010, and remember, this is before Black Friday. This is the last year before Black Friday. So Poker Stars was serving the U.S. market, and they didn't think it was going to be changing anytime soon. So the, the deal was, and they, they were fighting very hard with poker, with Full Tilt. Like, uh, Poker Stars and Full Tilt were swallowing up all the unsigned players in that field as it was getting smaller. But there, there was no skin off their ass to do it because, uh, well, there's very little skin off their ass to do it because what Poker Stars was basically offering is, uh, starting tomorrow, you're going to wear our hat. If you appear on a TV table, we'll pay you something nominal. And depending on how much time you get, we'll pay you this much. And because they had rules that like not more than three people at the table can be wearing uh, the same sponsor's clothing. So if there were more than three, then some people would have to be t- would have to take it off, selected by random. So all these other terms in there. But basically, they were on the hook for very little. And at the same time, you're agreeing to be a sponsored PokerStars player for the main event only and maybe not receive any money. So, for example, if you agree to this and then you make the next day, 
Which remember, it's not super far into the event. Maybe there's 400 left or something. So you make the next day, and then uh, let's say you make it all the way through that day and, and partly through the next day, but you never make a TV table, and then uh, you bust then. You've worn PokerStars gear for two and a half days, and they give you... Zero point zero. But people jumped on it because they felt, well, this is easy. I just put on a PokerStars hat and a PokerStars patch, and, you know, why not? It's free money. Maybe I'll get zero, but it's a free roll for me. And, wait, if I win, I, I get a million-dollar guaranteed contract next year. Okay, sweet. I'm doing it. Well, I was smarter than that. I said, wait a minute. If I win this event or get very deep, with with the way Full Tilt and Poker Stars are competing for sponsored pros, which they were at the time, there's no way they're going to leave me unsigned. They're, they're going to grab me. So this million dollars, this isn't exciting. I'll get this anyway if I win the main event. I'll get this from someone. And as far as, uh, um, you know, if I get TV time, if I get very deep in there, you know, like, yeah, I can't, uh, I can't pick up a sponsor the same day, but I can't anyway. You still can't wear the gear the same day. So I said, you know what? I am not going to rep anyone for free. I'm not. I'm not going to have any situation where I have to rep a site for free. The second I put on their hat, I want money. The second I agree to put on their hat, I want money. So I said no. So there were two players when they got to 120 left that were left unsigned in the field. Two out of 120, 118 of them had some kind of affiliation with a site paying them to wear their gear. Can you believe that? The only two unsigned players were Todd Wittellis and Jason Senti. We were the only ones who refused. Well, we, during the break, the dinner break of, uh, of that day, we uh, both had some discussions with them, and we ended up with a better deal than everybody else. I'm sorry for this tangent here, but I thought maybe you'd be interested because it is a little bit related to Jonathan Duhamel, and of course it involves me. So... The deal I made was that I get the million bucks for winning, the million dollar contract for winning, and that I get a lot of the same things that people get, but I got some extras. For example, if there's a TV table, that I'm guaranteed to be one of the people wearing the gear, that they'll make somebody else take off the gear. doesn't matter who, but that there's no way they're going to tell me that I don't get to wear the gear. They're going to make someone else take it off. So they agreed to that in writing. Uh, that I get $7,500 right off the bat, even though I can't wear their hat yet even though I have to finish uh, day six, which I was in, that, uh, and I can only start wearing the hat day seven, but that right away, upon signing this agreement, I get $7,500. And if I don't, if I don't make day seven, I still get the $7,500. So even if I never wear the hat because I don't make day seven, I get the 7500 And that every day it goes up. So basically 7500 off the bat, and then every day I make uh, past day seven, I get more. So uh, I had that in there. Had a few other terms in there that nobody else had, and Jason Santi, I don't know what he did, but he must have gotten a, a better deal too because he was also holding out. Well, Jason Santi made it a lot further than I did. He made it to ninth. He made the final table. He was the first out at the final table. He was the short stack at the final table, but he made the final table. I did not. I went out eighty eighth, so I never ended up wearing their gear. Funny enough, my agent, who was a fairly known poker agent, I'm not going to name him, but as fairly known poker agent. Uh, he was, I had to do the deal through him. It was no one I had an existing relationship with, but I had to do it through him. And because I was out, he didn't give a crap about me anymore. So he, he wasn't paying me. He wasn't trying to stiff me. He just was lazy. He was just busy uh, 
working with people that were making him active money. With me, he was only getting 10%. So basically, it was supposed to be 7500 to me, but then I was supposed to pay him 750 of it. And he was supposed to arrange me getting paid. So after the event, I'm like, I'm emailing poker stars and I'm saying, where's my 7,500? And they said, I'm sorry, it has to go to your agent who then gives you your share and keeps the 10%. It's all through him. So I, I kept bugging him. Come on, come on, come on, come on. And I'm getting stalled, stalled, stalled. He's just not doing it. So finally, I sent an email to poker stars and said, if this guy's unresponsive, this guy is telling me he's going to do it, but he's not doing it. You know, at some point you have to do this for me. My agreement was with you, not the agent. If you want him to process it, fine, but he's not doing it. So what do we do? So finally, Poker Stars, I'll give them credit. They just said, okay, F it. You know what? Here's $7,500. Uh, we're transferring to your account. And uh, if this guy wants the seven fifty, you you deal with him directly. <laughs> so, so they sent me the whole 7500 And then like four or five months later, that freaking agent realized that he never did this. So then he looked it up and he found out that Poker Stars paid me themselves. So he actually had the nerve to contact Mike on and say, hey um, – Todd owes me $750. Uh, uh, can you give him a message to call me? I guess he didn't have my current phone number at that point. <laughs> can you imagine the nerve? The guy forgets about – the guy won't do his job, forgets about me for like four or five months uh, because I, I managed to get myself paid. He, he forgets the whole thing exists after I've been begging him to help me and then realizes like months later and then tries to collect the 750 So as you might imagine, I didn't return his call. Not that I was looking to – like I wasn't – trying to punish him or scam him. He didn't do his job. Part of his job was getting me my money, and he refused to do it. And I gave him ample time to where even poker stars got frustrated and sent me the money. So as far as I was concerned, he did not perform the job, and if he wanted the 750 he could sue me. So I, I didn't respond to him, and uh, <laughs> he didn't bother to pursue it. I think he knew that uh, he knew why this happened. So anyway, let's get back to Duhamel. Sorry for the little uh, tangent. The reason I told you this story is because I knew about the million bucks. I knew that I was offered a million bucks. Well, indeed... So was Jonathan Duhamel, who probably signed that crappy agreement that everybody else did. So they, so he had a million dollars. But I always wondered how that million dollars would have broken out in compensation because they said a million dollars that is partially tournament buy-ins and partially uh, money up front. Well, we found out because uh, it came out that they sent uh, $480,000, that is U.S. dollars, to Duhamel in cash for that 2011 sponsorship and 520000 was provided as uh, tournament entries. So it was a 52-48 split in favor of the tournament buy-in. So that's uh, presumably what I would have gotten. You might wonder, did Duhamel have all of himself in that 2010 main event? Answer, no. He did not even have anywhere close to all of himself. He cashed for $8.9 million in that event, finishing first. But uh, it turned out that he had to go send $4.1 million to other people as a result of pieces that he either sold or swapped. Ooh. That's close to half. It's not quite half, but it's close to half. $4.1 million out of the $8.9 million, he had to just forward on to other people, which sucks. The reason that came out is because he had to justify to tax authorities why he doesn't owe tax on that money. Because once you... Uh, pay out other pieces to people, then it's their tax burden, not his. So that had to be disclosed. So it looks like he traded away, in some way, almost half of his action, which is crazy. So he didn't win as much as you think. Not that $4.7 is bad, but $4.8 is what he won. But uh, 
Not as good as 8.9. And by the way, that's exactly why, not to turn this back to myself, but uh, this is exactly why I don't sell pieces for the main. This is why those of you who have asked me, can I buy a piece of you for the main? And I say no. And you ask me again, can I buy a piece of the main? Can I have like half a percent of the main? Can I have a percent of the main? I say no. The reason is I, I don't want to have to give away like a large portion of my gigantic prize if I get super lucky and win the thing. And as you've seen, I have done it twice. Not won it, of course, but I've gotten within striking distance. 120th last year, 128th last year, and and, uh, 88th in 2010. So, you know, I get a little bit luckier, get a lot more money. So it's not like it's impossible. It's not likely, but it's not impossible. And I'd be pissed at myself. As much as I enjoy winning money for you ladies and gentlemen who invest in me, I don't want to give away millions of dollars to you guys. I don't. <laughs> I'm okay giving hundreds of thousands. That's why I, I'll sell off those events. I'm, I'm totally okay giving hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands. I, I don't want to give millions. If I win millions, I want to keep the millions. I'm sorry. That's the fun of playing the main event is to think I might win 10 million. I might win 5 million, 6 million. I, I don't want to give away half of that. I, I can afford to play. I can afford to put the 10,000 up myself. It's only once a year. So that one's too big. Similarly, I don't sell the small the small buy-in events because I, I I don't I don't care about reducing variance for a five hundred dollar event. So uh, that's why the events I sell are ones that are thousand or more buy-in and that are not the main event. That's what I sell. But anyway, uh, Du Hamble didn't think the same thing, and he was sorry for it because he had to give away over four million through these pieces he traded away and sold. That just came out, which was not known prior to all of this. He also, if you remember, finished. Uh, uh, he finished uh, first. He actually won uh, in the one drop, the hundred hundred eleven thousand dollar version of the one drop. There's a million dollar in the hundred eleven thousand. He won the hundred eleven thousand for almost four million. Duhamel's lawyer claims they have case law on their side. There was a two thousand six case where. Two Canadian gamblers who were sports bettors did not have to pay taxes when they had won a lot of money betting sports. However, it's not clear if these really were professional sports bettors or if they really were just uh, recreational bettors who got lucky. I've actually known some recreational sports bettors who've run up a tremendous amount just getting super lucky and pressing their bets. They usually lose it back, but uh, I have known recreational sports bettors who really are definitely not positive expectation sports bettors are just kind of like, ah, I'm going to bet on this team. I'm going to bet on that team. Like they really put no research into it and they just get super lucky. And they just keep raising their bet and they just go on a streak where they win you know, 12 in a row and they've turned a few hundred into 120,000. I've seen it before. Anyway, a lot of Canadian poker pros claim to be recreational players, and they've gotten away with it for a long time, and this may stop, because if they rule against Duhamel here, they may come after others, or they may put out the word that you can't do this anymore, and that you're going to get in trouble and pay penalties if you do. So this really could have implications beyond just Jonathan Duhamel. So I'm sure uh, some Canadian poker pros are sweating this, they may even be sweating this over the past. Forget the future. The people who won a lot in the past that are Canadian citizens that didn't pay taxes on it may be sweating that if Duhamel loses this, that they may be next because there have been many other 
Canadian citizens who are poker pros that uh, they could come after in a similar fashion. Daniel Negreanu, I don't know his situation. He is from Toronto, but I think he may have a dual citizenship. I'm not sure which country he pays the taxes in. I don't even know how that works, if you have a dual citizenship but are originally from Canada. I don't believe he's given up his Canadian citizenship, and I don't know what he does in taxes. Maybe he just admits he's a poker pro. I mean, talk about people that be... If you think it's hard for Duhamel, can you imagine if Negreanu tried to say he's a recreational player? Can you imagine Daniel Negreanu, one of the best-known poker players in the in the whole world, comes up to court and says, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just recreational, guys. It's just all luck. <laughs> that might be a hard sell, but I don't even know if he pays Canadian taxes. I, I don't even know how that works. If you're a dual citizen, where you pay the taxes. I know he spends almost all his time in the U.S., so... Maybe he's only paying U.S. taxes. Okay, let's move on here. Sheldon Adelson might no longer be part of the Las Vegas scene, which would make many people happy because many people don't like Sheldon Adelson because of his strong opposition to online poker. And they also just don't like his properties that seem to be pushing the envelope as far as uh, providing very player-unfriendly games, such as Triple Zero Roulette, which the Venetian pioneered and now other casinos have copied. Now, you can't blame Sheldon for that, because I, I doubt Sheldon is the one making that decision. But the Venetian is not particularly player-friendly with their gambling. It's their, their casino kind of operates in a way of uh, what's the way we can make the most money, not what's the way that uh, we can be good for the gambling community. The hotels are very nice, and they're classy, and you're treated well there. But uh, as far as the games themselves and the attitude of the casino uh, leaves a lot to be desired. And Sheldon Adelson himself is very hostile towards online poker and has dumped a lot of money into anti-online poker forces. Some believe that Adelson does this because he sees online poker as a competition for his land-based properties. Perhaps that's true, but my impression is that he actually just is philosophically against it. He just hates online poker. Keep in mind, he could have gotten licenses to provide online gambling, not just poker. He, he hates all online gambling. So he could have gotten licenses to provide online gambling that made a lot of money. So I don't necessarily think that he is doing this to protect his own properties. I think he just is against it. And something about Sheldon Adelson is that he is very principled in that – Something he feels strongly about, he will put a lot of time and money into backing it. I'm not saying he's always right. I don't agree with his online poker stance, for example. But uh, he will back politicians that uh, are on the same side that he's on on particular issues. Like, for example, he's very, very pro-Israel. Very pro-Israel. He's Jewish and very pro-Israel. So he puts a lot of money behind politicians who are pro-Israel. And he's mainly done this for Republicans, but he has backed pro-Israel Democrats. That's the most important political issue to him is pro-Israel. So if you're not a pro-Israel Republican, he's not going to back you. And if it's a Republican versus Democrat and the Democrats pro-Israel, he's going to back the Democrat. So he's put in a lot of money to back candidates who are pro-Israel. So it's not just the pursuit of cold hard cash to him. He has issues which are very important to him. And will put a lot of that money that he's – I mean he's, he's a multi-billionaire. This is someone who will put a lot of money toward his pet causes. And unfortunately, it looks like one of them is online gambling. He just hates it. 
I I just think he really hates it. I don't even think it's for business reasons. I think he just hates it, which sucks for us, but he hates it. So it would be nice to see him out of the Las Vegas market. I'm also banned at his casinos. Not because of him, but I was banned for something I didn't do. You guys have heard the show where I discussed that. And that has not been resolved. It may never be resolved. I don't even know if this sells, if he does sell the Venetian and Palazzo, which he's exploring doing, uh, will I have a better chance of getting unbanned? Because, he, again, he didn't make the decision. So I, I don't know how they would treat that. But there, there is discussion about selling the Venetian and Palazzo, and that would be huge because uh, this, these have been owned and controlled by Sheldon Adelson for a long time, since the beginning. Since they've existed And if they were to get out of the Vegas market That would be A big deal So what's going on with that Well There is some talk That uh, they are looking into Selling these properties And they are asking for a lot of money For the two of them This is only being discussed In theory But how much can you buy how much can you? How much is it to buy the Venetian and Palazzo? One million dollars. No, I, I would do it for that. I, I would put up that money to buy not just the Venetian and the Palazzo. I would do it to buy either the Venetian or Palazzo. I would even do it to buy a portion of them. But that's not what it's for sale for. They're actually looking for... One hundred billion dollars. Oh, my. Oh, my. No. It's not either one, but it is $6 billion they are looking for. So uh, the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, which is his company, then that's named after what the Venetian land used to be, that used to be the Sands, before the Sands was wrecked and the Venetian was erected in its place. There is still a Sands Convention Center that is a reference to the old Sands Hotel. But the Las Vegas Sands Corporation is exploring a sale of the Venetian and Palazzo. The Sands Convention Center I just mentioned would also be part of that sale. And that would mean that Sheldon Adelson would no longer be in the U.S. gambling market. Not just the Vegas gambling market, but that he would completely be uh, leaving the U.S. gambling market by such a sale. What would he do then? Now, keep in mind, he's very, very old. I think he's like 87 or something. But what would he do at that point? Well, he's been very obsessed with his Asian properties, especially the Macau properties. So they, so he really thinks that's more profitable. And I think the Vegas market might start to become a – it might be kind of a headache for him, especially because of uh, Vegas struggling so badly with the coronavirus. And it's not clear when this is going to end. And I wonder if Sheldon's even thinking, hey – by the time this is all over, I may not even be alive anymore. So maybe he's worried that uh, he won't even be alive to control what happens by the time this improves. So maybe he wants to make a move now and just get out. Maybe maybe he's worried that the coronavirus is going to change Vegas forever. What what if we're stuck with the coronavirus? What if it mutates enough each year towards like the flu to we're never completely rid of it? But since it's worse than the flu, what if it just makes Vegas an unpalatable place for a lot of people to go? And that's a possibility. That's something that Vegas has to consider is that what if the coronavirus is not a temporary thing we're dealing with? What if it's something that's a new normal? What if it's uh, a second flu that's much worse? 
that we just have to deal with each year. People are going to catch each year, and that is something that spreads in the air, and that casinos are very uh, susceptible to spreading it. And people are going to stay away, and also they're going to lose a lot of the older clientele who will be a lot more scared of it than the younger people. And the older people with the money are not going to want to come. It could be a disaster for Vegas, as we've already seen. So what if this isn't short-term? And even if it is not forever, maybe they'll eventually come up with a treatment. But what you know, what if the treatment? What if an effective treatment that really negates this and makes it not a big deal anymore? What if that's five years away? Well, Sheldon may not be alive by then. So maybe he wants to deal with this before he is gone. Whatever the reason is, uh, the, he's noticed that the Asian market is seeing a faster recovery. They also don't have the problem that's going on in Vegas right now with all the violence and the bad element coming to town. That's another unfortunate side effect of the coronavirus that uh, has occurred because they've had to discount the rooms to get people to come, and then that brings a different element there that didn't used to be there, and and then that's scaring away a lot of the good-paying customers who don't want to deal with all this crap. So there's a, there's a lot that Vegas is going to have to recover from, and it's not clear how they're going to do it, especially if the coronavirus is not easily defeated in the next uh, several months. So uh, the Sands Corporation is exploring that sale and uh, they're working with an advisor to solicit interest from potential buyers. Uh, Sheldon Adelson, by the way, is a big Trump supporter. Some of that, though, may be because Trump has been a big supporter of Israel. And whatever you want to say about Trump... I think you can safely say that he has been very pro-Israel. He has been the most pro-Israel president that we have had. So uh, Sheldon Adelson appreciates that. He's donated a lot of money to Donald Trump, both in uh, 2016 and 2020. But uh, he may want out of the uh, the U.S. gambling market. Just I think he believes it's too much of a mess. They reported a third quarter loss of $565 million. That's just the third quarter of 2020. They lost a billion dollars in the second quarter. They brought in less than 3% of the revenue in the second quarter compared to the uh, second quarter in 2019. Can you believe that? <laughs> less than 3%. Not 30, 3 that's what caused that billion-dollar loss. So uh, they are starting to look at what's going on in Vegas, going, you know what? This We just don't see a lot of future here at the moment. There, there could be a lot of problems, and the value of these casinos may go in the toilet. They may, they may be kind of selling high. They may be selling, hoping they're going to get buyers who believe it's going to snap back to what it was pre-COVID, and then it may not. Maybe he just maybe he's not even thinking about his numbered years on Earth, which the number's not that high anymore. But uh, he may just be thinking about, hey, I'm the only one who sees that Vegas may never be the same, and maybe I'll get a sucker to buy my properties for what people thought they were worth in 2019, not what they're worth going forward with a totally different clientele and different level of interest in coming to Vegas and a different level of activities that we can offer people. So maybe he's realizing that the Vegas that's there now may be the Vegas that uh, stays there for a while, and that's going to greatly degrade the value of these properties. So maybe he's just getting out while he still can and to get a lot of money from it. And he sees Asia is recovering a lot faster and that uh, people are more willing to come there and, and 
treat it like they did before the pandemic. So they definitely want out. If the question is, uh, will they get $6 billion? They want $6 billion. They may not get $6 billion. And how, how low will he go? Now, how much does Adelson own of the Las Vegas Sands Corporation? I'm not sure. I know he is the majority shareholder. The company is valued at $37.5 billion. So not even that far from the, the $100 billion that they always play. Las Vegas Sands is going to invest $2.2 billion more in Macau as they're uh, trying to extend further into that market. So any, any money they raise from this sale, they will reinvest in Asia. The other properties he has are uh, in Singapore. It looks like that's where he has the interest now. The good thing about the Asian market compared to Vegas is that uh, you're making a lot of money from fewer people. There's a lot fewer people coming through, but there are a lot higher rollers. And that's really more desirable for casinos. They Casinos prefer not to have to grind out small wins from everybody. They They actually prefer to get big wins from fewer people. And that's what the Asian market is. There's a lot of big gamblers in Asia because of the mass number of people there, far, far more than there are in the U.S. They can attract these huge gamblers. There's a lot of super rich people just as a function of how many people there are in Asia. It's not that Asia is richer than the U.S. It's not, but it's that uh, there are more rich people there because there's way more people. You know, like China alone that's like what 1.5 billion I'm just estimating when the US is 330 million we're just talking about China so there's uh, a lot of really rich people in Asia and gambling is a big part of Asian culture and always has been so there's a desire to gamble and then there's a lot of people with a lot of money just because of the sheer population size so that's what makes these Asian markets really good in fact the reason there are so many Asians in poker has to do with gambling being in the Asian culture. It's not a coincidence that there are so many Asians in poker, both uh, pro players and fish. You know, you see both. You go to commerce, for example, and there's tons of Asians at commerce, tons. Some are excellent players. Some are decent. Some are okay. Some are fish. You, You run the whole gamut there. I even see that at the games I play. If I see a young Asian guy there, I usually assume he's good, and he often is. If I see a middle-aged or older Asian guy who's a regular at commerce and seems to have survived over the years there, I I know he I already know he knows what he's doing. If there's just a random 55-year-old Asian guy sitting down I've never seen before I assume he probably isn't going to be very good And usually he isn't Usually it's just some businessman who likes to gamble And then he gets eaten up by all the pros at the table If he is out of the U.S. gambling market The question is Will he then take his foot off the gas With trying to oppose the expansion Of online gambling in the U.S. And the answer is probably yes And you may say Well that opposes what I just said It contradicts what I just said, that he's doing this for moral reasons and not for business reasons. But I think it's going to be more like out of sight, out of mind. I I think because he's in the casino industry in the U.S. and this online gambling thing is right there in his face, he's got to take a position on it. 
I think once it's not in his face and he's kind of just closing his eyes to it and focusing on Asia, he's not going to give that much of a crap anymore. So it's possible he'll still back those uh, anti-gambling forces in the U.S. and try to prevent the uh, anti-online gambling, not anti-gambling, anti-online gambling in the U.S. and that uh, that won't change, but I think it will. So this would be a good thing for poker if he does leave the U.S. casino market because I think he'll kind of forget about us. And maybe I can even get unbanned. If you know, and I, I wonder this. Let's say Caesars buys it. And I'm not saying Caesars will or that they've even been contacted about this. They've probably been contacted, but I don't know if they have any interest. But if Caesars bought it, I wonder what would happen with my ban. Would my ban be reversed? Would my ban then extend to Caesars, which would be terrible? Uh could I have some power in getting it reversed because I'm in good standing at Caesars and this whole thing was stupid and they have no proof because I didn't do what they say I did? Like, I don't know. So we that's one problem with consolidation is the banning thing can go many ways and sometimes it results in you just being banned for more properties. If it does change hands, I'm definitely going to try to get that ban reversed. We shall see. I will keep up with this story. Pretty big story, but nothing has happened yet. Okay, so moving on here, want to talk about the situation that happened to a player in a daily fantasy sports contest. This is pretty uh, frustrating. I mean, I'd be going crazy if this happened to me. There was a daily fantasy sports contest, and it was on DraftKings. And the top prize for winning this contest, it's a tournament, so you're not putting a lot of money into it, but uh, it's a tournament where the top prize is... One million dollars. And there was a guy who seemed to be in position to win the whole thing. And he was, of course, very excited as he saw the day play out and thought that uh, he might win it. Because he's seeing that uh, the players that he's putting in his lineup are doing very well and that he has a ton of points. Because you get points based upon how these players perform that are in your lineup. So he's seeing he has a ton of points. He's seeing that he's on the leaderboard. And sure enough, when the whole thing was over, he was the winner. So the last thing he had to see was that uh, the Rams won 24 to 10 and that uh, he was the the winner of uh, this contest because he finished with 93 more points than the guy in second. This contest had 176,470 entries. I don't know how many of these entries were his. You can enter multiple times. But anyway, with 176,000 plus entries, he had the best score of all those lineups. But 30 minutes later, they changed a statistic in that game. This was the Rams versus the Chicago Bears. The LA Rams and the Chicago Bears. And for some reason, 30 minutes after this guy was sure he won a million bucks, they changed a stat that changed everything. Because originally, the Bears defense got credited with a sack of the Rams quarterback, Jared Goff. But after the game was over, 30 minutes later, the official scores looked at it again and decided that it was not a sack because uh, it was changed from a passing play to a running play, in which case there cannot be a sack. So the sack was taken away, and because uh, that sack got him points, once that sack got taken away, 
that knocked him all the way down to an 18-way tie for sixth place. So he went from first to tied for sixth, but tied for sixth by like uh, with 17 other people. So that tremendously changed his payout. He went down from $1 million payout to $3,079 payout. That's $997,000 he lost because of that statistical change, which really could have gone either way. They ruled it first a sack, and for some reason, 30 minutes after the game was over, they're like, uh, no, it was a passing play. Okay, take away the sack. And that changed everything. And that's what really sucks with fantasy sports, is that when they're making these rulings, they're not thinking of how this is going to affect the fantasy sports players. They're just uh, looking at it again and go, okay, we really don't think this is a sack. Okay, let's, let's fix this in the stats. And then this this uh, screws one person and helps others. So, of course, then the second-place guy became first, the third-place guy became second, etc. And this guy fell to an 18-way tie for sixth. So he was not very happy. He was not very happy at all. Not only that... But uh, this was not a good weekend for stat changes. Another stat change cost him $5,000 the previous day. <laughs> wow. So first he's, he's pissed he loses 5000 from an after-the-game stat change. And he's like, oh, man, this sucks. How much worse can this get? Well, he learned. So that has got to be incredibly frustrating. Because this happened 30, 30 minutes later. He got to celebrate for 30 minutes only to find that he didn't really win the million. They took it away from him. That is really, really horrible. <laughs> there is some crossover between Daily Fantasy Sports and poker, but I've never heard of this guy. He's probably not a poker player. His name is Rob Huntzee, H-U-N-T-Z-E, and he's 41 years old, But and he's an insurance agent. I don't believe he's a professional player, though usually you can't win these unless you're a professional player. So I have a feeling he is some sort of uh, knowledgeable Daily Fantasy Sports player, but he claims he's an insurance agent. But he, he doesn't seem to be a known poker player. In fact, I'm going to look this up right now. I should have looked this up before. I'm going to look this up right now. Rob Huntsey is in the Hendon mob. He might be. There really is a crossover on this. Uh, Eric Crane, also known as Jack's Poker, he once won that million. He's a big Daily Fantasy Sports guy now. No, I, I don't see anything with him in poker. So it looks like he's not a poker player. Pretty tough, though, right? Pretty tough. I mean, it's one thing they rule this and change it a minute later, but can you imagine you sit there for 30 minutes thinking you won a million bucks and then they change it? And they're like, oh man, that took away points. Well, how bad can this be? Oh my God, I'm tied for six with 18 people? It probably wouldn't even have been that bad. I mean, he would have lost a lot of money, but he wouldn't have quite lost this much if it wasn't like an 18-way tie. I wonder how that even happens. That he has to basically... Uh, they have to split the prize for... You're not splitting 6th place 18 ways, but you're basically taking 6th through uh, 20, 23rd and averaging the prize in all those, and, and that's what everybody gets. So you're getting more than you would for 23rd, but less than 6th. You, you really are just... You're adding up all the prizes from 6th to 23rd, dividing by 18, that's what everybody gets. So that was apparently uh, $3,079. Pretty far cry from a million, isn't it? I don't know what position this guy is in financially, but if he's an insurance agent, I would think that the million probably is going to help him a lot. That would be, that would be my guess. That would be my guess that a million dollars is not uh, Trump change to him. But that is what happens when you are 
when there's big money on the line in fantasy sports and officials are not thinking of that when they're changing calls. I don't know whether it should have actually been a sack, but that was the ruling. First it was a sack and then it was not a sack. But it definitely sacked Rob Huntsey's million dollars, that's for sure. Okay, some other news regarding DraftKings, but this time on the sports betting side, because they, they operate both daily fantasy sports and sports betting now. So uh, another DraftKings story, which also involves, uh, I wouldn't say a, a stat change, but it also involves officiating. This has to do with their sports betting side, as I mentioned. There was a game where there was a blown call, where the replays showed that the refs got it wrong, and it actually changed who won the game. And DraftKings decided, surprisingly, that they are going to refund the losing side. And that is something that uh, people weren't expecting to see. But I'll explain what happened, and I'll tell you why I think it happened. So this was a college game. And Penn State ended up losing by one point to Indiana. And DraftKings decided that they are going to refund, not pay, but refund. When I say not pay, is the people didn't win who were on the losing side, but they got their money back as if they never made the bet. So what happened was it was an overtime, and Indiana's quarterback, Michael Penix Jr., scored a two-point conversion to... uh, changed the score from 35-34 Penn State to 36-35 Indiana. However, when they looked at the replay after this had already been decided, it showed that the ball was actually out of bounds before Penix actually crossed the goal line. So that should not have counted. There should not have been this two-point conversion. It should have been ruled out of bounds and no points. So... uh, even though the play was reviewed, they did not overturn it. They claimed there was not enough evidence to overturn the call. However, many believed this was a robbery. And of course, this is a high-profile college football game, so a lot of people were talking about this. They weren't talking about it so much from the sports betting standpoint, but they were talking about it from the standpoint of Penn State got robbed here. And they probably did. It, it, most people who saw this replay, I haven't seen it, but most of us saw this uh really believed the call was wrong and that uh, Penn State got robbed. So what does DraftKings do about it? Well, they don't have to do anything because the way it works is whatever the final score is, is the final score. It doesn't matter if the ref's messed up. It matters what the actual official score is. All you're betting is the official score, not what contributed to the official score, not whether the official score was fair or not. It's just, is this the official score? Does your side win? Yes, no, okay. Then we will take action on the bet depending upon those results. That's it, black and white. But DraftKings decided to do something nice for the people on the other side of it. So people who were on the Indiana side got paid. People on the Penn State side, well, they were losers if they bet the money line. So the money line, the difference between the money line and the, sta- and the uh, spread, a money line is just based upon who is the actual winner doesn't matter how, how many points, just whoever wins the game uh, is the side that wins the money line. So in this case, because Indiana was the winner, 
an Indiana money line bet is the winner, and Penn State money line bet is a loser. So the people who bet on Indiana uh, got paid, and the people who bet on the money line for Penn State got zero point zero. Penn State was a six-point favorite in this game, despite losing outright. So a spread bet was not affected by this. So had Penn State held on to win 35-34, had that been ruled uh, out of bounds, then a Penn State minus six bet would still have lost, because that Penn State would have to win by six, and they would, would have won by one. So either way, Penn State by spread was losing. So those people were not refunded. But the people who bet the Penn State money line, where that blown call changed the result... DraftKings decided they're going to refund those people as if they never made the bet. And the people who won on the Indiana side, they got paid anyway. So doesn't this mean that DraftKings took a bath on this? Yes. DraftKings lost a lot of money on this because the people who bet Indiana won and people who bet on Penn State money line tied. DraftKings has not said how much money they are returning. They're not saying overall how much this cost them. But why would DraftKings do this? They don't have to. The regulations clearly don't say they have to. Nothing in the terms of service says they have to. So why would they do it? And in fact, there wouldn't be an expectation they have to. There wouldn't be a public expectation that they have to. In fact, there's no precedent for this. This has happened many times before where a bad call resulted in a change of the game result, and you just deal with it. If you're on the right side of it, then you you say, okay, I got lucky. I got a win I didn't deserve. And if you're on the other side of it, then you're pissed that you got ripped off by a bad call, but nothing you could do that's part of sports betting. So... Why did they do it? They did it for goodwill. They did it exactly for stories like these. They did it for the reason that I am covering this. They said, we know Dan Dreff is going to cover it on his show when his root canal pain goes away enough to where he can do a show. So we're, we, we know he's going to cover it. We're going to, we're going to pay it out. It doesn't matter if it costs us a ton of money. We know Dan Dreff's going to cover it, and that's going to get us a lot of business. Well, Dan Dreff and everybody else covering it because this has become a story that has been covered in a lot of sports media. And so what happens? You see this is covered and you go, wow, DraftKings, these are, this is a class act. They're doing something they don't have to do. They're refunding people based upon a blown call. I can't expect they'll always do that in the future, but wow, these are, this is a good business. They're very player friendly. This is exactly what I want in a sports book. Where can I sign up? So they figured that the publicity that this bought them, the goodwill this bought them was worth more than the money they were losing. That's why they did it. It was a business decision. So if you were on the right end of this, or even if you just uh, appreciate this, keep in mind this was not charity. This was not uh, DraftKings feeling bad for you. This wasn't DraftKings trying to do a good deed. This is DraftKings making a business decision that this gets them enough free advertising that it's worth it, that this is better advertising than buying an ad in an expensive spot. And they're probably right. So always be aware of that when a company does something like this. You're happy to take the money, and you may want to play with them in case something like this happens again, and you're on a side of it that would benefit. But don't say, oh, this is a nice company doing this. It, it was a calculated business decision. But anyway, either way, it happened. Okay, so we have uh, several more topics here. A lot of topics left. Whenever we skip a week, there's a lot of topics left. We have, it looks like, six topics left. That's a lot. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break here. Before I take a break, I want to tell you something. Eric Bensamakan, a.k.a. Bensamokin, 
I'm going to say them both so I can cover everything. He is a very good attorney. And while I do not have any updates for you right now that I can give you in my uh, current case where I am a defendant, I can tell you that I'm very impressed. I continue to be impressed with the job that he does. And I continue to be impressed with the ideas he comes up with and with his general understanding and insightfulness in the whole thing. And I can tell you that uh, he was quite a good choice as an attorney if you need one in California or for a federal case or if you need arbitration or mediation anywhere. Before, I could only guess because I had not used him personally. Now, as, a, as an actual client of his, in an ongoing case, I can tell you that I have personally witnessed that uh, he's doing an excellent job. So, uh, as you've seen tonight, you, you never know the way it's going to go in the court system, and you're somewhat at the mercy of uh, variance and randomness and people's moods and all that. Yeah, but... Uh, it always helps to have very good representation that stacks the odds uh, a lot more in your favor. So I can tell you that Eric Benzamokin or Bitsamakan, whatever you want to call him, he's, he's doing a great job for me. And I'm very happy with everything he's been doing. And I have a feeling that if you have some legal needs in California or federally, that he can help you as well. So I'm going to play you his ad, and all his contact information is right there in the ad, and definitely contact him if you think there uh, might be a way that uh, that he can help you. And I just wanted to say that. I know the ad speaks for itself, but the, the ad's old. The ad's a few years old before I actually used it myself, so I'm, I'm currently using it. I've, that, you know, every day I'm talking to him, so uh, I get uh, great visibility into his actual work now that I did not have before. It would kind of suck if I got visibility into his work and it was bad. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, that's not what happened. Fortunately, it was the opposite. So anyway, keep that in mind as you hear, you hear the ad, and I will be back to do the rest of our topics after these messages. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money... Or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally. And he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar. And he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. 
And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then you can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, we're back. We're going to move on here to talk about our next topic about the failure. There was actually a geolocation failure on WSOP.com, Poker Stars New Jersey, and Party Poker New Jersey, which, to be honest, uh, caused a bit of a problem. Let me tell you what happened here. On uh, October 22nd, there was uh, a problem with uh, people being kicked out of the tournament for uh, being told that they are not in the right location. If you remember, these legalized online poker sites are required by law to make sure that their players are within the state borders, physically within the state borders, where they're supposed to be. So, for example, on the Nevada sites, you have to be physically in Nevada. The New Jersey sites, you have to physically be in New Jersey. The Delaware sites, you have to be physically in Delaware. If at any point during the event, it determines that you have moved away from those places and you are now in a different state, it will kick you out in the middle. Like if you're in a tournament, if you're in a cash game, whatever, it'll just pick you up and you're gone. What will happen during a tournament, apparently, is it will call you, quote, disconnected. So uh, in a tournament, in a cash game, it'll, it'll uh, I don't know if it sits you out or if it kicks you out, but in a tournament, what it'll do is it'll treat it like a disconnect. It'll disconnect you, give a message that you're not in the location you're supposed to be and you need to return to the state where you are allowed to play. So, for example, if you're on your laptop playing in a car that somebody else is driving and they uh, cross over from the New Jersey side to the New York side and you're suddenly in New York, it should detect that and kick you out or at least sit you out of the game and not allow you to continue playing until you return to New Jersey. So uh, a number of players, a whole lot of players, were complaining that they were kicked off of various sites and that there was a massive geolocation failure where just tons of people were erroneously disconnected due to these uh, geolocation errors that falsely reported that they were outside the borders of where they're supposed to be when these people were actually in the right place. A. Hoosier A., who was on our show earlier, reported this on Poker Fraud Alert. He said, yesterday I was somewhat deep in the online circuit event playing from my phone when I got a message. 
we are having trouble verifying your location. I was not connected to Wi-Fi, so I connected to the Wi-Fi at the location I was at, and I got the same message. Now, the reason that's important is that they used to actually use more uh, accurate geolocation to tell where you were. They could actually do it through the cell phone towers to be able to determine your approximate location. They actually did away with that, as far as I know, and they just started doing it by IP. So uh, he was on a wireless connection, not uh, not Wi-Fi, just one through his cell phone provider in Las Vegas. And uh, it said, we can't determine your location. He's like, okay, it's probably they're probably having some kind of issue with uh, the wireless connection, which is, is known sometimes to have geolocation errors. So he said, okay, I'll connect to my Wi-Fi, which is going to be, uh, that's connected to a hardwired Las Vegas internet connection. For sure, that's not going to go wrong. So he connected his Wi-Fi and then, uh, nope, same message, can't, can't connect anymore. So he says, I hurried and, and drove home. I guess he wasn't at home when this happened. And connected to WSOP.com for my home PC, which is connected via Ethernet. Same issue. So it wasn't even Wi-Fi anymore. Now he was really hardwired to uh, his cable modem connection in Vegas. Still says he is not able to have his location verified. I can open up the lobby and see myself blinding out, but it seems I'm not the only one. So he he's able to actually watch his own uh, stack just go down, down, down from the blinds while he can't play until it can verify him. And... Uh, He's watching this happen, but he sees tons of others sitting out. He's like, oh, man, this must be like a massive failure. It's not just me. He said, look on 2 Plus 2 and Twitter, and multiple pros are saying the same thing. It didn't just happen to WSOP, though. It happened to all U.S.-facing sites that use the same geolocation software. Party Poker New Jersey suspended their tournaments, but WSOP did not. Some players were able to stay connected and took advantage of it, and the tournament played to a winner. Wow. Tony Dunst. He tweeted that uh, this happened. He, uh, this is after Chad Holloway tweeted that uh, Jesse Yaganuma, who is known as Patient Zero, topped a 474-entry field to win the WSOP.com Fall Online Circuit Series event number eight for $36,000, $261, and a gold ring. Tony Dunst responded, he sure did, after a truly abysmal experience on WSOP.com where almost every player was disconnected from geolocation issues and many of us were blinded out or gave up trying to log in. WSOP.com did not even bother tweeting when the events were back up. Wow. Complete incompetence. So uh, that, that was the first problem. Is that Okay, you'd like to think that this thing wouldn't happen. You'd like to think that seven years, more than seven years, into the legalized online poker experience, they would have the geolocation thing down. But okay, it is true they are using third-party contractors to do this, and it was the contractor's fault, and it wasn't just them. Party Poker and Poker Stars had the same failure. So let's not blame WSOP.com for this. But the fact that they did not communicate on Twitter what was going on, number one, that they were having these massive issues, and number two, that uh, once things were back up, I mean, you can say when it first happened, maybe they didn't know, but they definitely knew when they were back up, you would think, right? But he said they didn't even communicate on Twitter. That's, that's a huge failure on their part. I, I, I mean, I would say I can't believe it, but it's WSB.com, so I can't believe it. Anyway, a lot of people were not happy about this. A Hoosier A got a, a message from WSB.com. Dear player, thank you for contacting us. Unfortunately, our third-party geolocation service provider experienced an outage last night, which affected several sites. We're investigating the impact with the utmost priority, and we'll send an update upon the conclusion of our investigation. So then 
A Hoosier A on October 27th. This is now five days later. I wake up this morning to find an email stating the investigation is is complete and my account was credited with the $300 buy-in back. I log in to check if that money is there, and it is not. Whoa. I call support and I'm told, I see you received the email. We need to investigate why you didn't receive it. <laughs> yeah, that's very useful. The phone support for WSB.com is horrendous. All they do is say, yeah, either email support, they tell you, or okay, we'll let whoever needs to know and we'll get back to you. Like they, they can't look into anything. They can't help you with anything. They're pretty much just a voice on the other end to make you feel the good like somebody's listening. That's really all they are. So that looks like the case here. They couldn't even tell him whether whether he didn't whether he had the money or not. Well, we just see he received the email about it. We'll have to look of why he didn't get it. That's all we can tell you. So he said the fact that I just got my money back is straight ridiculous, and he didn't even get it at that point. The event was out of late registration, fifty paid, and I was twenty fourth at the time of disconnect with like ninety left. Sure, anything could have happened, but there's a guy that won 35k in a ring out there that somehow stayed connected and stole people's blinds. Well, I can't blame that guy. I mean, if, if he's in, he's in. But I understand his point that they didn't do any kind of uh, equity payout at all, that they only had 90 left and just all they did is refund people. He definitely had equity at this point. He was uh, 24th out of 90, and they uh, were paying 50. So a pretty good chance he at least min cashes and maybe a lot further. So A. Hoosier A was very unhappy about this, and for good reason. So what about the payment that never showed up? Was A. Hoosier A just really unlucky there, or was it perhaps was it perhaps something that was worse than that? Was, was perhaps there a problem that extended further than just him? What do you think? What do you think as far as them saying that he got paid and that didn't get paid? You think it was isolated to just him, or maybe just him and a few people? What do you think? Well, I took a look at the WSOP Twitter account. And on October 27th, the same day he got that email, five days after the tournament, they wrote this. Attention, WSOP.com users. All 1,072 entries affected by the outage on Thursday, October 22nd have been refunded. If you have any questions, please contact support. So then Ryan K. said, my account doesn't show it yet, but I'll take your word for it that it's coming. Then um, a number of other people said that they also didn't get it. Someone actually tweeted out the gif of Trump saying, wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Azaro wrote, received an email saying my account was credited. I received zero dollars. RDT Universe, I haven't been refunded either. Stanton Tentowski said, I have not been refunded. Kyle Collins, I have not been refunded. A. Bizzle said, I got the email but have not received the funds in my account. So tons of responses like this. So I don't know how many people had this happen, but they actually sent out a tweet and an email saying you got your money back, and a lot of people did not. I don't know if some did and some didn't, but there were a lot of people who did not. Because like of this tweet, of whom you know, many people didn't see it, it already got a lot of responses of people saying we didn't get it. So how did that happen? How do they email people saying that you have been credited and they were not credited? That can't be blamed on third-party providers. They just straight up messed up there. They just screwed something up and didn't credit these people. And these are mistakes you can't let happen. 
if a third-party provider screws something up, fine. But you've got to handle it well on your end. And you have to be very, very careful to do things right at that point. So you have to be communicating very well. You have to be watching for things like this that happen. You have to let people know when things are back up. You have to be very direct about the time frame people are going to have to wait until this is uh, investigated and resolved and people refunded. And when you do refund people, you have to make sure you really do refund them before saying you've refunded them. That's very, very basic. So the fact that they screwed all this up is embarrassing. And it shows that it's still not being run right over there. I understand people make mistakes. I understand human beings make mistakes. I understand blunders happen. But this was like a, a comedy of errors. They don't tweet when it's down. They don't tweet when it goes back up. They send out an email saying that you got your money back and then you don't have your money back. Like That's the worst of the whole thing. To actually send out an email five days later saying, okay, you guys, you've been refunded. And then you're not refunded. And then people who were close to cashing and pretty much on pace to cash uh, just got their money back, which is crappy too. I have to imagine that they are allowed by law to give back more. That by law, they probably have to refund everybody, but I, it's probably allowed that they can refund everybody plus give them more. So that's that, that whole thing's a clusterfuck. They're, they're still not managing that right. And I, I believe Danielle Burrell is in charge, and she should be ashamed of herself for the way this was handled. And if it was someone under her working when this occurred, and if by the time she got a hold of it, it was too late, uh, still she should be ashamed because uh, she should be the one dealing with things like this. This doesn't happen very often. Like when there's a massive geolocation failure, that's when you find – that's when you you have to have the poker room manager always available to be reached. That's someone who can't take any kind of vacation to where they can't be reached. They need need to have a phone with its ringer on next to them at all times. And when you get a call that this has happened, that's when you have to take charge and you have to come up with a plan on how to handle it. And it looks like they kind of – Flew by the seat of their pants, and they didn't check into things very well. And they uh, looks like the whoever was refunding it wasn't on, wasn't communicating very well with whoever was sending out the emails because one was before the other. It's a mess, and this shouldn't happen. It just there's no excuse. It just should not happen, and this just makes them look worse and worse. It makes them look incompetent. It makes it look stupid. It makes people not want to play there. It makes the WSOP a laughing stock. It makes their site a laughing stock. They cannot let these things happen. It's not hard. Really, it's not hard to find people who are going to handle this right. So I don't get it. I don't get how this can happen. And they'll never explain it. They won't explain internally how this happened. And I, when I say this, again, I don't mean the geolocation failure. They're using a third-party provider? Fine. If that fails, it fails. It affected two other sites. It would be unfair for me to blame WSOP for this when it's also the fault of of you know where it also occurred on party poker and poker stars it's if you, there's some things you just can't do yourself and if you require uh, help from other companies and the other companies drop the ball then i mean yeah it affects you but uh, at least you have an excuse but when you mess up your own resolution of it then you have no excuse it's not a gigantic deal i have to imagine people got paid by now but it's just incompetence it's dumb 775 Frauds 55, 775 is the number to this show. We still have plenty of topics. 
So if you just turned it on, if you just woke up on the East Coast, then you still have some live programming remaining before we shut this down. A lot of topics that occur whenever I'm gone for a week. Let's uh, move on to talk about uh, Dan Bilzerian. Dan Bilzerian is uh, embroiled in this ongoing controversy with his Ignite company, or about his Ignite company, not with them, but he's in a con- he's in a back and forth now, apparently, with this Tom Nash I've been playing from YouTube. Tom Nash has been obsessed with Bilzerian and his company Ignite, and he's been doing what he considers an expose on them, a multi-part expose where he keeps releasing videos every few days. I guess in terms of the last story, Tom Nash is kind of like Kevin Davis and uh, Dan Bilzerian is kind of like Christopher Mitchell. Kind of. I mean, I'm not going to say Dan Bilzerian is a scammer, but just it, it's kind of that way where there's one person who's like ex- obsessed with exposing another person that he feels is uh, doing something wrong. That's, that's where they're similar. And also where they're similar is that uh, they both seem to hate each other now. So Dan Bilzerian is very aware of the fact that Tom Nash is doing this. And Tom Nash has gotten a lot of publicity for it. He's gotten a lot more views. And even people like me have found him when I did not know Tom Nash even existed before. So that's, uh, I guess, a point for Tom Nash that he was able to parlay this into uh, a lot more YouTube views, which makes him a lot more money. So uh, I have played some of those on the show before. And I will tell you, that uh, I've been, I've had mixed feelings about Tom Nash because I feel like he's not always correct or not always honest. He make, he draws conclusions at the very least which are incorrect, which I know are incorrect. I'm not saying that everything he's doing is incorrect. I think a lot of what Tom Nash says is probably true, but I will also say that uh, there's conclusions that Tom Nash comes to which aren't fair, and where it seems like he really does want to sensationalize the whole thing. But at the same time, it seems like there is some validity to what uh, Tom Nash is saying from what I can see. So uh, what I like to do is I play some of these Tom Nash videos and I'll stop them and I'll comment when I think Tom Nash is being unfair. And I'll also comment when I think Tom Nash is bringing up a good point. So uh, apparently Dan Bilzerian finally got fed up and decided to respond to Tom Nash through a video. And uh, strangely enough, he, he chose a weird time to do the response. He was he chose to do this when he was uh, going to some kind of uh, shooting stunt he was doing. Pretty much all of Dan Bilzerian's activities that he shows you on Instagram are either shooting something or partying with hot chicks or gambling. It's, it's one of those three. So in this case, he was on the way to shoot something. He was he was driving a vehicle. That had uh, like some kind of armored vehicle with a, a gigantic uh, gun on it that he was going to fire at a truck and blow it up. So that's that's where he was on the way to, and that's for some reason that's when he chose to respond to Tom Nash, which is kind of weird. Like, why not do it from his office or at least his house? Instead, he does it while he's uh, driving this weird vehicle on the highway, and then uh, very weird. So that's that's when he chose to respond. And, of course, Tom Nash loved this. Tom Nash loves to get uh, attention like this because why not? Uh, Dan Bilzerian is much better known than Tom Nash. So Tom Nash loves that 
he's getting responded to finally because I, he did a lot of videos on Blazarian. Blazarian just didn't acknowledge him directly. I saw Blazarian starting to tweet things on, on like for those of you that think uh, Ignite's going bankrupt, keep waiting, it's not happening, good luck, things like that. But he he didn't directly address anything that was said, and he didn't mention Tom Nash, nothing like that. Well, now now the gloves are off. Now he's acknowledging that Tom Nash is after him and has been bashing him, and that uh, basically saying that uh, Tom Nash is full of crap. So, okay, let's get to the... I'm going to play you the Tom Nash video where Dan responds to him. And you'll, you know, this is going to be done from Tom Nash's point of view, so, of course, he's going to play something and then respond. But I, I, will, I will comment on the response... And I'll tell you where I stand with this because you know I'm going to be fair. I'm I have no dog in this fight. I'm not rooting for anybody. And to be honest, I think both men are worthy of criticism in this whole thing. Dan Bilzerian has spoken. The Oracle, the Manchild, the King of Simps, has responded to little old moi. You guys have been spamming my DMs on Instagram for the past few days. With Dan Bilzerian's Instagram story. By the way, if you're not still following me on Instagram, what the hell? Look what's going on there. Look at the drama. At I am Tom Nash. Do it now. Now, Dan Bilzerian posted an Instagram story in which he responded to my claims about Ignite going bankrupt. And this video is so asinine, it makes for great content. So let's watch it together and then let me tear it apart and make shish kebabs out of his arguments. Are you a truck driver now? What the hell is this? Yeah. Okay, so I mean, he does raise a good point. This is a weird time to bring up <laughs> to to bring up the response here. He says, "Are you a truck driver now?" That's that's where you sh- see Dan driving this armored vehicle on the highway, and eventually he ends up in some remote area where it's safe to blow up a car, and then you, you see him firing the gun. So then you you have Tom Nash mocking this. Oh yeah, look at this man-child wannabe Rambo. This isn't work, Mr. Bilzerian. This is being a man-child. What are you doing? I just want to remind you all that this guy is getting paid 500000 from Ignite for doing that shit. And so then they're now showing this, uh, this truck which Dan shot, which is on fire... 500,000 per year, which is double than what the presidents get, meaning John Schaefer, Curtis Heffernan, and like two and a half times more than the other officers oh, in the company. $500,000 for this. You're freaking buffoon. You want to put out the car before you do that shit. So they were picking up the car that was already destroyed and uh, with uh, with a crane, and the crane dropped it, and under the car it's on fire. So he's saying that they're morons to do that. It did look a little bit unsafe what they're doing there. but uh... Okay, let, let me stop. And answer this, because this is where I think Tom Nash is kind of unfair. Like it or not, Dan Bilzerian's brand is being the guy who shoots big guns, the guy who hangs out with hot chicks, and the guy who gambles. And that's his brand. That's how he got all the followers. You're supposed to look and say, wow, he has a really sweet, fun, carefree party lifestyle. I wish I were him. That's that's what he's going for. He's like this cool guy always having fun in very uh, stereotypically masculine ways. Okay, and it's worked. Like, look, look what type of following he has. He has a gigantic following, so this gimmick worked. 
how how much of it is his actual life and how much of it is staged is is obviously uh, something up for debate. And a lot of it is staged. And the girls that hang out with him in these Instagram pictures, they're almost all models. They are. So, yeah, a lot of this is staged. And that has to be taken into consideration. But look, I'll tell you, a lot of stuff is staged these days. Reality shows are mostly staged. A lot of things are staged. So whatever, you know, Dan, he really does this stuff. You know, he really does like shooting these guns. He really does like gambling. I mean, he, it's not like he's inventing an interest in these things. It's just they're, they're being uh, embellished for Instagram. And it's worked. It's gotten a lot of attention. It's gotten uh, tens of millions of followers, even if some are fake. It's, he still has a very, very large following. There's no doubt about that. And if he is parlaying that brand to be something that allows him to market an unrelated company that he is running, like Ignite, which sells uh, legal marijuana, if he thinks people may want to buy Ignite because he's the face of it, then continuing to do what he was doing to become popular in the first place is correct. Just because you're now the CEO of Ignite doesn't mean you start uh, behaving outside of Ignite like a responsible human being. You continue behaving in the way that drew people to your product in the first place. If this guy was just a regular CEO doing this stuff, then Tom Nash would have a point. But uh, since Dan Bilzerian's value is not his business sense, it's his uh, it's his image and what he does on Instagram, then yes, he should continue doing it. So this stuff is not really worthy of criticism. What are you doing? Jesus Christ. Somebody's going to get killed over this shit. I've been uh, having a panic attack because I haven't been posting lately, but... Okay, so, the, so then he, he's back at home, and he's, this is where he's responding about Tom Nash. Uh, I've been fucking working. And, uh, We've seen you work, you doofus. You know, these online bloggers talking shit, saying that uh, I'm going broke, Ignite's going broke. Motherfucker, I ain't ever going broke. Just put $25 million in Ignite. Uh, we had an idiot first president. He's incompetent. I fired his ass. Um, our new guy is crushing it. Now, he's referring to the president of Ignite. The idiot first president, he's not talking about the president of the U.S. He's not bashing Trump or Obama or anything like that. We're killing it with Nick. It's uh, All the 1500s are sold out. Just got a big order in, so they're good. Going to have a profitable fourth quarter. Now, as far as putting in work, we just saw Dan Bilzerian work so hard. Beyond the fact, it's very hard to lose 70% of your share price within just a couple of months. Dan Bilzerian managed to take this company from $1.50 to about $0.50 cents in just a span of a few months. And that is, ladies and gentlemen, hard work. Don't underestimate Dan. It takes a lot of work to be that bad at management. Now... The second claim is that he himself is never going to go bankrupt, neither Ignite, and he just put in $25 million into the company. Now, these are actually three claims in one, but we'll address them together. I know that your dad has what you would call an FU money. I don't know the origins of that money. The SEC probably has a better idea where this money came from, but this money is allegedly hidden in all sorts of trust funds around the world, and that money can really allow you to do whatever it is you do on your Instagram stories. Now about that, Dan, let me explain to you how financial reports work, because it seems, based on what you're saying, that you clearly can't read financial reports. Maybe I'm wrong. Do your own research, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let me stop there for a second. So then he's going to get to the better criticisms here. Uh, I will say that what he's having to say about uh, Dan's dad, there is some uh, reason to suspect that uh, the money that is coming in is from Dan's dad, and there's reason to suspect that the 
money that Dan's dad has uh, wasn't obtained in, uh, let's just say, uh, traditional fashion. So uh, there's a lot of questions about the money in the Bilzerian family and where the money's coming from that is being put into Ignite, like this $25 million that's being infused there. So these are valid questions. It's just my opinion. Now, according to your own financial reports, the company's out of cash. Now, you've put in $5 million into the company, or your daddy, I don't know which one of you, not 25 like you claim, you put in five, which will give them a few more months, about six more months, give or take. You also paid off a loan that would have crushed the company. So while it is true that you or your daddy spent $25 million to save the company, only $5 million went into the actual cash flow of the company, which will put you in the same situation around March or April where you need more cash. And unless your daddy or you, whoever beneficially owns the money, <laughs> and then will pay more cash to keep it alive, this is going to be the same situation in March or April of 2021. Now, his next claim was that the first president of Ignite was really an idiot. They fired him. They got a new guy. Now they're doing great. Now, let me remind you, Dan, that you switched four different presidents in the past two years. So which president are you talking about? Is it Jim McCormick, the guy you hired in 2019 only to lose him after nine months? I don't know how you can lose a human being. Then you hired Curtis Heffernan which lasted until June 2020, then he left, you hired Lester Lee, you fired him and kept him as a board member. I have no idea how this can be. And then you hired John Schaefer from your current COO position to serve as the COO and the president since September. Which president are you talking about? The first president was three presidents ago. So which president is the idiot out of these four? I have to know because Lester Lee which was the former president before the guy you just hired, John Schaefer, is currently on your board. So the idiot president you just fired is still sitting on your board of directors? Do you even know this? Speaking of things you don't know. <laughs> that is kind of funny. That is kind of funny that there are actually four presidents. And he said, yeah, the current, the last president was an idiot. We fired him. And the guy now is killing it. He's great. <laughs> and Tom Nash is like, actually, there were some other presidents in between. And there were four presidents. And in fact, there was one guy in between these two you're talking, you're probably talking about because this Curtis Heffernan is suing them. So that's probably the quote idiot that's involved that, uh, Dan Blazerian's talking about. So Tom Nash is saying, do you even know there's a guy there in between? You don't know what the profitable quarter looks like. You're saying that the fourth quarter will be profitable? You've never had a profitable quarter in your life. This company since 2018 all the way to today has never had a profitable quarter. How are you going to just magically conjure up a profitable quarter? Let me show you. Look at these numbers. This is from 2018. This is from 2019. This is your gross profit, $700,000, $2 million. And this is your expenses, the operating expenses. $17 million and $45 million. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's pretty indicative of a company that's not being managed well. That in, And this is in their uh, statement, of, their consolidated statements of loss and comprehensive loss. And I, I don't, I haven't verified this is real, but I have to imagine that uh, Tom Nash is showing the real stuff. It says, for the year ended December, 20, December 31st, 2018, they had gross profit of $706,000, but then they had operating expenses of a little over $17 million, meaning that they lost over $16 million that year in 2018. And then for 2019, it says that their gross profit was 
2.1 million, but then their operating expenses were 45 million, so they lost about 43 million. It's crazy. And what's not crazy is that we have Trader Ruski back. Welcome back, Trader Ruski. What's happening, Drop? It sounds like Bill Zarian's set to run for president. Yeah. <laughs> with the Ray Runs businesses. Okay. I just had to call in when I was hearing that. Okay. What's well, happening? I, could, I just couldn't stay awake. Uh, okay. Beginning of the show, but I'm here now. You're here. Okay. You stand awake. So, yeah. So, anyway, I mean, this is a good point that Tom Nash is bringing up that this is losing astounding money in, in 18 and 19 and, uh, it, it's hard to imagine that they're quote killing it now because this wasn't just like slightly under profitable. This was they, they were get, getting destroyed there for, by their own statements. So uh, I, I think it's very likely that this company is going to continue to hemorrhage money based upon what we're seeing. I'm really not seeing any evidence that anything they're doing now is so radically different that they're going to turn it around and make money. The whole thing is is kind of strange to me. So I'm going to play the remainder here. This is for 2018 and 2019. You've managed to lose, I don't know how, over $70 million in 2018 and 2019 while making a gross profit of only $2.8 million. I've never- That's not really, it's $61 million, but yeah, who's counting? It's close enough. I've seen this happen. You definitely don't know what a profitable quarter looks like. And things are not different for 2020. In 2020, this is your gross profit per quarter, about $600,000. And these are your loss from operations, 11.1 million and 8.2 million. So let's recap, Mr. Profitable Fourth Quarter. Since 2018, you've lost almost $100 million, made a gross profit of about $4 million. And now you're claiming that after you fired the former president, which is still on your board of directors, that you're finally going to have a profitable quarter. And what is your genius plan, Mr. Bazarian? Okay, so he's exaggerating these numbers a bit. They were... Uh... It looks like they lost about eighty million, according to these statements I saw. Not a hundred. He said almost a hundred. I wouldn't say eighty is almost a hundred, but eighty is a lot. I mean, they're, they're not anywhere near profitable. They're just blowing through money there. So you got to wonder what's going on over there. Your profits are trash because your margins are bad. You're stuck with millions of inventory. You went through four presidents in two years. Your distributor in Canada just dumped you. You've lost almost $100 million in just two years, and your company is in shambles. You lost 70% of your share price in just a few months. So unless you believe in the multiverse, where some other alternate version of you actually has a good company, there is no way you're going to have a profitable fourth quarter, Dan. Now, before I check out, I want to give a huge shout out to John from Norway, our subscriber. He got. Okay, I don't care about John from Norway, but here's what I do care about. You may wonder, how is this even possible? Let's look. This is a... a, a this is a marijuana company. They're selling legalized marijuana. They're able to, according to their own statements, make a, what looks like a small profit on what they're selling versus what they're spending for the goods. So it's not that they're spending more to grow it and and produce it and distribute it. It's not like they're doing that. It's not like they, in the actual selling of the goods, that they're not able to uh, recoup their expenses. They, they're able to, not by that much. They're making very little relatively, but... Uh, they're able to do it. So where's all this other money coming in? I didn't look that carefully, but it looks like the company just has runaway expenses of which a lot of that fat could be trimmed. And it looks like they're not doing it. It looks like that they're, they're still going very big. They're still spending a lot of money and it just doesn't seem like the revenue is there, nor is it likely to be there. I mean, that, that's just what it appears from by looking at their own statements. I can't see how they're going to turn around the type of money they're spending, how they could bring in 
any kind of revenue to even begin to break even. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. So then you have to wonder, is the goal here actually to make money or is there something else going on? And there might be something else going on. They could just be really, really inept and are just losing money super fast or there, there could be other things that are going on here. This could be by design. Who knows? There's Sometimes when something appears to lose money, it's not what it actually appears to be. Let me just say that. So uh, I don't know. I have no information on this. I'm just throwing out possibilities, but it's weird. It's weird that they are not uh, greatly bringing down the expenses while they uh, attempt to get profitable. It, it doesn't make sense when your company has outsized spending and the revenue coming in is small and you continue with the same outsized spending that doesn't seem to really be likely to change anything. I've seen it happen before, but it, it it's a terrible strategy and you have to think that with all the people working at this company that people aren't dumb enough to believe this is going to work and you have to think Dan and his father are not this dumb. So something weird is happening here. And uh, obviously this is bothering Dan Bilzerian because this wasn't getting any attention, at least that I saw, until Tom Nash started doing this. So this has got to be a real thorn in his side. What, whatever's going on there, this is not good for Dan Bilzerian. And it's annoying, and I don't know if there's anything he can do to stop it. Because, uh, again, you know, he can try to sue Tom Nash, but Tom Nash, uh, the, the truth is the defense of, to any kind of defamation. And, and for sure, uh, Dan Bilzerian is a, a public figure. There's no question about that. And, I mean, and Tom Nash is using a lot of the, the cold, hard numbers the company's providing. Like, they, they can't come in court and say, uh, no, we're actually not losing this much. No, if, they, if they put this on their own statement, then they are, and Tom Nash has a right to say it and, and publicize it. So uh, it's a publicly traded company. So uh, th- this is kind of a thorn in Dan's side, and there's not much he can do about it. And, and it's even possible that if, if he does try to sue Tom Nash, that Tom Nash may not even go quiet. He may just say, F it, I'm going to keep, you know, he may think it's worth it to keep up the channel to hope to grow the channel because Tom Nash, by his own admission, quit his job to do this. This is what he does now. This is his what he does for a living. He's trying to become a YouTube personality. How is Tom Nash doing as far as uh, YouTube personality-wise? He's doing pretty well, but he's not huge. So he has 76,000 subscribers. And this video, which was released on October 29th, which is now looks like probably like a day and a half ago, it has 179,000 views. That's pretty good. And that'll make him some money. It's not going to make him the huge money like the super big YouTube personalities are. But as far as a non-gaming YouTube channel, which this is, that, those are pretty good numbers. And the fact that he's racking up so many views in a day and a half shows there's a lot of interest in this story. And that's why Tom's running with it, because this is the biggest thing he's done. So uh, Tom Nash really wants to uh, become famous, or at least YouTube famous, by exposing Dan Bilzerian and Ignite. And as I said, he sometimes sensationalizes it and jumps to conclusions I don't think are fair. But if the meat of what he's saying is true, and he raises a lot of good points, which I think he does, then uh, that doesn't matter quite so much if he sensationalizes some things or uh, jumps to some conclusions which aren't totally correct. So uh, I think Tom Nash is going to press this very hard and... I think Dan doesn't have much of a choice, and I do think it's very likely that the ultimate uh, 
the future, shall I say, is that Ignite will cease to exist. That Ignite's going to shoot off a ton of money and it's going to be gone. And then Tom Nash will do a victory dance and say, look, I, call, I told you so, I told you so, look, I was calling it the whole way. It doesn't take a genius at this point to see it. But but Tom Nash has been pulling out all the details and has been really hammering this where nobody else has that much. So, uh, Trader Risky, I, I heard you were, you were about to say something. You have a comment here? Yeah, just that, <clears throat> excuse me, didn't, you know, I would think that it's, he's just running these expenses through the business. You know, so he can write off stuff that he's normally doing and then just contribute it. Oh, this is marketing the business, you know? And I just feel like he doesn't want to, you know, if this was a private company, that's one thing. But if you're a public company doing stuff like this, and then they can talk about like piercing the, the, the uh, corporate seal or, or the corporate veil, I forget what it's called, you know, as far as is, when you start, um, commingling, you know, your personal and your business. Yeah. And then I don't know how the fathers involved. I mean, they could be, you know, especially he's been dicking around the SEC before. I mean, I feel like, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why he's coming back and upset. He just doesn't want anybody kind of taking a deep look into the company. Well, right, right. He might just be funding his lifestyle. Right. Like, definitely, whatever's going on here, he doesn't like Tom Nash drawing all this attention to it. And uh, at first he was kind of ignoring it. Then he starts making veiled references on Twitter, and finally he just he just outright responded because he was he was getting uh, pissed that this, this is so relentless. But it's not going to stop, and and whatever right. is happening here is, is going to keep being exposed. And uh, and yeah, these things these concerns you're bringing up are all correct, and and it might get Dan in trouble one day when this gets looked into, especially with a loss a current lawsuit going on from this former president uh, Curtis Heffernan. Yeah, and I, I'd say anybody that's involved in the company, investors, they'll probably all start asking, hey, what's going on? I mean, that might have pushed him to respond, too, you know? Yeah, they, they, right. There might be some outside pressure of the for saying, hey, you know, how come you're not answering this guy and the, this is making us look terrible? So, yeah, this is this is a tough one for Dan Bilzerian, and uh, we'll have to see where this goes. I'm going to continue monitoring this, and uh, especially now, now that uh, Dan's responding may even get uh, more interesting. So we will see where this goes. It does look like they have enough uh, operating cash for the next uh, six or so months, but we'll see beyond that uh, where this goes. And I, I have, I'd have i be shocked if this company exists for too much longer. It, I, it looks like it may not even be designed to exist for that much longer. It's just strange they'd have this company public, you know? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, if they have all the money. It's like you're just signing a spotlight. You're, you're, you're opening yourself up to audits and stuff like that. And it's just like, it doesn't really make sense unless it was like a scat type thing. But who knows? How long have they been public for, Jeff? Do you know? I'm not sure. I, I didn't really pay much attention to this until uh, Tom Nash started talking about it and someone brought my attention to it. And then I kind of had to catch up. Yeah, because there's these things, I think they're called scats. Do you know about that? No. So it's it's almost like there's like a shell company that's public, right? And if you get a company at a certain size, rather than taking it public and going through all that expense, there are these things called scat. I think that's the acronym. And basically what you can do is take a company like his, roll it up under this already public, almost like shell company, and then there's these companies that basically can then just roll it in and then hype it and grow it. And then the founders keep a percentage and they're able to get funded. It's kind of a new thing I've been learning a lot about. But um, it could have been something like that mm. where, 
Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just kind of interesting that just you know, kind of seeing from preferably how he runs his life that he want that, especially with the the problems that the father apparently had years earlier. You know. Yeah. So then there's a second part to the Dan Bilzerian story that uh, isn't really related to the Ignite thing, but I find very interesting, and someone brought this up in the forum. I, believe, I think it was Willie McFML who brought it up, but pretty interesting. And I think uh, this might even be a, a more interesting story, at least for the moment. It's not as complicated, and there's not as much to say about it, but as far as uh, what, as far as being worth discussing of, of kind of a little scandal, I think it is worth talking about. This is about the claim that Dan said that he was a cop. And people didn't pay that much attention to it. And yeah, people kind of wondered what did he mean by this, but uh, whatever. Be like, that's not worth paying that much attention to. But now that we have learned how he was a cop, it's very, very interesting. So apparently there is what's known as a badge mill, which to my knowledge, never existed before in New Mexico, that a tiny town in New Mexico that was so small they couldn't afford to fund a police department created a volunteer police force. And then the one who volunteered to head up the police force ended up uh, signing up all these police officers, 82% of whom did not live even in New Mexico and uh, was basically selling badges for not even that much money, where you could actually become a police officer of that town and you get a lot of privileges that go along with it once you are an actual police officer. You get a lot of privileges in New Mexico and then you even get some like concealed carry uh, outside of New Mexico. So listen to this report. This is from a, a TV station in New Mexico and at the time this didn't get that much attention, but it's coming into attention again because one of the people who got one of these badges that he paid for was none other than one Dan Bilzerian. How did a rural New Mexico village with a population of 430 end up with a rogue police department of more than 100 officers? Tonight, News 13 investigative reporter Larry Barker has the results of a two-month investigation. Who's playing cop? Larry Barker investigates. It's kind of like going back to the Wild West. When I first looked at it, I went, oh my God. It makes absolutely no sense. It's dangerous. It's inexcusable. To the casual observer, this is just a picturesque village 30 miles south of Roswell. But behind the scenes, there's something terribly wrong. In Lake Arthur, New Mexico, population 430. The focus of our investigation is on the police department. Now, officially, Lake Arthur doesn't really have a police department. This building was abandoned years ago. Today, the village pays volunteer cops 20 bucks a year to occasionally write speeding tickets. But a News 13 investigation finds unofficially Lake Arthur has amassed an underground police force with more than 100 gun-toting officers on its roster. None of them live in Lake Arthur. In fact, most don't even live in New Mexico. For example, Lake Arthur Police Sergeant Comey Chantrell lives in California. Sergeant Jonathan Gourley lives in Colorado. And Sergeant Dwayne Liptak lists a Texas address. It's a scheme cooked up by Lake Arthur's volunteer police chief, Will Norwood. 
Our investigation finds Norwood passed out authentic-looking police credentials to scores of friends, associates, and celebrities across the country. Bill Fulginetti heads up the New Mexico Municipal League. Bill, in your 40 years at the, here at the Municipal League, have you ever seen a situation like this? No, never. Not at all. It's just, it just actually blew me away. State Police Chief Pete Cassettis serves on the Law Enforcement Academy Board. My opinion is it's a complete sham. My opinion is that what's happening in Lake Arthur needs to be stopped immediately. And that chief needs to be held responsible. The Lake Arthur badge scheme has been going on for 13 years. We started it out as a, as a way to have uh, uh, law enforcement, more law Now this is uh, the mayor of Lake Arthur, Isidro Salazar. Enforcement here in, here in the town. Isidro Salazar is Lake Arthur's mayor. Our community is so small that we can't afford uh, to pay a, a police officer a lot of money. So how do you keep the peace? Well, Lake Arthur Police Chief Will Norwood made a suggestion. He came up with the idea that, that hey, you know, maybe we can uh, have some reserves and, and they'll help us out. Norwood proposed forming a Lake Arthur posse of sorts, a group of volunteers called reserve officers who could help keep the village safe. Now, because reservists are not certified police officers, they don't have law enforcement powers and they can't make arrests. The Lake Arthur Reserve Police Program was launched in 2005, but instead of recruiting local residents, the chief rounded up a posse from across the country. There were ex-military buddies, gun enthusiasts, and a handful of celebrities. So Dan Bilzerian was, his picture, they, they showed on the map like a bunch of them, and Dan Bilzerian was there on the, like covering the state of Nevada. Like military hero and lone survivor author Marcus Luttrell from Texas signed up, so did Rob O'Neill, the ex-Navy SEAL who claimed to have killed Osama bin Laden. Mixed martial arts legend Hoist Gracie and his brother were recruited, along with jiu-jitsu guru David Adiv from New Jersey. So was ex-Navy SEAL Andrew Arabito, who calls California home. More than 80% of the Lake Arthur police force live out of state. They were here and volunteer. They would fly in, do their time, and then they would go back home. Our investigation finds Lake Arthur's chief abused his authority by passing out legitimate police credentials, allowing private citizens to wear badges, carry guns, and play cop. Why do you think these guys want a New Mexico police credential? There's probably a couple reasons. Many people want to be police officers and just can't. So what, the, what, what seems like what they're doing is they're somewhat buying their way in. The town council was told reservists would be volunteers and have limited law enforcement authority. However, in exchange for a $400 annual fee, the credentials Norwood issued gave his friends full police powers with statewide authority. A Lake Arthur Commission card allows private citizens to wear badges, carry concealed weapons, and bypass accredited training. So th that's pretty amazing. So for $400, you could actually buy your way into being a full New Mexico police officer. And once you are a police officer in New Mexico, in any even in a tiny town like that, then New Mexico is your jurisdiction. You actually could make arrests. You actually do have police powers in all of New Mexico. And 
as they're going to describe shortly, you can carry a weapon anywhere in the country, regardless of local concealed carry laws. So these are uh, advantages that a lot of these people wanted. And all you had to do is know the guy who was in charge of it and pay 400 bucks. Now, I don't believe he was openly selling this on the Internet or anything. You see, there's only like 100 or so people. And had this been open to the general public, you probably would have had uh, thousands of people or tens of thousands. But uh, he found select people who were interested in it that he probably knew through a little network, like friends of friends, whatever. Dan Blazerian was one of them. And uh, these people all became reserve police officers, more than reserve, they became full police officers. They're supposed to be reserve, but they're full police officers. And they would fly in for a short amount of time, hand out a few tickets, drive the, the police car there to ticket a few motorists, and then go back, and they've they've done their duty for the year. And since there's 100 of them, there's not much to do. If you think about it, if there's, uh, let's say there's 104, that would mean each person would really only need to do this for three and a half days to cover the whole year. What is the difference between some businessman with a Lake Arthur badge living in California and a New Mexico state police officer? The difference is 22 weeks of on-site, closely evaluated training. The difference is the 14-step process to even get to the academy. Uh, the difference is, is that my officers aren't able to walk in, write a check, and then leave with a badge and credentials and a gun. Lake Arthur's police roster includes businessman Oliver Brooks. Now, Brooks calls himself Captain Brooks and keeps a Lake Arthur patrol car parked in the driveway of his Los Ranchos estate north of Albuquerque. Albuquerque's Jordan Nybert has a Lake Arthur commission and falsely claims on his resume to be a certified police officer. Even though Texan Alan Brooks is not a police officer, he used his Lake Arthur credentials to take part in an Artesia drug raid, in which a suspect was shot and killed. He was not charged. Charles Pressburg flashed his village credentials after he was busted for shooting his brother-in-law in Oregon. Pressburg was later convicted. And when former Navy SEAL J.D. Smith was charged with drug smuggling by the DEA in North Carolina, he carried Lake Arthur police credentials. Albuquerque attorney Simon Kubiak has no police training. However, Lake Arthur records name him as a police lieutenant. As head of the Lake Arthur Police Reserve Association, Kubiak collects the $400 in annual dues from each of the posse members. However, the Albuquerque attorney would not release an accounting of the funds. If that's interesting, too. Where, where is that money going? Like who is pocketing the money? Is it, is it the guy who's in charge of the whole thing? Is it uh, him and this attorney who's overseeing the collection of the money? That part's weird, too. That should be going to the town. <laughs> what, what the hell? Like well, that, that seems like embezzlement of public funds to me. But that uh, anyway, that was found as well. And obviously, this is very disturbing that anyone could just buy their way into being a police officer. And I haven't you'll see, when I play the remaining uh, two and a half minutes here, you will not hear any description of anyone using their police power to make arrests or to uh, investigate people. But they could have. If you are a police officer, uh, while you do need a warrant to uh, get certain records or whatever, if you're investigating someone, uh, if the if whoever you're requesting the records from wants to cooperate, of course they always can. If they refuse, then yes, you need a warrant. Or, but uh, you you can you can go to ask for information on somebody you're investigating. Maybe just a 
someone in your personal life you're having a dispute with. And you can say, I'm a police officer, I, I want these records. And a lot of times, uh, business owners or managers will give it up because, hey, it's a police officer, of course I will, especially if it's within the same state. But even out of state, a lot of times people want to cooperate with the police because usually there's a good reason to and you want to help. So that's another way this could be abused is these are officers with an air of legitimacy who might be able to get information given to them uh, that should be private and claim it's part of an investigation. Now, they haven't said this happened. But it could have. There's over 100 people involved here. Who, so who, know, who knows what these guys did? State Representative Bill Ream is a retired Bernalillo County Sheriff's Captain. Based on what you know today, what's going on in Lake Arthur, Bill? It looks like to me it's a fraternity uh, that wants to carry concealed guns. Is the Lake Arthur Police Department by the book? Absolutely not. They're not following any of the procedures uh, prescribed by the Law Enforcement Academy, and the documentation that you showed me is totally inadequate to uh, even be a police agency. How would you characterize what's going on in Lake Arthur? People from outside the state, and some inside the state, but mostly outside the state, are taking advantage of, of a small village and their ability to issue commission cards and use those uh, to get carry and conceal authorization and further their own interest in, in kind of like paramilitary. What is your advice to the chief in Lake Arthur? This is an abuse of your power. You need to cease and desist operating this program and you need to recall all those credentials immediately. Will Norwood did not show up for a scheduled interview. Two weeks ago, he turned in his resignation. Does it bother you that Chief Norwood handed police commissions to uh, as many as 150 people, many of them his friends? They're asking this to the mayor. Who live out of state? Uh, yes, I guess it would bother me. Yeah, it, it does. So what's the status of the reserve officer program today? Uh, because of you asking for the names to be released, uh, a lot of the reserve unit uh, resigned. So when they resigned, I dismantled the reserve unit. The mayor says Lake Arthur police credentials have now been recalled. We tried to do good in the community, and, and it just got away from us, I guess, Larry. Larry Barker, KRQE News. Pretty amazing story. So it's over. This, this was two years ago it ended. So Dan has not been, quote, a police officer in uh, two years. During the Stephen Paddock shooting in October 2017, you might remember Dan Blazerian had a small part in uh, running around with a gun trying to find out who was doing it, which is kind of stupid given where it was. It was up in a hotel room. Dan couldn't have done anything on the ground. But uh, there was a video of him interfering with a police officer that was kind of uh, crouching behind a wall. And Dan wanted the police officer to give his gun to him. And he's like, I don't know. You get away. And Dan kept saying... I'm a cop. I'm a cop. He said, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. If you're a cop, you know better than this. You know, you've got to stay away from me. And that's people were wondering what he meant by I'm a cop. Well, that's what it was. He was this uh, fake New Mexico cop, which he no longer is. Now, what does this say about Dan Blazerian? Does this make him evil? No. I mean, you, you can see the appeal to some of these people that have kind of wanted to be police officers and want to carry their weapon a lot of them feel that uh, it should be their right to conceal carry and this is a way they can this is a loophole they could use to get around it and it was going to be hard to really suffer any kind of legal consequences for this because you're just basically taking advantage of an offer to you 
you're not uh, this. You're not a ringleader. Of this, like the one who could get in trouble, was this quote police chief, or maybe the attorney who was helping him administer the program. But the guys like Dan, they're just kind of uh, taking him up on the offer to pay this money and become a. Uh, I, I don't know how the, ju- the money can be justified. That's the one place I guess that could get tripped up is the fact, you know, why are you paying money to become a police officer? But they could say, oh, I thought I was paying an administration fee. There's a lot of stories they can give as a uh, why they were spending four hundred dollars to get it. But anyway. That's, uh, that's a little side note, and I had no idea such a thing ever existed. I had no idea. I've thought before about small-town police and even university police to some degree that it feels weird to me that once you are a police officer that you really have authority within the entire state. And that's kind of strange to think about for some of these tiny police forces and even like university police forces that it, it kind of feels weird that this person would have authority throughout the entire state but but they do not just in new mexico and i always wondered will there be abuse of this and here's the answer yes in a different way than i ever pictured but yes there is and of course you've probably seen i know these are fictionalized but you've, you've seen i'm sure tv dramas and stuff like that where uh, someone goes through a small town and uh, runs into some sort of issue where there's a corrupt small town police department that uh, screws with them in some way, either for money or just because they're evil or whatever it is. And they get a raw deal because the, the local small police force is very corrupt. So you think about these things and you wonder, you know, these people are officers with, with statewide authority. It, it, could this ever be a problem outside of these towns? And here's an example of how it could be and how this type of thing can happen. So it has been disbanded because of the publicity that was brought to it. It's funny how the mayor, you could tell the mayor, I don't know if he was in on it or just wanted to look the other way. It, it almost seemed like he was mad at the at the TV station. Well, oh, because of the publicity you brought us, yeah, they, these people felt uncomfortable and had to turn it in because they, you know, we didn't want to release the names. Like, so they, Apparently this guy wasn't even cooperative. He didn't want to release the names of the reservists. And uh, so, so then these reservists got nervous and quickly turned in their badges. But wow, that's, that's pretty bad. And Dan was uh, one of those people. He's right. His piece pictured right there. But truck, didn't the L.A. Sheriff Department have something like this a few years ago with the guy that got arrested? Uh, what's the, you know, the uh, the guy who was sheriff forever. Um, he got indicted on, um, I forgot what the charge was. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The balding guy. Um, I forgot his name. But anyway, I know he had. Some yeah, you're. you're t- yeah, you're talking about uh, Lee Baca. Yeah, Lee um, Baca, right? And I and I I know he was. It wasn't like full blown badges. Like it sounds like this thing was, but they were making them like honorary sheriffs or something. And then they got, you know, they certainly, you know, got some privileges. I'm not sure if it was just getting out of tickets or something, but I think that was a scandal around the time he got uh, ousted. Yeah, um, and so you know, and look, I just wouldn't be surprised. I mean, look, this is one place; they're the only ones doing it. There's got to be a million small towns that are doing stuff like this. Yeah, he was. He was actually. It looked like he got in trouble for uh, obstruction of justice and like kind of a cover up of a, of a brutality and corruption investigation. I, I didn't hear about anything like this where there was uh, badges handed out, but maybe that was happening too. Who knows? Yeah. Well, that's. An interesting side story to this whole thing, not related to Ignite, but just uh, an interesting story that came out because of the increased focus on Dan Bilzerian. Some people started looking into him, and that was one of the things that came out. Okay, 
I am going to move on to our next topic here. Uh, Vital Vegas has an update with their case. I have an update for you, shall I say, with the uh, situation with them. Vital Vegas, if you remember, (coughs) was in a legal battle with the Sahara because the Sahara is suing them. Vital Vegas said that they're going to be closing and kept putting that out there. And Sahara started telling them, stop saying this, we're not closing. And Vital Vegas just kind of kept doing it. And at first, it looked like that Sahara had a good point with their lawsuit. It looked like that they may have a decent case because they were saying, we kept trying to tell Vital Vegas they're incorrect. It's hurting our business. People are canceling conventions. People are canceling uh, uh, business travel to us. People are canceling personal trips here. Employees are leaving to go work elsewhere because they're sure we're going to close. And Vital Vegas kept saying or implying that they're going to be closing on September 1st, 2020, which, which didn't happen. But uh, it did look like this was more than just them putting out a rumor. It looked like Sahara was answering them and saying, we're not, we're not, we're not. And Vital Vegas just wasn't believing him and kept putting it out. So uh, to me, this looked pretty bad. And I thought that uh, Vital Vegas, which is actually one guy, it's a guy named Scott Robin. I thought that this looked pretty bad and they were probably going to lose this. Well, Scott Robin hired Mark Randazza, who's a First Amendment attorney who has a Las Vegas office, and he's appeared on CNN before. He put out an anti-slap response to this lawsuit, which basically anti-slap is a motion you can file in uh, lawsuits that are in California or Nevada that can get them quickly dismissed based upon the allegation that the lawsuit was filed frivolously simply to chill free speech. And uh, in this response, Randazza raised a number of good points, including some of which I was not previously aware. For example, that a liquidator went and brought this to uh, Scott Robin and told him that uh, the Sahara had contacted them about uh, liquidating the entire Sahara Casino. And the liquidator also told him that the behavior engaged by the Sahara was very consistent with companies that were very serious about really doing it, not just ones kind of exploring it, and gave him very specific uh, information of uh, why it was uh, specific behavior that was very much in the pattern of companies that really are about to liquidate and shut down. So then Randazza insisted that the Sahara is a public figure, not a person at the Sahara, but the Sahara itself, the business of the Sahara, the Sahara Hotel, is a public figure because it's a widely known hotel brand. And therefore, uh, defaming it, it needs to be held to the very high standard of what's called actual malice. And actual malice means that uh, when you made a statement, not only uh, that it has to be something you know isn't true when you say it. So for there to be actual malice, you can say something that's false, and it's not actual malice unless you know it's false, unless you're knowingly lying. So if you're saying something you believe is true but isn't, and if it's defamatory, as long as you really believed it when you said it, it's not actual malice. And actual malice is required for defamation to be uh, to be proven. If the one who is uh, being, who's accusing you of defaming them is a public figure. So the combination of the Sahara being a public figure and the uh, 
the fact that Mr. Robin was given all this information from this liquidator, which would definitely make him believe that uh, it's likely the Sahara uh, could be shutting down. That would that, that that combination right there would show that there was no actual malice. That at the very least, vital, vital Vegas was convinced the Sahara was shutting down and had been shown evidence that this might be happening, and therefore they weren't just maliciously saying it to make up lies. And it's it's a good argument. So when I saw that, and I saw this, and I've talked about it before on the show, I saw this in late September. So I thought that Vital Vegas had a good chance at beating it. Well, on October 20th, Mark Randazza tweeted out, Another day, another anti-slap win. This time, I won on behalf of Vital Vegas. So the case is over, and it has been dismissed through anti-slap. And it's not mentioned here, but... Vital Vegas will be able to recover his their attorney's fees, which are probably pretty expensive with Mark Randaz's office, from the Sahara. Vital Vegas had to run a victory lap. They tweeted out, Current mood elated, exhausted, and thankful. Anti-slap motion granted today. Sahara's frivolous defamation lawsuit was dismissed. Props to superstar at law Mark Randaza. And big thanks to everyone so supportive during this saga. Free speech is worth the right. So they they beat it, and they can, they can go back to saying what they want. And this is over. So when this is all done, I actually thought that uh, Vital Vegas was in the right. And believe me, I'm not uh, fans of Vital Vegas. They actually blocked me. The guy is very uh, he's very thin skin, Scott Robin. He's blocked a ton of people apparently, and. Uh, um, I also saw just just because I was looking into the more more uh, with I was spending more time looking into Vital Vegas than I had previously before I didn't care that much about them but I looked more into it because of all this drama and I saw that there's also this weird side story not related to the Sahara but Scott Robin has a girlfriend who's trying to be like a Twitter star and she puts out a lot of uh, content on Twitter and a lot of uh, a lot of pictures and a lot of she, – she's trying to be like this sexy chick that you look at and, and follow on Twitter. That's kind of the role she's playing. Anyway, there's some guy who absolutely hates her and by extension hates Scott Robin, a.k.a. Vital Vegas, and has just been bashing them big time. And uh, at one point, his girlfriend was even offering money apparently to people to find who was behind that account. So that's uh, – <laughs> I don't know what that drama is all about, but somehow this uh, – there's a very dedicated Twitter account to hating uh, Scott Robin's girlfriend and by extension him. Not over this, but just uh, for some reason that person hates them and, and constantly mocks her and, and also him. And I will say that his girlfriend's kind of annoying on Twitter. She she is kind of obnoxious and annoying. I, I understand why there's some distaste for her, and that's actually why that account's getting some attention, is because the stuff that's being criticized, a lot of it is worthy of criticism. Like this isn't just like some jerk picking on an innocent girl. This is this is someone picking on someone who is pretty uh, outspoken and arrogant on Twitter, and uh, and really raking him over the coals like very obsessively. The, the whole thing is weird of how obsessive he is. It's one thing to just comment, hey, this girl is off putting or she's arrogant or. She, she annoys me. Like, uh, that's fine. But uh, th- this person is very dedicated to it. So I, I don't quite know what the motivation is. Maybe it's something beyond what we know. But they're dealing with that now. And, uh, and they, they, uh, they also took some heat for, for offering, or they, I don't know if they, but she did, for offering money for information on who's doing this. Because it made it look like uh, 
they're uh, trying to dox this person just for criticizing her on Twitter. But I will say this person is pretty obsessive. So I, I can understand why they're alarmed by this. If if someone was this obsessive with harassing me through Twitter, which I have, have had before, but at least I knew who it was. But if, if uh, someone was doing that, I'd want to know who they were too. And I, I can understand why you'd want to put out money to find out who it is because it's uh, it's very frustrating when you have these trolls anonymously attacking you like that. And uh, this person really, really hates his girlfriend that is Vital Vegas' girlfriend and Vital Vegas himself. But it's, it really seems more aimed at the girlfriend and, and Scott Robin is kind of the collateral damage for being the guy with her. So that's kind of a weird side story to the whole thing. I, I should go back and look. I haven't looked into that f- for a while of what's the current status with that. I want to talk about the coronavirus as our uh, second to last topic here. Or actually, you know, before we get to the coronavirus, I told you I'm going to give you a Neverwin update. That's our bonus topic for the week. By the way, there is no uh, Las Vegas and uh, Mojave Desert history segment this week, but I, maybe I can do one uh, in two weeks when we come back with our show on the 13th. But anyway, I'm going to give you the little Neverwin update that's not on the schedule, but I meant to put on the schedule, so it's kind of back on the schedule. Poker News actually did an article about Dustin Neverwin-Wolf. Now, some of you know who that is and some of you don't. Dustin Neverwin-Wolf is the one that Neverwin-Poker is named after. And what happened was that uh, Dustin Neverwin-Wolf was kind of attempting to be a professional poker player, but to be honest, uh, until early 2004, he wasn't doing very well. And uh, I used to crush him on Poker Stars in 2003, and I thought he was a fish. And then... One day in early 2004, I was playing him, and he had improved a lot, like a whole lot, and he was really good at heads up. And he really took everyone by surprise, because in 2003, he was just uh, really, really, really over-aggressive in what I call dumb aggression, where you're aggressive, but you're not really thinking about what you're doing when you're aggressive, so you're kind of just spewing money. And it's not that hard to play back at people like this. You kind of just let them hang themselves. And this is in Limit Hold'em, by the way. So... uh, he turned the 2003 dumb aggression into 2004 smart aggression, and it actually became very difficult to play against him. He was very aggressive, but when he was running hot, it was really tough to play him because he was hitting things all over the place. It was very hard to read what hands he had. He was good at extracting the maximum amount of you. So he had really developed a strong heads-up game, especially against the players' styles of those days, of 2003-2004. So... uh Starting early 2004, he was really killing it, and uh, we played actually an epic heads-up match on uh, Poker Stars, which I lost. This is near the beginning before I realized he got good at heads-up. Uh, but anyway, he ran up a lot of money on the 100-200 game on Poker Stars. Some of it heads-up, some of it shorthanded. But he was he was really the big winner there in the uh, beginning of 2004. And in a matter of month, at just 100-200 limit on Poker Stars, he won. One million dollars. He really did. He won a million dollars playing 100-200 limit hold'em in a matter of months on Poker Stars, destroying people. So everyone got fascinated with this. This is just after the poker boom started. You know, Chris Moneymaker won in '03. The World Poker Tour was on TV with the whole cards and all that. So poker boom was getting going big time in 2004, and there was never win. At the 100-200 game, which was the biggest listed game on Poker Stars, because No Limit Cash wasn't as big yet, and 100-200 was listed as the highest limit because uh, by the blinds that was the highest, even though it doesn't play as big as something like 25-50 No Limit. So 
people were really fascinated with Neverwin's run-up. And Neverwin had a friend named Brian Mikon that he knew from Indiana University, where they both went. And he knew that Mikon was good with computers and said, Mikon, do you know how to start up websites, right? And then Mikon said, yes. And he said, can you start a website for me? So Mikon said, okay, well, can I own half the website if I started? Yeah, sure. Okay, so they started, and they were both half-owners of NeverWinPoker.com, which was meant simply as a fan site for NeverWin. It was not meant to be a major forum. The forum was only there to discuss how great Neverwin is. I kid you not. That's the, the, whole po- the whole purpose of the forum there is just to discuss Neverwin's play and how great he is. So it wasn't a good idea. It was not a, a really good business idea. And they sh- sold really, really poorly made merchandise that they got from third-party sites, uh, things like Cafe Press merchandise, just dumb things like that. It was a really dumb idea to make, make a few extra bucks. So... Uh, I found it, and remember, I was Neverwind's rival at this point. I was not friendly with him. I didn't hate him, but we were like rivals on PokerStars. So I saw this, and I saw the forum, and I thought it was ridiculous, and I immediately showed up there to troll him. That was the whole reason I was there, to troll him. So I trolled him there, and this attracted even more attention because people had seen me playing on PokerStars. They saw me, Dan Druff, a winning player in the high-stakes games there. I wasn't winning as much as Neverwind was at the time. But I, I was one of the biggest winner, or maybe the biggest winner, in the limit holding games in 03 there. And I was doing well still in 04, does not never win well. And uh, and so people saw me as a, a big winning uh, high stakes player on Poker Stars. So they're like, oh, cool, Dan Dreff's here. So all these people started talking to me and asking me for poker advice and all this other stuff. So anyway, that got even more attention, and people were enjoying the back and forth of me and never win and the trolling I was doing. And, uh, and then it kind of evolved really through my direction. I was not a mod there. I didn't own it. I had nothing to do with the site. I was just there to troll. But uh, kind of through my direction, and I kind of got more and more active on the forum, it became uh, kind of like a free speech forum where you could post whatever you wanted and it wasn't like 2 plus 2. There wasn't censorship and you could just be yourself and screw around and be outrageous. And people loved it and it grew. And that was the community which exploded and, and eventually became uh, when, when it eventually uh, was shut down it, it moved over to Donk Down and then uh, when I left Donk Down in 2011 then a lot of people moved over to my new site Poker Fraud Alert in 2012 so the Poker Fraud Alert community spawned indirectly from Neverwin Poker because Neverwin started that stupid fan site with Brian Mike on back in 2004 that's really that's the reason we're all here right now that's the reason you're listening to this show I wouldn't have this show I probably would just be like kind of a poster on forums. I probably wouldn't have my own forum. Uh, I got into these shows. I, I was always fascinated with radio, going back to being a kid, and I had shows in college. But I, I wasn't thinking of doing a poker show. I, I started doing the show along with MyCon on uh, Never Win Poker, which they ran occasionally, and I got very interested in that. And then uh, once I left Donk Down, I, I eventually started my own show. So uh, that, that's... Wait, Chuck, let me ask you a question. Hold on before you get off the topic. If if you if you didn't do that, right? Maybe somebody else did, and you were maybe just one of the posters on the forum. Is could you like say, oh, I'd kind of be like PLOL or, or one of the posters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could I could be a poster there, but I, the thing is, it wouldn't have gotten going. It, right? It, but no, but I'm saying related to. One. In other words, if somebody else had done it in another universe. Oh, okay. Right. In other, in like, so you say, oh, you you would be like bad guy. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know who I'd be there. I it's 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 kind of hard to see whose role I'd have right now if if it hadn't gone the way it did. But uh and that can be even be extended to 2 plus 2. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's any posters there. I don't know. 
Yeah, maybe I'd still be on two plus two, and I wouldn't. Maybe I wouldn't be banned on two plus two because Mason wouldn't have hated me because I wouldn't have had anything to do with Micon. There's a lot, a lot of ways it could have gone. So. Is such a, you know, because I listen to the show, you know, sometimes obviously I fall asleep or whatever, so I'm listening to shows, I want to talk, you know, but all this Mason stuff, you know, I mean, I, you know, so I've been playing poker, I mean, I started in the early 90s, and I mean, you know, and this guy, you know, I used to see him at Hollywood Park back in the day with a sour look on his face <laughs> and just how he looks miserable, and then at the Mirage and then the Bellagio. And it's just like to think that these, you know, when the poker boom happened, all these people like looking up to this fucking, you know, just not a fucking good, I don't know. It, it's just like, I mean, look, look and I don't want to, maybe he's got some mental issues or something, but it's like ridiculous. And I don't know. Yeah, well, he doesn't, he doesn't, puzzles he, the shit out of me. yeah, the, the fact that that became the big English speaking poker forum was kind of, it was just because like right place, right time. They had the books that were ready, that were there. And, uh, and, 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 and then Rick, Rick Gambling Poker was filled with spam, yeah. so they were looking for a forum to go to. It landed there, and then just, you know, everybody goes where the action is. So he kind of lucked into yeah. it. It was not, I'd like to say 2 plus 2 forum, that it succeeded in spite of Mason, not because of him. No, I agree. And, I, and <laughs> I, probably more because Skolansky. Because really the theory of poker back then was, I mean, probably next to Super System, the most respected book in the late. Yeah, 90s, I'd say. Well, yeah, it was definitely you know. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I think that just gave it instant credibility. Yes, and that too. Mason piggybacked on that, and then once it grew, and he was the owner, right? I think just by default, he was exclusive guy. Yeah, so. it's kind of all fell that way. But yeah, de- definitely, David Skolansky yeah. being associated with it was was a very big piece as well because he was the, you know, you're you're looking for poker books to read when the poker boom starts, and there's all these David Skolansky books that are well regarded. Okay, well, I'll I'll read those, and that's. Uh, yeah. And then that's where David is. He's over on two plus two, which is the right. the publisher of the books. Perfect, right there. So okay, anyway, exactly. go, go and, ahead. And, and, sorry, but now it's like fuck it. All these users from two plus two really should be coming over here to your site. Well, a lot of them have just left. Know, like a lot of them just right, gave up. No, I know, but just out of respect for the industry and all the good that you do for the community and calling out the scammers and all the bullshit he does, I just feel like. You know, a lot of these business models are changing with COVID. People are leaving, you know, the 800-pound gorilla to go to some of the smaller sites and different, all different industries. I think now's the time for the big shift. Well, and maybe it, we can get – and look, and maybe we can even back in the Adam show or something <laughs> for him. You know? I don't – just like he did with Rec Poker with 2 Plus 2. Maybe we could have a deal with Adam. Anyway, we'll talk about it offline. <laughs> like anybody, anybody from the two plus two forums that wants to post on Poker Fraud Alert, we will welcome you here. You can post both places, whatever. Um, always welcoming. Promo code for a free account. Yeah, always welcoming promo new code for a free account. new members here. I've always always been one. Of, like I, I don't demand you're exclusive to my forum. I, I'm happy for anyone who wants to participate. That uh, I don't care where else you post. So anyway, uh, get back to Neverwin though. Circling back to Neverwin. Just I, I was giving you the background. Just. Everybody who didn't know about it, that that little thing with him starting that forum to be as a fan site for himself uh, is is the reason we're all here in a way. So, never win. Uh, what's going on with him right now? Well, some people wonder that, and he had a lot of life issues. He has a lot of poker talent, but uh, he was someone who was not the most stable person as far as uh, his life. I, I will say, I've always gotten along with him, aside from those little like. 
rivalry uh, trolling back and forth we did with each other before we even met in person. But you know, once I met him in person, he's always been nice to me. We, we've always had a, a a good relationship. We've never been really close friends, but I, we were close enough at one point that I'd occasionally go over to his house, just you know, me and him hang out. And uh, um, we we haven't been that close in recent years, but it wasn't from any fallout. And even with all the mic on stuff, he just stayed out of it. He didn't take sides, which is good. That's what he should have done. I, I didn't expect him to be on my side and didn't expect uh, he'd be against me. And that's what he did the right thing. He stayed out of it. So, uh, you know, I still have a good relationship with him. And I know... Oddly, his, his girlfriend uh, listens to this show sometimes. They'll, they'll sometimes make weird phone calls here. So I know he listens at least sometimes. But uh, never when his life update was given on Poker News two months ago, and I didn't find it until this was brought to my attention this week. And I said, how did I miss this? How did you guys all miss this? This is, this is on Poker News, and no one alerted me to it, which is weird. That's the weirdest thing is that this got by everybody. It got by me, and I look at Poker News, too. Somehow I didn't see it, and somehow none of you saw it, or if you did, you didn't tell me about it. Maybe you thought I saw it. And I was actually mentioned in the article, too. <laughs> so this is an article that I mentioned in. Not the way you think, by the way. It's, you may think it's about never win poker. It's not. At least not my part in it. But this is an article that was on... August 27th of this year, it's called Where Are They Now? Dustin Wolf Back in Poker, but not as a player. What does that mean? Well, and they didn't say the unsavory. Uh, no, 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 no. Poker News is, is, is uh, th- that has changed. You know, 10 years ago, someone snuck that in in an update about me in the main event that I was unsavory. However, in recent years, in a lot of recent years, let's say like last uh, seven, eight years, uh, Poker News has actually been pro me. They, they like me at Poker News. And uh, the coverage of me has been positive, and coverage of Poker Fraud Alert has been positive. So I, uh, I think it's good because I think it's kind of look. I think time is kind of, and just with the evolution of the industry, it's kind of weeded out a lot of the people that just jumped in and out, and then people like Chad and some of the others. You know, they kind of get who's like solid in the industry and who's not. Right, right, know? and that, that, that's what's happened. And they've seen that we've covered a lot of good stories, so they've they've given respect here, and, and I appreciate that, and I. And I think Chad's done a very good job. And uh, this is this wasn't his article, but this was by uh, Mo Noara, who I know also follows Poker Fraud Alert and uh, and, and reports on things here. So that, that's good. So anyway, still no nominations for any awards, but I guess we'll take. Later. Yeah, right. We don't get recognized, but at least at least uh, we're acknowledged by by other media. So I didn't know about this article until this week, but here it is. Few players have endured the poker roller coaster to the degree of Dustin Neverwin Wolf. He's won hundreds of thousands of dollars in a single night. He has. Suffered through a super user scandal. He did. That was on UB. Busted monstrous rolls. That is his own monstrous rolls. Uh, played the biggest games and eventually walked away burnt out and ready to leave the game for good. But there's something to remember about roller coasters. They always bring you back to where you got on the ride. And while Wolf hasn't exactly come full circle in poker, he is making a return to the game in a different capacity. Interesting. They might not be as glamorous as the 501,000 No Limit Hold'em pots that reached high six figures in full tilt in the full tilt days, but the Limit Hold'em streets of yesteryear still offered the potential for huge profit. And profit Wolf did. Playing 100-200, the highest stakes offered online back in circa 2004, he ran up a massive bankroll with a hyper-aggressive style that caught his opponents off guard. True. Sometime opponent Todd Wittellis called him, quote, one of the first players, if not the first, to win a million dollars online in a short period of time. Wolf now calls Wittellis a friend, but they exchange tens of thousands of dollars in, a, in grueling heads-up matches. 
Wolf wasn't afraid to put that money back in play after he ran it up. And then here's a quote from Dustin. I was playing the highest limit games live at the Commerce, mostly 400-800 limit hold'em. That's true. I remember when he was. I played there, too. But I've played as high as 2K, 4K, and played as high as 1K, 2K in Badoogie and and Deuce the 7 Lowball online. I pretty much sat in the highest limit hold'em games, usually looking for heads-up action anywhere from 300-600 to 1K, 2K. He did this. Now, this led to him busting his role, but but he did. He was fearless with the limits he'd play. I didn't realize he was playing that high once Badoogie came out. I mean, that must have been very, very early Badoogie, right? Um, I don't know when he did that. That that I didn't see. I I saw him sitting at the – but he would sit and play, like, heads up whoever would sit with him at, like, 1K, 2K limit hold'em. Even downswings could be erased seemingly effortlessly. Wolf said one of his greatest stories is the time he ran up a roll from $50 to six figures. Quote, I was on ultimate bet and had just played a 36-hour session and lost somewhere close to 140000 playing 300-600 Hold'em. Probably the super users. I was searching all my online accounts for any money to keep on playing. My buddy of mine told me to go to bed and re- refused to transfer me any money. Literally falling asleep, I ended up finding $50 in my full tilt account. Refusing to go to bed, I jumped into 510 heads up until I had the minimum buy-in for the next biggest stakes. I was playing 300-600 within six hours and jumped into some PLO action. In 12 hours, I was sitting with over $450,000 in my account. Jesus. And that's amazing. (laughs) Having been, like, about to pass out to then running it up fucking 12ve hours I mean he must he's got have riddled it I don't know no he was it was nuts like yeah he probably was doing something to keep himself up but but it's it's still like he did things like this you you guys you'd be amazed if you watched this and and you know when he was running well and when he had a good feel he really had a good feel for what people had I remember I was with him in person at his this house he no longer has in Los Angeles and uh, I remember we're sitting there, and he's telling me, oh, this guy has this hand. And it's so many times he was right with, with reading the hands people had. And, uh, like, he really had a good feel. He had a really good feel for the holdings people had, the way they were playing, you know, why they were making the moves they were, what that meant. He was very, very good feel for that. And especially when his head was clear and he was going well, then he, uh, he, he would really crush it. I, I did see... The opposite, and I'm talking about after he got good. I, I did see the opposite where he would play in a state where you know he had been doing drugs or whatever, or just he was uh, his mind wasn't in the right place. Uh, like one time he sat at a 400 800 game in Bellagio that I was in, and he was just playing awful. He was just limping over out lot pre flop, playing kind of like tight passive. It was very odd, and he's got crushed there. I'm going, what the hell? This isn't the never win I knew. I don't know what what was going on with him, but. Uh, like I, so, I've seen him play poorly at times, even after he got good, and then I, I've seen him uh, really play excellent. So, uh, and, and a lot, you know, there's a lot of external factors that led to that. So then, they said this wouldn't be much of a story if Wolf had just crushed the games until he had a comfortable nest egg and rode off quietly into the sunset. So, of course, there was another side to his ultra aggressive approach to poker, both in play style and bankroll management. He said, I always said I was one of the best at reading other people's tendencies. Remember, I just said that here. I wasn't going by the article. I remembered that myself personally watching him. Betting patterns, clicking tells, and emotional state by just playing online and listening to them chat or just watching behavioral actions. It's true. He was great at this. My biggest nemesis at the tables was my own mind and discipline. 
If you talk to people who really knew me or watched me over the years, I suspect most would tell you this. When I was playing my A game, especially heads up limit hold'em, I don't think there was anyone who could beat me. But when I was off my game, I don't think there was anyone who played worse than me. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what I saw. That's exactly what I saw. I literally gave away hundreds of thousands by mashing the raise button for hours on every hand I was dealt online and live. I would cold cap every hand blind for 24 hours straight. I have so many crazy maniac stories. We would be here for days if I told you them all. By the way, a side story. I've mentioned Thy Prez on this show. Um, Thy Prez really loved Neverwin. And uh, part of the reason Thy Prez really loved him was that uh, Thy Prez was a degenerate, but a degenerate without poker talent. He wished he had poker talent, but he didn't. He was terrible. Uh, but anyway, he 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 became friends with Neverwin. He met him through me. And the, the problem was you, you put those two together and, uh, you know, sometimes bad things happen. They did a lot of drugs and they, they, uh, they weren't good influences on each other. And uh, so, like, I heard some of these, these crazy maniac stories. And uh, see, this this is what Neverwin didn't need. He didn't need to be with other people who encouraged him to behave in even more irresponsible manners. And Thyprez was one of those people. And unfortunately, as I've told you before, uh, Thyprez eventually died of a drug overdose. He wasn't with Neverwin when it happened, but it was in San Diego. But uh, he, you know, that, that shows you what uh, he was dealing with here. So anyway, Wolf was among the players who sued UB, alleging that a chunk of the 20 million in cheat-aided winnings came from his account. He held real estate at the time of the 2008 market crash that lost heaps of value. He said he also had personal difficulties, including an encounter with a pit bull that resulted in serious physical harm. Now, those of you who remember Neverwin may laugh at the pit bull thing. And you may say, well, what's so funny about that, an encounter with a pit bull? Um, I don't know if this is true or not, but a rumor went around over the years, and Neverwin didn't do anything to dispel it. In fact, sometimes I don't know if he would say – see, he'd say a lot of things for shock value too. He would say things that uh, – you never knew with him if some of the shocking stuff he said was true or he was just saying it because he wanted you to be shocked or sometimes it was kind of halfway there. Uh, there were rumors over the years that Neverwin liked dogs. And when I say he liked dogs, I mean he liked dogs. That, that was the rumor. Now, he, he didn't dispel the rumor. In fact, he'd play it up and, and act like, like this, is, this is normal and this is fine. I, I don't know where the truth began and where the lies began there, but uh, it's funny you read about something with a dog with an encounter and you go, uh-oh. But uh, anyway, uh, so he had – I don't know about this encounter with a pit bull. I never heard about that before. But he said he got serious physical harm. Maybe that happened in recent years. By the time Black Friday hit – Wolf said he was banged up mentally, physically, and financially. So maybe it was before uh, 2011. Once up an estimated 4 or $5 million, a burned-out and battered Wolf walked away, something he calls not even a decision by that point. Wolf then became acquainted... Sorry, not then. Wolf became acquainted with Brian Mikon during his star run and the two created Never Win Poker Together, a site that was eventually sold to Poker News. I'm not mentioned in this part for some reason, even though I was uh, like, I didn't create it. But the, the only reason it became big was because of me. That association bore fruit for Wolf when Micon became an early adopter of cryptocurrency. But that was much that was seven years later. And I was leaving at that point. Uh, Wolf tailed his friend and bought a pile of Bitcoin at $70 that is per Bitcoin, which would have corresponded to its early 2013 value. His newfound interest swelled in value, and Wolf took things a step further, starting a Bitcoin escrow company. I didn't know about this. That he said did over 10,000 transactions and acquired more than 10 million worth of the cryptocurrency. 
Once that venture found success, 2018 brought another downturn with the massive market crash as Bitcoin went from 20000 in value to around 3000 before the year ended. That alone would have been bad enough for Wolf's finances, but he also had a hand in launching a cryptocurrency hedge fund that would end up getting rolling at the market's peak. Needless to say, couldn't have been worse timing, he said. It's clear he still believes in crypto. Time to build a decentralized world that's completely automated and strives to destroy corruption and end the reign of the banks, his Facebook still says. But the financial downturn has resulted in a return to his previous love. Only this time he'll no longer be sitting at the felt, risking hundreds of thousands of dollars. So what will he be doing? Instead, he'll be wearing a suit, partnering with 2007 World Poker Tour chap, champ and Turks and Caicos native Rini Campbell. Wolf will head down to the island destination and open a poker room where Wolf will, quote, run the show. So it looks like this Rini Campbell is uh, starting up a poker room in Turks and Caicos and <laughs> never when is moving to Turks and Caicos, which is a tiny island in the Caribbean, and he's going to be running the poker room there. Perhaps it's time for a stable income and the occasional jaunt to the beach. Wolf says he has, quote, zero regrets about his poker career, and whatever the next chapter holds, it seems certain to bring less stress after a lifetime of swings. By the way, Neverwin told me when he was, uh, I don't know, 30 or so, he told me that he's not going to make it to age 50. He's going to be dead by 50, he told me. And I said, no, 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 come on, don't say that. You've... I said, you're healthy now. How can you say that? He's, no, I know it. I'm, I'm not going to make it. You know, just the way I live, I'm, I'm not going to, I know I'm not going to make it to 50. So I've just already accepted that. I go, you don't have to accept that. You can change things or you, you do make it way past 50. There's no reason he shouldn't make it to 50. It's not like he has some terrible disease. So anyway, if you're wondering where he stands on that, Neverwin, I believe, is uh, 43. Either 42 or 43. I think he's 43. So he's, he's getting closer. I think he's going to make it. But, uh, He's supposedly going to Turks and Caicos. Now, people are asking on my forum where I posted this, people are asking, wait a minute, is this the best time to start a poker room? I have to imagine they came up with this idea before the coronavirus. But now that we have the coronavirus, um, who's going to travel to Turks and Caicos and play poker there? Because travel has just fallen apart, especially uh, travel that is uh, for personal travel, for pleasure travel. Like who's going to travel to Turks and Caicos at this point on a plane? And, and then go play poker. Like, these are things people don't want to do right now. Play live poker, uh, travel on a plane. To you know, like, It just doesn't sound like something's going to do well. It's hard enough to start a new poker room in a remote location and have it make any real money. But now he's really going to be battling a lot of uh, hurdles here to uh, have this be successful. Now, it looks like he's probably not the one backing it. It looks like this uh, Rini Campbell, whoever that is. I guess this person won the World, World Poker Tour the uh, 13 years ago, but I haven't heard of them. Let's see if I can even find a picture of Rini Campbell. Is there any picture of this? Oh, okay. Rini Campbell is, uh, I guess it's what you expect her in Caicos. He is a, uh, a black guy from the islands. Okay. I don't know him, but that's what he looks like. Kind of a heavy set black guy. He must be friends with Neverwin. And he is, uh, I guess, probably backing the poker room <laughs> and never went to the one running it. They must have gotten that idea at some point. So we will see what happens with that. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the, the Jamie Gold uh, boat poker room that didn't work out very well. Hopefully this works out better for Neverwin. And uh, yeah, I wish him luck. Maybe we'll try to I can try to get him on the show. As I said, we're still on uh, good terms. I haven't talked to him in a while. Uh, 
Two people commented on this article. Someone wrote an interesting article, and I'm not wanting to insult anyone, but is there any evidence of the $50 to $450,000 upswing in 12 hours? I can give you an answer there, commenter Tony GG Omega. No evidence, but I believe it. And if it's not completely true, it's close to true. Maybe he ran the fifty to $250,000, but it, it was something big. And it's possible he's completely telling the truth. But, uh, uh, you know, there have been times where everyone's told tales that are a little bit exaggerated, but he never just, like, outright makes this stuff up. He doesn't do that. So he, he did make some cor- some kind of uh, tremendous run-up, and I could totally see him doing this, that uh, he just says, I'm going to keep just raising stakes as, as fast as I can. Every time I have the minimum buy-in for the next stake up, I'll just keep doing it and if I run it up, I do. If I don't, I'll bust. And he actually ran 50 to something very big. So I wouldn't be surprised if he really did that. My best version of that, in case you're wondering, is I ran around uh, uh, $50 or so, something along those lines, maybe a little bit more, maybe like, like 200 or some, something pretty low, something in the, either in the two figures or low three figures, to uh, like 140000 on cake poker. And similar to Neverwin, I was down to nothing. And uh, I, in my story, this is an 07. I was this. This wasn't my final money. This was my fin- final money on cake poker. Um, I, what had happened was I was uh, had like eight nine suited in late position, and it had folded to me. And my stack was so low, I said, I don't want. I'm going to be all in with this, and I don't want to do the run out with eight nine suited. It's just a bad hand to do this run out with. It's a good hand to play uh, to draw with, but it's not good to when you know you're going to be all in with it. So I said, screw it. I threw away the eight. I almost raised it. I go, no, I can't raise the eight nine suited. So I folded the eight, eight nine suited. And then next hand, I dealt queens. So I was happy I folded the eight nine suited. Doubled up with that and then just kept running it up. And within uh, like like two months or so, it wasn't 12 hours. In about two months, I ran that very, very little that I had left up to like 140000 on there. Then uh, Jaw Witty, I don't know who that is, but he said, I always enjoyed these guys back in the day, back when poker players still had personalities. Never when poker was the uncensored poker site where anything goes, good times. Well, thank you, Jaw Witty. I have to assume I was part of that, uh, what you're talking about. So, thank you. Back when poker players still had personalities. Okay, well, I'll take that. That's the Neverwin update. And maybe we can get him on here to talk about it. Who knows? All right, talk about the coronavirus now. I have uh, one story here. I'll get Trederuski's opinion of this too. There is a report on CNN about uh, a very rapid rise in cases in the 12 to 30-year-old range. And uh, the CNN article is raising a lot of alarm about this. And... uh, I think we have to really look at this more carefully. So uh, the CNN article is talking about how there is a a very, very uh, large rise in cases for those who are uh, 12 to 30, as I said. And this is reported on CNN on October 30th. It said the U.S. added 1 million new COVID-19 cases, that is ones that they, were, that they tested positive, in only uh, 14 days since hitting 8 million cases. And multiple states continue reporting their highest daily case counts since the pandemic began. 
Now, that's not totally fair because in the first few months of the pandemic, you couldn't get tested that easily. So uh, the more tests there are, the more it's going to expose cases. But that doesn't mean there's more cases. It just means more cases they can verify. But OK, let's, let's ignore that for now. This is the fastest the country has recorded a million new cases since the pandemic began. So they're saying that never have they had a million new verified cases in two weeks in the U.S., but we just did. The latest surge of cases appears to be driven by patients with no symptoms, said Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. A silent epidemic of asymptomatic COVID-19 infections is moving amongst 12 to 30-year-olds and then making the jump to older people, Redfield told SiriusXM Dr. Radio. This is what's driving the expansion that we're seeing in the outbreak across the country right now. Okay, so let's stop for a second. This sounds like a terrible thing, that never have we gotten a a million new cases that have been verified in 14 days. That's a new thing. So that shows it's rocketing up, that this is the second wave everyone's afraid of, and that uh, for whatever reason, that there's a lot more cases than there used to be in the 12 to 30-year-old range, and that most of these people are asymptomatic, and that's what's allowing this to spread because they don't realize they're sick. So then, then it spreads. I'm not even sure how they're getting tested if they're mostly asymptomatic, but maybe they uh, have to be tested for other reasons, maybe for work, maybe they just go te- take tests anyway, maybe it's mostly asymptomatic, they just feel a tiny bit of, of something and they go in and get a test, whatever it is. They, they, they tested uh, positive uh, a million new people in 14 days, which, which is yeah, kind of alarming if you think about it. So... Um, let, let's talk about that here. Let's talk about that situation. So, uh, is this, what should we make of this? What should we make of this rocketing up of the cases? Should we be panicked? Should we be terrified? Or is there anything positive that might be coming from this? Well, I'm going to make the case to you here, and then we'll, we'll see what Trader Risky has to say about this, that this is positive, as strange as that sounds. How can I say that a million new cases in two weeks is positive? Well, let's think about it. Who's getting the most of these cases, apparently? 12 to 30-year-olds. Who does not typically have very bad symptoms? 12 to 30-year-olds. Who is not getting bad symptoms? 12 to 30-year-olds. They're, they're saying that right here, that these are mostly asymptomatic cases, which means not only are they not bad, they're not feeling anything. They're calling it a silent epidemic. Now, it does make the jump to older people, they're saying, which is not a good thing. When they say older people, it doesn't just mean old people. It also means people like my age who are uh, not typically able to uh, simply have an asymptomatic version. It can happen, but uh, the chance of having uh, a moderately bad version or worse is much higher once you're past age 45. So if it is jumping from these younger people to the older people, that might be bad, right? Well, Yes, uh, it, it's bad if anybody gets it who is uh, affected by it in a negative way, especially if someone dies from it, but also people who have permanent lung damage, permanent brain damage, permanent heart damage. Any of that stuff is uh, is pretty bad. And uh, you may say, well, how can you ever say it's good then, especially since they're developing a vaccine, you know, they're de- developing vaccines, which might be available early next year. So how, how can I say this? this might be good? Well... When these 12 to 30-year-olds have it, then what happens? Once they're better, or once it's gone, I mean, they're not really getting better if they're asymptomatic, but once it's gone, then 
they probably can't get it again, or at least not for quite some time. That's the jury's still out on that. I know occasionally there's some outliers who get it a second time, but uh, but usually if you get COVID, then it, it, it's thought right now that at least for five months, almost everybody is immune to it once they've had it and gotten over it. Very few. There's been cases where it's been found that's not the, not what happens, and they get it a second time, a separate uh, COVID infection. But it, it seems very rare at this point. So assuming that these people cannot get it or spread it anymore after having it, if this is moving very quickly among a section of the population that is not really experiencing anything negative from it, where it's pretty rare and almost all of them don't even feel it or feel it very little, then that's a good thing because these are people who then will not be able to transmit it further. And if this rapidly happens then it gets a lot harder for COVID to continue spreading because it's going to keep running into people who already had it and can't spread it anymore. And that's what makes these uh, these viruses die. That's why there's no more swine flu. Swine flu is gone because almost everybody was asymptomatic. It's very possible that I had it, that Traderuski had it, that you had it, but you didn't feel it because almost everybody who got it was asymptomatic. It is estimated that perhaps 60 million people in the U.S. got the swine flu. But almost everybody didn't feel it, or if you felt it, it was very, very mild. So it ripped through the population. Nothing happened. Some people died, but it it was really not a major epidemic, unlike COVID, because COVID is much more deadly, much, much more deadly. And swine flu burnt out. It didn't have anyone to spread to anymore, and it burnt out. We got herd immunity, it burnt out, it's gone. That's why we don't have to worry about swine flu anymore. Also, it was, to most people, uh, not dangerous. But that's why it vanished. Something vanishing and something being dangerous are, uh, it's not related. So just because it wasn't that dangerous doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to vanish, but it did. So COVID could do the same thing. It's just scarier. It's just something you want much less than you do the swine flu. It's a much bigger deal if you catch it than the swine flu, especially if you're over 45. So the question is, will we eventually go the swine flu way to where even without any kind of uh, intervention to stop it, it went away? So if it moves rapidly among the group that it's typically not affecting, and if it seems like they're really not getting affected much, they're they're actually calling it a silent epidemic of asymptomatic infections. Almost like maybe it's affecting people differently where it's even less to that age group. That's what we want. We want as many people to have it and not feel it. Because then they can't transmit it anymore. That's how you kill a virus from a population. That's what vaccines do, if you think about it. So that marches us closer to herd immunity. The only way it doesn't is if this mutates enough to be like another flu that sticks around forever. That it can mutate enough each year to where we have a new version where having it previously doesn't help you. And if that's the case, unless we get a good treatment, then we're in trouble. Then we're just this is going to be a new part of life. That's why I'm, I'm much more pro-treatment than vaccine. I think the end of this will be for my good treatment, not a good vaccine. That's what I think. That's why I don't think this is going to be over anytime soon. That's why I think I won't be playing the 2021 World Series. I think there will be a 2021 World Series because they're already running poker right now. But I'm not going to be there unless I've either already had COVID, which hopefully won't be the case, or 
it's pretty much eradicated. Or there's a treatment to where if I get it, I can easily take care of it without it being a big deal. But I don't think that's going to happen by uh, June. So uh, that's why I think I'm missing that one. But I have a feeling by mid-2022, we will be there. That's my guess. But this helps. This helps when uh, it rips through a part of the population that isn't going to be affected. And this is kind of the first time I'm even seeing them admit this on CNN, that 12 to 30-year-olds really aren't hurt that much by it. Because I've been saying that forever, that uh, they, we've, got to, we've got to just be honest about this, that uh, it's hitting the age groups very, very differently, and we shouldn't just focus on how does it hit the super old people, which of course is very important, but we should also focus on the big difference between someone who's 25 and someone who's 50. There's a tremendous difference. We've got to acknowledge that. And I think that is somewhat of a solution to uh, to how we do things and how we solve this and how we work around it, is that a certain segment of the population just shouldn't be scared of it. And a certain segment of the population should. I feel I'm in that segment that should. I feel the 25-year-olds are in the segment that should not. Kids are in the segment that should not, unless they're going to bring it home to their parents. But I'm talking, from the disease itself, no. So that's, uh, I, I actually don't think that's bad news. And if this continues, I think we'll get towards herd immunity sooner. Even if a vaccine does come out, then we'll already have people who are immune before the vaccine is even necessary. And a lot of people are not wanting to try the vaccine. A lot of people take the attitude of the vaccine, oh, I'll wait till, till everybody else does it first and see how it goes with them. That's what a lot of people are saying. And that's kind of what I'm thinking, too. I was having this discussion with my parents, and they said, as soon as it comes out, they're going to take it. Well, why? Because they're old. Because if they get COVID, it could kill them. So even if the vaccine could have some problems, some side effects or issues, it's worth taking the chance to take it if you're that age because getting COVID is so devastating. If I were 25, I wouldn't take the vaccine. I'd say, screw it. I'd, I, I'm going to wait. You know, I, I think the risk from the vaccine is higher than the risk of COVID. At my age, it's tough. At my age, it's really tough to say what the right thing is to do. Should I, should I take the rushed vaccine when it comes out and take that risk? Or should I just continue to avoid it, that is avoid COVID, not take the vaccine, and wait to see how the vaccine affects people? And then make the decision after that, knowing that if I were to get COVID, that my chance of dying from it is is very low, but not not almost zero. You know, it's, it's realistic, but not but very small. And that, But the chance of permanent damage, like lung damage, is not small. That's actually a, a decent chance, which scares me. So uh, we will have to see what happens with the vaccine, how much cooperation there is. Uh, Trader Risky, if there's a vaccine that comes out, let's say, in January, will you take it? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd take it after many people took it. And, you know. well, would you wait a so few months? Probably, became, I, I'd probably take it around... Yeah, that's that's what that's what a lot of people are thinking. I want to wait like three or four months and see what happens. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. Like getting the initial people to jump on t- and take it. Yes, you'll get the ones who are most vulnerable doing it, but like I don't know how many you're going to get beyond that. That that may be a real problem of the people willing to try it. Everybody wants to wait to see how it affects everyone else. That's a very common feeling about it, except for those who are really in danger of COVID killing them. 
So that, that could be a problem. Now, you can say, well, we'll just wait and see how it does with the old people and the people who have the really bad pre-existing conditions and see how it affects them. And healthcare workers, they'll probably all take it. But uh, maybe that's enough people to see. But uh, I, I don't know how many how many healthy, young, and middle-aged adults are going to do it, especially the young ones. Right. I mean, I think it might be something where they, you know, I, would, I don't want to see what the test group is, and maybe they'd incentivize maybe younger people that are, if there was an issue with it, or less to have adverse issues, you know? So. Yeah, I just can't see many young as people. As far as the whole herd immunity stuff, you know, I've heard many different scientists talk about different things and it's the lives we have to sacrifice. And, you know, so they're just, uh, I don't know. I mean, other countries seem to be getting a hold of it. Well, not, well, not a lot of them summer, aren't. So it's, it's, some are very bad too. France is fucked up. UK, yeah, Italy, Australia. I think had like nine cases one day. Australia's so we a we- like- Australia's weird. There's some belief, and this is weird, but there's a belief that of a, a, a vaccination people got unrelated to COVID when they were kids that they did that uh, we don't do here might be providing some COVID resistance. And it's uh, it's being studied, but there's a it's never been understood why Australia is doing so well. It's it's not even in their practices. They're not masking that well. They're not uh, they're not distancing that well. And then just somehow they're just, it's just not happening. So there's a well. I mean, you know, on Howard Stern this week was talking about that um, he had a friend that went to Australia and they made, like quarantined them two weeks before. They had to have a special thing. They were. Then when they got there, they were put in a hotel room for two weeks. Maybe it wasn't free. It was just after they landed. And they had, like, guards outside the door. They said one time there was, like, a smoke alarm that went off. But they didn't, you know, everybody stayed. Oh, it's everything clear. So really going out of their way to just make sure nothing new comes into the country. Well, yeah, because but that's a different story. That's with people from outside Australia. Like, all the com- – Every country right now is very concerned about letting anyone else in from elsewhere because they're like, we've got, we don't want to add to the problem from elsewhere. So we're not bringing new cases in. So like, right, like right now, the border with Canada and, and Mexico, it's not easy to travel to those countries or from yeah. those countries. Like they, they don't want us and we don't want them. So it, it's it, like U.S. and Canada, which is a normally a, a free and open border. And where anyone can travel through, uh, except Canada is kind of funny. If you have any kind of misdemeanor on your record, they don't want you there, which is weird. But uh, oh, wow. like in the last 10 years, if you have anything in the last 10 years that's a misdemeanor, they, they don't want you. They, they turn you around, which is crazy. But that was before COVID. Anyway, since Even to visit? Yes, to visit. It's crazy. Wow. If they look, if they find some, just any misdemeanor in the last 10 years, they're going to turn you back. It's insane. Uh, so, but aside from that, like that's the normal times. Right now, if your travel is not what they call essential, and I don't know what essential means, but that what they call essential, that they will not let you go across either way between U.S. and Canada. So it's it's all, all the countries don't want to take anyone new in who might have COVID, and if you do come, then you've got to wait uh, 14 days in quarantine, and that, that's pretty standard everywhere. Uh, Australia just somehow isn't getting this much, and it's it's not understood why. And that, that's one of the things you're studying is like may, maybe there is something there like something they they took like vaccinations they took in the past like th- things that study why is this uh, working out so well there and they maybe emulate it and it, it seems to be more than what they're well, doing to avoid it. it it seems like they're not doing much to avoid it and they're just doing really well. 
And, and early on, maybe they did some things, you know, like I heard a story, I don't know if it was 60 minutes or something in the last week, where I guess there was like the cruise ship, where, uh, you know, they had finally got the passengers into Atlanta, the plane landed, everybody had COVID, and they, but they had to get them, I guess, back in the States, but then the airport didn't know they were coming, it was all this miscommunication, or maybe they didn't know they had COVID at the time, but then all the people just dispersed throughout the U.S. And there was just a lot of stories like that where I don't know what the hell the 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 CDC was doing. Yeah, well, there's there's uh, there's a lot of mysteries with this whole thing and why it's bad in some places and not others, and uh, it's it's not always explainable. It, 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 people would like it to be explainable. Okay, this place did it right and they're doing well. We did it wrong. We're doing poorly. So let's do it right from now and we'll be good too. It's not that simple, unfortunately. There's people that there's places that seem to be doing it wrong that are doing well. There's places that seem to be doing wrong that are doing terribly. There's places that seem to be uh, uh, doing it right that are doing terribly. It, it, it really seems like the the it's very hard to correlate any of this to say, okay, this behavior is going on and this place is doing well and there's no else, nowhere else in the world that's contradicting this. There's, there's a lot of contradictions and it's weird and it's hard to explain. That's why I've said anyone who thinks they have the answers and that uh, you know, we just take a, a different policy on this or that and we're going to beat it, it's, that's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. That's not the way it is and that's why uh, a, a lot of countries are, are having a problem with a lot of different approaches to this. And then others, which are taking uh, what would seem to be reckless approaches, seem to not be that bad. And and then vice, and but then there's cases where ones which are taking reckless approaches are bad, and ones which are careful are doing well. So you you can point to certain countries and say, oh look, let's be like them and we'll do great. But then you, you see other examples where uh, where that same behavior is resulting in bad numbers. So it, it's very hard to say. The U.S. right now has uh, 709 deaths per million population, which is a little bit less than one in a thousand people dying in the U.S. And that, that's obviously not good, you know, just from this. I'm not talking about dying overall, just from this. But uh, this is not very far from Mexico, from the U.K., from Italy. Uh, they all have uh, similar numbers. Spain is worse. And I'm talking just about Europe. Then there's uh, South American countries, which are doing... Peru is the very worst one. Uh, they they have over 1,000 deaths per million, which means that more than 1 in 1,000 deaths uh, for 1, one in 1,000 deaths. So that's... Uh, when when they talk about number of cases and all that, you, you have to keep that in mind. There There is a, a big rise in cases, like in the ones reported... Uh, for quote yesterday, which again, these are the ones that were reported. That doesn't mean they occurred yesterday. This is when they came in as reported. There were over a hundred thousand, and I don't, I don't know if we've seen a hundred thousand yet in a single day, but we saw a hundred thousand. We one hundred one thousand four hundred sixty-one new cases in the U.S., which is a lot. It's more than we've ever seen, I think. But uh, and as far as new deaths, uh, nine hundred eighty-eight, which isn't good. But uh, I will tell you this: it's it's not nearly as bad as the peak, which was about like twenty-seven, twenty-eight hundred. A lot of that being in New York City. So that's uh, um, some of this is because, or a lot of this is because the testing is much more extensive now. So people can go down in the books as having it rather than having it and just not being counted in the stats. Uh, so th- there's a lot we still don't know. And it's, it's going to be a while until it gets better. It's, it's not going to be gone anytime soon. And 
I don't even have faith that a vaccine is going to wipe it out right away. It may be 50% effective. It may be 35% effective. Who knows? It's, it's going to be – I don't think I'm going to feel safe going out for a long time. And I've just kind of made peace with that. And that's just uh, the way it is. So uh, I, I don't mind seeing that most of these cases, though, are, are younger people. This could be why the death rate is so much lower, too. They, they've learned some things since then. Their treatments have gotten a little better. The, uh, they, they know not to do certain things that were a mistake before. So obviously with time, you learn. And they've uh, even though there's no cure by any means and there's no vaccine, there are some things that were done incorrectly before that aren't being done anymore. And there's some treatments they found which are better than nothing. So these things have all helped bring down the death rate. Also, it seems like they're, people are a lot better of, uh, at lowering their risk if they're in a group that's going to kill them, if they, that's the demographic they're in. So that is why we're now seeing a big spike in cases of people who are 12 to 30, because people who are 12 to 30 probably don't care very much. They, they know. They know it's not. You know, these people are getting what's known as lockdown fatigue. We talked about this on another radio show, I mean, another episode of this show. With Brandon, and we talked about the lockdown fatigue, where people are just getting tired of it. People just can't, they can't stand the lockdowns anymore, they can't stand not doing things anymore, they can't stand just staying home every day, and some people are taking the attitude, not me, but some people are taking the attitude, you know what, I'm just going to go out. If I get it, I get it, I just, I can't stand this anymore, I'm going to live life. And if you're 12 to 30, you can especially get that fatigue because it doesn't scare you. I can feel that, I do feel that, but then I think, okay, but what if I get COVID? And I go, nope. I do not want that. I will just deal with it. And I don't go in places that I don't go indoors anywhere. I, I don't go with other people. I don't go near other people. You know, like I, I stay away. So I don't get it because that's how important not getting it is to me. If I were 25, I would think very differently. So that's why it's rushing through that group. And uh, it does suck that some of them are, are then giving it to older people. And if you are one of these younger people, not that we have that many listening to the show, but if you are one of these younger people and you have contact with older people, you should be careful. If it's only you and other young people you're interacting with, then fine. But just keep in mind, you interact with people over 45, it can be bad for them. And that, that's why uh, Benjamin has been doing that. We actually have an option in our district to either send the kid back to regular school with a bunch of restrictions or uh, to leave them in the Zoom school. And I decided that he's going to stay in the Zoom school. I don't want to have to, you know, I don't want to send him back to school and have it uh, rush through the kid population and then have Benjamin bring it home to me and to his mom, who's close to my age. So uh, I've decided I'm in it for the long haul to avoid it until finally the world gets a handle on this and Hopefully that's sooner than later. And whenever it is, it is. Sometimes I have to take a risk, like going into the dentist for a root canal, and that's the way it goes. But it's a mathematical equation. You know, it's just whatever, uh, the more exposure you have, the higher chances you're going to get it. The less exposure you have, uh, the less chance you're going to get it. And um, much like uh, if you play... 10,000 hands of poker, you're going to take a few really horrendous beats. And if you play 10 hands of poker, it can happen, but it's not that likely you're going to take a really horrendous beat. Same thing. Basically, me catching COVID uh, by going out occasionally would be a very bad beat. 
but it wouldn't be that bad of a beat if I constantly went out. So it's a numbers game. So that's all I have to say about that for right now. By the way, you know, we have an election coming up, and Joe Biden is very much the favorite. If you ask me who I think is going to win, my answer is Joe Biden. Do I think that uh, when January 21st comes, if Biden is the elected president, that uh, we're going to see major changes made that are going to get handled on this? No. Do I think it's going to get worse? No. Do I think it's going to be about the same for a while until we see game changers such, a, such as a, an effective vaccine or an effective treatment? Yeah, that, that's what's going to change it. Not a change in president. It's, it's not going to well. There'll be a lot less cases. I mean, this guy's having events where he's having no mask. He's incur- I mean, this is Trump. How you know? It's like he's walking people into the gas chamber. Okay. Seriously. Okay. I will. I will say that I don't like the events. I think they shouldn't happen. I think they're a mistake. I think they're a mistake both uh, for the campaign because it provides uh, criticism that the other side can use, and just uh, just. They shouldn't be doing them if they get dangerous for the people who go there and they, it's irresponsible to hold them. So I, I will agree with that, that they shouldn't be holding these events. And uh, I would not go to one uh, no matter how much – even if I – I wouldn't want to anyway. I'm, I, but uh, if, if – even if I did want to go to one of these events, uh, that I would not go because I, I don't feel they're safe. And uh, so I don't, th- I don't think these are – this is wise to hold. But this is, this is not massively spreading it in the country. The country's 330 million people. The people who are going to these events, it's, it's a very tiny percentage. There's a million things. I got it. But just still, it's just like if we can all suck it up for two weeks, you know, that could kill most of it. I know that will never happen, but it's a nice thought. It's so widespread now. It's, it's just – yeah, it just it wouldn't be possible. But uh, did, we're, did you see did you see that thing on ABC with like these crackpots in Utah where you're not allowed in with a mask? No, I didn't see that. That's funny because it's a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I, I didn't see that. That, that, that is kind of funny. Uh, yeah, there's I as I've said before, I I, I have a mask. I wear it anytime I'm going indoors. And I, uh, I will wear it if I'm outdoors and, and near other people. I will not wear it hiking. I don't go on crowded trails, uh, so I, I'm not going to be in a mask. I'm not going to go to an extreme just for to be performative with it. But uh, I will wear it where I feel that it's appropriate to wear it, which is most places, uh, definitely uh, in all places indoors, 100% of the time. And uh, and, and I don't think it's any position and I don't think people should object to it. And uh, now I don't think it's as valuable as some people believe, but I also don't think it's useless. And I also think you might as well. There's no harm in doing it and there shouldn't be these objections to it. So I disagree with those who feel they shouldn't. I also disagree with those who think that just get everybody cooperating with a masking. Well, it'll, it'll go away. That's not going to happen either. That's uh, that's, and there's plenty of evidence for that as well. Okay, so I think a transition here, since we were just talking in a way about Trump, I want to transition to something else, which is not directly about the election, but it has to do with something that it, it kind of got me thinking. And it's going to be something that has long-range implications beyond this election and beyond who wins this election. It doesn't really matter, actually, if it's uh, Biden or Trump winning for this topic. And that is about what is fake news 
and who should judge what fake news is and what should be done when fake news is found. And it's not simple. You may think, well, the answer is news that isn't true is fake news. Those who should judge it, well, maybe fact checkers. And, and what if it's what if it is found to be fake? Well, then uh, do what you can to prevent it from spreading. And that sounds noble. That sounds the correct way to handle it until you consider all the angles to it. So this has come up in recent weeks because of the whole thing with the Hunter Biden laptop, which I'm sure most of you have heard about by now. The Hunter Biden laptop was a, the October surprise from the Trump campaign to try to slam Joe Biden through, you know, basically through, through what his son was doing and any involvement he may have had. And, uh, you know, some pretty, uh, some pretty strong allegations there that a laptop was left for repair by Hunter and that he never returned for it and that the person who uh, was at the repair shop, the owner of the repair shop, looked what was on there and found a number of things, including a lot of uh, sex videos that Hunter made of himself and videos of himself doing drugs. But more importantly, that part, you know, that's scandalous, but it's not – he's not running for president, so that doesn't matter that much. But but then there was uh, emails that – between him and Burisma about uh, deals he was making with them and arranging time with for them to meet with Joe Biden and a lot of things that start to make it look like that Joe Biden was meeting with Burisma and that he did have knowledge of all this and uh, could make Joe Biden look like he might have more to do with this whole thing than just happening to be the father of Hunter, even if Hunter got the job because of his relation with Joe, which is highly likely, you know, maybe Joe didn't know about that. Maybe just Hunter used his name and got the job. And again, if, if Hunter's not the one running, should, should we really care if his son misused the family name? So uh, this would start to suggest these emails that uh, – that there was a meeting set up between them and you know, this, this Ukrainian firm and, and Joe Biden and, that, and even some cryptic references to payments, including, quote, 10% for the big guy, which some are saying might be Joe Biden. Now, without going into whether this is true or not true, the bigger story that came out and that I want to discuss here is the way it was handled on social media. Twitter disallowed the story about this, which was on the New York Post. The New York Post is what – they're the ones who broke the story. They disallowed the link to the New York Post. If you attempted to link it, not only wouldn't it be allowed, but you would get your account susp- auto-suspended on Twitter for attempting to link it. A lot of people got suspended. The New York Post itself got suspended. This is a newspaper that's been around forever. It's been around longer than any of us have been alive. That got suspended. Facebook would not allow it to be shared. And their claim was that it was, quote, eligible for fact-checking and that they were not going to allow it to be shared until it was fact-checked, which was also weird. Usually it should be the other way around. Something should be fact-checked first, and if it's false, then take action. Here it was, we don't know if it's true or false, but we're not going to let anyone share it until we see if it's true or false. So this became very upsetting to some people that there's censorship of a major publication because the social media sites uh, either didn't like the story or because they were under pressure from people on the Biden side who they think is going to win, and they don't want to piss them off uh, a few months before Biden's president and then have Biden uh, not treat them very well. So uh, you know, it may have been kind of a, a backdoor favor that maybe wasn't even asked for. But, I mean, I'm sure they was, it was asked for in some way, but the, something where they're, just, they're doing this as a, 
offer to say, hey, look what we're doing for you. You're probably going to be president. I hope you treat us well. Could be something just like that. They even did it voluntarily. But the reason they did it isn't as important. What's important is to think about because there's been debates about this all over social media ever since it happened. And I've had some of these debates. And what has bothered me about some of these debates is that I see people defending it. I see people defending suppressing these stories. I see people saying, look, we need fact checkers. We need fact checkers to determine what is fake news. And then anything that is fake should either be suppressed or at the very least have a warning on it that it's fake news. And many people think that is the right way we should be doing things. So what's wrong with that approach? Well, I feel that what's very wrong with that approach is that fact-checking is not as simple as you may believe it is. Now, there are some facts that can easily be checked, such as uh, you can look outside, and if it's dark, it's dark. And if it's 2 a.m., it's dark outside. If you say it's dark outside, you're stating a fact. If someone else says... It's actually light outside right now. The sun's out right now. And if the sun's not out, then that person's wrong. Then that is not a fact. And they're saying something false. But that's something that's very easily proven. That's that's one statement about one thing that's not subjective at all and is easily proven or disproven, much like a mathematical equation. You know that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and not 5. However, a lot of things in life aren't like that. A lot of things in life uh, are subjective. A lot of... Uh, belief that something is true or not true. Uh, There's a lot of complex parts to the whole thing. There's even situations where part of an article is true, part of it's not true, or that something can be very true but misleading. And then, what is classified as true but misleading? So, the problem is, there's always human beings making this judgment call, and it's not always based upon cold, hard facts, because sometimes cold, hard facts simply uh, don't exist for what's being discussed. Like, if you call something true but misleading, how do you prove that? How do you prove that something's true but misleading? You could say, in my opinion, this is true but misleading, but misleading can't be proven. You can say, oh, well, this looks misleading to me. You can't prove something's misleading. So that's where fact checkers run into a lot of trouble, is because in order to say something's misleading, or to say something that's partially true, is 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 actually just you call it just false because that's another where ju- judgment calls come in. Let's say you're there's an article with uh, let's you know thirty things stated, and uh, you find that uh, twenty eight of the things stated are true and two are false, but the two things that are false are the most important things in the article. Those are really the meat of the article. Then there's twenty eight kind of extraneous facts that are stated that don't really matter that much. Well, that would be a false article, even though 28 of the 30 things are true. With the two things that are false being the most important things in the article, that would be what I'd consider a false article. On the other hand, if 28 of the things are false, but the two most important things to state are true, that actually is kind of a true article. That usually wouldn't happen, but uh, I'm giving you an example where not all facts are equal because some things are much more important than others. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, let's say I saw Trey Ruski, uh, cheating at poker with Mark cards. Okay. And I told someone the story and I said, well, this is what happened. Uh, I showed, I, I got up at, uh, I, I was sleeping during the day and, uh, I woke up at, uh, at five 30 and I said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to go to commerce. So I, I drove to commerce and, uh, uh there was some traffic. So I, I got there about, uh, 
I got there actually at seven thirty, and and I walked in, and by the time I, I saw Trey Ruski playing, and I walked up, to, I walked up to him there, and uh, he was playing in a, in a six-handed game, and I saw him marking cards, and uh, and and I, I clearly saw it, and uh, and and then he he won two thousand dollars while he was there, while I was watching him marking these cards. Well, let's say the truth of the matter was. I didn't wake up at 5.30. I actually woke up at 4.30. That's the truth. Is I didn't get to Commerce at 7.30. I actually got there at 7. Let's say he was not in a six-handed game. He's in a nine-handed game. Let's say he didn't win $2,000. He actually won uh, $3,000. But let's say he was marking cards. Everything in that story was false except he was marking cards. What, what's the most important thing in that story? He was marking cards. Does, does the rest of the stuff matter? What time I got there? Uh, what, how many handed the game? Like, all that's extraneous. It's part of my story. It's just I got all that wrong. Forget if it's intentional or unintentional. I got it wrong. So you could say everything except one thing in that story is false. And I could say the one part of this, this story which is true is the whole point of the story. Now, of course, it's really false because Trader Risky doesn't mark cards. But you guys get what I mean by this example. That a fact checker could say, okay, everything in this story except one element is false. So this is a false story. So that's where subjectiveness comes in, where you say, well, what's the most important part of it? Which which uh, inaccuracies don't matter? And this is where humans have to make judgment calls. And this will occur with just about every politically charged story. Where there can, I, I read political stories that are misleading all the time, on both sides. I read stories on uh, Fox News or other Republican-facing sites that... Uh, will state things where even if everything is cor- is factually correct, it's stated in a way that's very misleading and, and meant to make the right look good. I read left-wing sites, and I see the same the other way, where they uh, state things in a way to be misleading to make Republicans look bad. So uh, I, I've even I even had this discussion recently about peaceful protests, where they say, well, 93% of the protests are peaceful. Okay, but that could be misleading. First of all, if 7% aren't peaceful, that's a big problem. That's a lot not peaceful, because they should all be peaceful. So 7% being non-peaceful is a problem. Also, how big are the protests? In, in this calculation, if you're counting a two-man protest that's peaceful the same way as a 60,000-person protest that is very violent, that does not mean it was 50% peaceful that day, because the two-man protest doesn't matter. So you can't, you can't count it that way. They are two separate protests, but you can't count them as the same thing. So you can make a statement that's true, 50% of those protests were peaceful, but in reality it wasn't. So that's that's where problems can come in. That's where statistics can be manipulated. And this is where I have a problem, and this is on every side. I'm not just talking about right-wing news. I have a problem with others choosing what I read or others choosing to tell me what is fact or fiction before I read it. I should be able to read it myself. Now, I think that if rebuttals want to be presented, like uh, here's an article, but here's here's our rebuttal to it, That I guess that's okay, though it really should be applied fairly. But to classify an article fake news before someone even clicks on it, or especially to censor the article because you've decided it's false, especially in a major publication. But I don't think it's them, Druff. Look for... Look, first of all, I did send you some breaking news. I just uh, sent you in the chat. Okay. But um, <clears throat> I don't know if you care about that right now. 
But you know, as far as this, but then in the in the DM for uh, in the poker fraud alert, you know, there's this letter that came out from all these former um, intelligence people saying this is it looks just like what the Russians do when they're trying to interfere with our elections. Well, but it could be. It could be that and true. That's the problem. Is that and that's another point I have. And that- true. But if it's but there's no evidence about it. It's. It's, you know, no one's seen the emails and it's got all the, it's got, you know, the one partner verified that one email was to him. And also, I mean, it was in a store in Delaware and he left a computer there where there's information about him doing a deal with the Ukraine. I mean, come on. There there are some questionable elements to how they came about the information. And there's also, as far as the motivation, could Russia have to do with this? Could some of this be hacked information from by Russians? Yes, it it could be. But uh, but I don't care so much about where it came from or why it's being distributed. All I care about is this the truth or or not the truth. And and I said the same thing four years ago about the the stuff that was hacked by Russia to, to help Trump. Um, th- that was damaging to Hillary Clinton. I said, I don't care where this came from, who did it. I, I want to know, are these real emails that-, that were sent by the DNC? Did they really cheat Bernie? Did they, you know, did these things really happen? Or are the yeah. Russians just making it up? And, and I, and nobody was denying that this was real, but they're saying, well, but this is being done by the Russians to interfere with our elections. I go, I don't care why it's being done. Yes, you should stop the Russians from doing things like this, but, once the information's out, if it's real information, it's real information. The truth is the truth. It doesn't matter who's telling it, as long right. as it's the so, truth. So, so Biden submitted twelve years of tax returns. If if he did get money like this and didn't claim it, then why aren't they going after him for tax evasion? Well, they'd have to prove he got the money. That there, there'd be a lot of steps before that. I'm not saying. Right. That, I'm not saying yeah. for sure. I'm not saying it's even sure that Biden got any money. He may not have. But I'm just saying that uh, at the very least, it looks like the to me, it looks like these emails are real simply because they're not denying it. They're not. They're not saying these are completely fake. Yeah, you know, prove they're real. Like Biden's people are not saying these are completely phony. Uh, we don't know where these are coming from. These emails never took place. Uh, this is all made up, and the, the Russians are making this up. But we're not seeing that, and th- th- we would see that because this is really Trump's hail mary. Trump is way behind. Right, right. But why even acknowledge it when the other guy hasn't submitted tax returns? Has his daughter is doing all these Chinese trademark deals? Who he's got half of his family working at the White House. It's like so outrageous and ridiculous. And then all of a sudden, this story comes up, and it wants to be given something. This you is, know, where, why, where's the outrage over, if this guy, if I was successful as Trump claims he is, my tax returns would be an ad in the New York Times. Okay, but these are all, these are all separate issues. This is like, it's a separate issue with what, with Trump's family and this family. It, looking at this story individually, um, you say, why, I've, I've heard this a lot, like, why should they even acknowledge it? Well, first of all, they have acknowledged it. They've said, well, Biden wasn't on schedule to meet anyone, which doesn't mean anything. That's a weird answer. But, but second, as far as answering it, you don't answer anything that, that, no one's paying attention to or is just so outrageous that there's no possible way anyone could believe it. So um, and, and so you don't want to bring attention to something that nobody cares about anyway. So going back to this, let's let's say uh, let's say I have 100,000 Twitter followers. I don't. But let's say I had 100,000 Twitter followers and some guy with two followers uh, tweeted uh, a false rumor that I was cheating in poker. I wouldn't get in a big debate with a guy. I would say, OK, he has got two followers. No one's going to see this. If I get in a debate, it's going to bring attention to this accusation, which otherwise no one would see. And I know it's a false accusation. I'm just not going to say anything. That would be the right move. In fact, people sometimes make that mistake 
who are very big on social media by responding to nobodies, and then they bring attention to something that no one would have seen. But let's say – now let's change it. Now let's say that someone with a million followers accused me of cheating, and this became a huge story. At that point, I can't say I'm not going to answer this because it's going to make everyone talk about it or it's going to be acknowledging or dignifying it with a response. Once everyone's talking about it, then I have to answer, like it or not. Otherwise, I look guilty. And if, if I'm innocent, what I say is I know everyone's saying I did this, but I didn't. There's no evidence I did. I challenge anyone to prove evidence I did because I did not do it. It absolutely never happened. This person's making it up. So that's a, so, so comparing it to here, there is a ton of talk about this, even if you want to say it's all false. There's tons of people talking about this. It's a very, very big story. So th- there's no point to not acknowledge it. Now the only thing you can do is either deny it or just try to talk about it as little as possible because by by having to answer it, you either have to outright lie, which can come to bite you later or even presently if, you can, if it can be disproven. You don't even know what they have on the other side. Or that, uh, or it'll, it may even bite you later if, you know, if you win and then – this is brought back up. So if, if, if they've got really got you on something, even if it's not as bad as what they're claiming, but if at least there's something that to this story which would make you look bad, that's when you just don't want to even answer because that's your only play. None of the plays are good at that point when something comes out that's going to make you look bad. But if any response could make you look worse because you know some of it's true, then you have to stay quiet. And that's what it looks like to me. Now, but I'm not even talking so much about Biden and, and, and Trump and all that. I'm talking about like long past this election, the way, quote, fake news is handled. What bothers me the most about this story by far is the way social media censored it. And even though some have backed away from it and said, okay, we're not going to do this the same way in the future. We're not going to just outright censor links in the future. Uh, but we're going to put warnings on that this is fake news and our fact checkers are going to always check these things. I, I don't want fact checkers checking these things. They, they can check and they can give their opinion, but I don't want things labeled real or fake news before I read them especially major publications. It's one thing if they want to stop disinformation that's uh, like BS news websites being set up to go viral and and they uh, and it's something that no one's heard of before but they're hoping morons are going to distribute without really looking into and they're looking to fight that. That I can appreciate. But the New York Post, whether the story's real or fake, you've got to let that be distributed without without having warnings this is fake news. I mean that's that's insane to me. That that's where it starts to become like state controlled media even if it's not by the state. If it's someone who's acting on behalf of trying to make the state uh be favorable towards them, it almost is state controlled media. I don't like to see and this is about left or right, I don't care where it comes from. I don't want to see yeah, I got you. I don't want to see the right censoring things and putting oh the it's like anything bad about Trump. I don't want a warning it's fake news. I don't. I I I Now I, what now what, what if they posted that letter though too? Which letter? Oh, I put it in the chat, but it's a letter from like Leon Panetta and a bunch of former CIA leaders that this is the Russian. You know, oh, well, they, they can. Russian oh, yeah, they can respond. I mean, they're not allowed. Uh, of course, especially right, on the side. They published it at the same time. Well, right? yeah. They, in other words, right. Well, as long as they applied it fairly, I don't. I don't. I think everybody should be able to respond, and everybody should be able to present additional information. I don't think there should be any suppression. And and uh, now, if if. I don't. I wouldn't like a policy where, when uh, something comes out that is negative about Democrats, that Twitter is immediately there with a rebuttal that you're that's that's posted along with it. But when the reverse happens, something that makes Republicans look bad, uh, Twitter is not presenting a rebuttal for for the other side. That's why I think there's this shouldn't even be this. This should it should especially for major publications. Just let it come out and let the people decide what's real and what's not real, and and uh, uh, and those who want to rebut it can rebut it. But but these services should definitely not be censoring or blocking sites, especially not major sites, and they also shouldn't be either 
you know, describing things as fake news or even having third parties do it because the third parties can be biased. And, and so many of these fact checkers have been shown, and I've even seen it myself, that they really are biased, even the ones that claim not to be. It's so hard to find an, an unbiased fact checker. It's sad, but it is because there's so much subjectivity to it. And there really is no independent body that is good at art, at, at really judging who is uh, non-biased. And, and that can even change over time. You can have a fact checker that uh, has people working there at the moment that really are good at their jobs and are totally unbiased. And then there's some turnover and six months later, it's terrible. Like that's the problem with fact checkers. It's, it's so much subjective. I don't want any of this crap. I, I really just, and, and believe me, I don't like reading sites that are, that, that have such a right wing slant to them that I don't feel I'm getting the whole story. And that's why when stories come out, I start looking everywhere because I want to see the picture from every side. I want to see the left's take on it. I want to see the right's take on it. I want to see uh, what, what are supposedly apolitical takes on it. I, I just want to see everything, and then I can come to uh, I can draw my own conclusion. I don't like when things are uh, are suppressed in any way. And unfortunately, some there's been some degree of arrogance of you know we're, we're the truthful side, the other side's the lying side. So believe us, the truthful side. We're we're going to be calling your news for you. That's but Trump, a lot of it, though, is bullshit they're spreading. I mean, come on. Trump, you know, I mean, if you watch the CNN fact-checking thing, I know it's CNN and blah, blah. Some of these things you cannot dispute. I'm sorry. Well, there, there are – there and, are right. it's a mixture of the problem. So, there, there are some bullshit things that come out, right. and, and then, but then there's also bullshit things that are even said about Trump that are totally not true that, that, or, or very misleading you. things no, said. they got to be equal. I hear you. And so, I, look, so, so, so I don't – yeah, I, it's not just even. I, I don't want to see things suppressed. I want everybody to see everything. And and uh, now, if there want to be, if there's people that want to make commentaries that such and such news organization is is not accurate, or you you shouldn't trust them, or they're biased, or they're putting out a lot of fake news. Here's why. Here's the proof of it. That shouldn't be suppressed either. There should there should be criticism of those who put out the fake news. And I would even be open to if, if there was some site that just popped up yesterday that is attempting to be viral and put something out that's just totally out there. If they, if there's some sort of attempt to thwart that, I'm not even sure the right plan for that either. I don't like only certain sites being able to put out news. Like what if Poker Fraudlers couldn't put out uh, links? That would be crappy. So I, I think that as a site owner myself. But uh, um, but I will say that if, if there's some sort of reasonable plan that uh, – can suppress if there's any kind of suppression or warning it's about some kind of fly-by-night new site that is uh meant to put out something that's misleading and and maybe by foreign actors maybe have some kind of plan to handle those not the new york post not any kind of major media and even if you feel the major media has become biased you you can't do it you shouldn't warn them just let them put it out and and one thing that's going to happen is that there's going to be the media is going to rise on both sides. It has. That's what's, that's what's occurred. It's, it, I wish it hadn't. I wish we are just getting neutral news everywhere. I don't like that there's left media and right media, but that's what's happened. But the only good thing about it is, is now you know where to go for both sides. And then you can, you can make so, – so even if the New York Post puts out a story which isn't true or is partially not true, then you can have the left-wing sites – you can have the HuffPost, you can have CNN, you can you can have Vox, all them. They, they can be debunking it. They can, they can tear it all apart and distribute that all they want, and then people can see those too and go, okay, well, it looks like the New York Post is wrong. And that's and that's uh, what the, the freedom of the press is, and that's uh, – I, I don't want to see anything suppressed. And if you look at Poker Fraud Alert, there's a lot of left-wing propaganda on Poker Fraud Alert by people who are of the left wing, and, and I don't suppress any of it. I, I, I leave it all up there. 
And I, I don't even – not only don't I suppress it, I don't even want to suppress it. It's not like I think, oh, I wish I could delete these messages that I don't agree with, but it would make me look bad, so I can't. I guarantee you guys, I never have the thought, oh, I wish I could delete these messages that are uh, that, that are making Republicans look bad. I never thought – I never think that. I, I think I'm glad that people can express their own ideas, and I acknowledge that there are people who see things differently than me, and I don't – I can give my opinion and hope – some people change their minds, but I don't think it's my right to force anybody to think like me or, or, to, uh, or to suppress information I don't like that, uh, that, that doesn't go along with my, my view of things. And I've never even had the desire to do that, and I, and I really wish everybody would think that way on all sides, that there yeah. isn't a, a desire to suppress anything and not to just come up for it with excuses of why this is okay and why, oh, we have to do this or such and such damage will occur. That's, that's exactly why this country – was, had such strong free speech principles at the very beginning is because it takes away all the excuses of why you can uh, suppress uh, the truth. That it takes away all excuses of why one uh, anyone in power can prevent criticism of them or uh, or, or those close to them. That uh, this you, you can't it closes the door to any kind of excuses. Well, people shouldn't be able to see this for such and such reason. That, that you got to take all that away, and that's that's my concern. No, I hear you, and you know, listen. As you were talking, I'm like, damn, I like this idea. This could be a great opportunity, right? Because I mean, I think it's everybody should read both both sides of the argument, right? Yeah. But then, so, but then I'm like, okay, now where are we getting the stuff from the outside? Now it's just a clusterfuck doubled, you know, the whole thing. Yeah, it, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's why I, I really want everybody to, uh, if you have an idea like, oh, the other side's hateful, the other side is, is dangerous, you can't let these things be posted, you can't let these things be said, or they're always lying and we're always telling the truth. I guarantee there's people on the other side who will say the exact same thing about, about the views you have and about the news you trust that it's all lies and and uh and it needs to be suppressed like it, you you don't want that you you don't ever want to validate that line of thinking because one day then it will come back to bite you and your side's going to be suppressed and it's going to be the same excuses used back on you this this was figured out in the 1700s this is figured that was the world's changed tremendously since then, but that's something that hasn't. And and uh, this was figured out hundreds of years ago, and now there's people trying to reinvent it, going, well, you know, there's actually there actually can be good reasons to suppress uh, information and to suppress speech. And you know, if it's not the government doing it, then it's okay, right? You know, private companies can do it. Uh, so they they start coming up with excuses, but really, the the goal is suppress speech, and that's. That's horrible. That and I. That's why I've always been big and running free speech sites, and and I and I have a free speech show here, and and that's why I've been very big on that. And that's not even tied to any politics. In fact, I, I I've said before on this show, thirty years ago when I was in college, I had arguments with Republicans about this. Who uh, it was a different kind of free speech that they, but they, you know, they they were bigger about uh, about censorship, about uh, things like. Uh, uh, offensive uh, TV shows or, or pornography or things like that, and I had people arguing why that needs to be suppressed. And I said, no, I don't agree. I don't, I, I, I don't want to see material suppressed under the supposed uh, claim that it's harmful. And nowadays, uh, now Republicans are all about free speech. I was funny, back then I'm thinking, why is it the 
you know, like the Democrats are so pro-free speech and the ACLU is so free, free speech. And usually I don't agree with them on, on a lot of the political views they hold. But on this, I totally agree with them and not so much the Republicans. Well, I was ahead of my time on that because now 30 years later, there's a, the Republicans are saying, OK, we, we're very pro-free speech. And then you start to see some Democrats who are, who are not so free speech anymore about certain things. And then uh, so I, I've been consistent the whole way. And I've I've even fought with people on my own side about it back when there was uh, different views on this. So I, I and that's always all the online poker communities I've been part of and the ones I've run have always had that same thing in common. Whether I've run them or I've just been uh, a member of them, it's always like anything that's like heavily moderated and things are always deleted and you can't be yourself. And like I've, I've always kept away from communities like that online because I don't like it. I want everybody to be themselves and be able to say what they want and not constantly be on, on edge that anything they're saying is, is going to get them removed. And I not even just about politics, but anything like I if you notice when I run the, with the forum, the way I run the forum, I don't make people kiss my ass. I don't make people say positive things about me all the time. I let people criticize me. I let, I let people make uh, jokes about me or whatever. And uh, as, as long as it doesn't become obsessive where someone's just constantly harassing me there and is only there to make me miserable, uh, I, I let it go on. And, yeah, you know, sometimes I'll read things written about me that I, I don't like reading and it, it makes me unhappy. But I go, you know, this is part of running a free speech site. And I, I want people to feel free. I don't want them to say, oh, I can't insult Druff. I can't tell Druff he's wrong. I can't criticize Druff because he runs and he's going to ban me. I don't want people to think that. I want people to think, yeah, I, I can post criticism of him here and I know he won't ban me. And that's that's why I take that uh, attitude there. And, and same with even on this show, if people want to call up and uh, disagree with something I said, or even if you want to call up and say the show sucks, you can you can call up and say the show sucks. And uh, I'm not going to give you an hour to say it, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you come on and say it and I'll even address uh, what you're bringing up as long as it's not just uh, nonsense. So anyway, that's, that's it for now. That's just my editorial. And I know a lot of you voted already. Remember we are going to have our show on Tuesday, starting at 3 PM Pacific time. It'll be a YouTube show at Trader Risky. You're going to be the one actually uh, f- running it from the technical side, right? I will, but I will be asking for your help. <laughs> okay. I, I usually have my people doing it, but no, I mean, I, I know some. I, I didn't know I'd be. Okay, I didn't but know hey, I'd be. Let me tell you one thing, too, I um, forgot to mention. You know, I got like a uh, economic whatever check on Friday or Thursday. Yeah. I didn't request it. Hmm. I wish I got that. I really that. shouldn't have got it. And it was, you know, like 1200 bucks or a little less. It was Damn. Like 11 and change or something. And it says like Donald J. Trump right on the check. Well, yeah, and, I know. And it's like. I know. It's I been, mean, it's I, been I, politicized. I, I, I have an issue with that. No, it, it shouldn't be there. No, I, I remember that was being discussed and I thought that was a bad idea. And that's just that's just part of Trump's uh, personality flaws, which I've acknowledged he has. And uh uh, it's funny. You, my girlfriend got a similar thing where she got she got a check that she wasn't expecting and was surprised by it. And I, I got nothing. I've gotten a big zero, but uh, she got one and uh, you got one. She didn't get it recently though. She got it a while ago. But okay, I guess you got free money. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say I got eleven hundred dollars, twelve hundred dollars that I wasn't expecting. That doesn't that doesn't happen. I, for, I don't I don't run that well. It doesn't happen for me. I gotta get a hey, big zero. I, I was like, I want to change my vote now. You know? <laughs> uh, Donnie, you know, a couple other thousand, you know. But I mean, I, I just thought that, like, really, a few days before the election, I mean, I'm a white guy, Democrat, but in, you know, more of a Republican area, I just felt that was a little shady hmm. and maybe not a little.
Hmm. It's it's. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> Almost like a bribe. <laughs> so anyway, uh, remember our show on uh, on Tuesday, and remember next week there's no regular radio show. There will not be a Friday show. The next show will be on November thirteenth of, of the normal Poker Fraud Alert Radio. It just becomes too much for me. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the election show. It should be interesting. And uh, remember, it won't just be me and Trader Ruski. It'll be a lot of people. Brandon, PLOL, that's really uh, their show. And we'll just be part of it. The Calwatt will be on the starting 5.15 Pacific time. And uh, so he'll probably spend an hour or so on there. Maybe even more if he's enjoying it. And uh, then we will have other guests that will pop up. Seriously Serious has shown interest and, and other others are going to come around and uh, join in. And we probably won't have more than four at once. That'll be PLOL's decision, but I know he said that's what he wants is a maximum of four people just kind of rotating through, which, which is, isn't bad because, uh, you know, I can take some breaks and, uh, it'll actually be, it'll actually be kind of nice to not be running it for once because, uh, there, there's some stress to running the whole thing. Sometimes I kind of feel like, uh, you know, I want someone else to run it and then I just want to be there to commentate. And when I'm running it, my, my, my mind is constantly, what do I say next? I can't, I, I got to direct the whole process. I've got to decide what to do next. I got to decide uh, how long to spend on things. I've, I've got to make all these decisions on the fly. And it, it's much more relaxing to just sit back and be part of it. So I will get to do that at least somewhat on, on Tuesday. And uh, I hope you guys tune in and look, you, you can even, you got a preview of this here. You know, the uh, trader is, is a Democrat and I'm not a Democrat, and, and we're both going to be on there. PLOL is a Democrat. There's actually more, more Democrats on there than Republicans. But, you know, I'll be there, though. So, But it's not going to be that type of show. We're not going to be uh, having political debate on there. It really is going to be just a, a mostly nonpartisan analysis of what's going on and being the one who's on the side that is more likely to lose. Uh, I, I'm committing to you that I'm, I'm not going to be delusional or in denial about things. I'm just I'm going to be honest with what I see is happening. And if it's looking very bad for Trump, I'm going to say so. And uh, I have to imagine that the Democrats here are, will do the same if, if Biden is surprisingly losing. Yes. Oh, and by the way, Jeff, there is going to be games, prizes people can win. Oh, okay. That's that's. I didn't uh, know about that, but see, that's, yes. that's good. And we, we have a meeting. I almost said tomorrow, but it is already tomorrow, later today. Oh, shit. I forgot about the meeting. The I forgot about the meeting. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's it'll, I guess, have prizes as well. And remember, a simulcast, an audio simulcast on Poker Fraud Alert Radio will take place. It's going to be a YouTube show. You can see me. You can see Trader Ruski. You can see PLOL and Brandon and anyone else who comes on. Some people don't even know what Calwatt looks like. You'll get to see him. Uh, so you'll get to see some of these people that maybe you haven't seen before. I know you guys have seen me, but uh, not much on video. You mainly see me in pictures, and or maybe in person if you get to meet me. It's not often you see me on video, at least not current me. You see old me on video, but not uh, not current me very much anymore. So that, that'll be an opportunity to see me up close on video, and I, I'm sure you're all excited about that. And then... Uh, there will be simul- a simulcast on audio if you just want to listen to the audio show or if you're driving, whatever it is. If you don't like the YouTube platform, whatever it is, it'll be there will be an audio simulcast and it'll be in the archives for anyone that wants to hear that. And then we'll return to regular programming on November 13th. And this has been a long show. I, I, I can't believe I'm still going. It's almost 7 a.m. It's, it's crazy. Oh, and, and drop real quick. By the way, the breaking news was that Sean Connery passed yes, away. Yes, yes. Sean Connery, uh, how old was he? He was 90. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. 
That's pretty old. And, and, you know, I was thinking, you've seen the Zoom virtual backgrounds, right? Yeah. But I was thinking, maybe, you know, take like a, a screenshot of like when you had all the food at the uh, Live at the Bike uh, thing. <laughs> That'd be a great virtual background. That'd be hilarious. I, I probably should have told you that offline. But I don't think it's clear, though, but maybe that does give me an idea. Maybe I should just have like a, a lot of different food just in the background that makes it look like right. I'm sitting in front of a gigantic uh, like, a, like a big buffet or yeah something. a gigantic buffet of food that's a, like I you know I actually did a show that just this is so weird there's a guy that I used to play with on absolute poker who went by stretch McGee and uh, I I happened to be at his 10k limit hold'em table uh, last year and uh, and he he was very nice. He was telling everyone I, I was such a great player in absolute poker, and he learned a lot from watching me. And they, he was really talking me up at the table, which is nice because like I got a really good starting table at that event, and like there was like a lot of recreational players, and then like everyone was terrified of me because he told them how good I was. <laughs> and you didn't even think about raising the pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So I I was totally abusing. It. Like I was just I was raising so aggressively there, knowing everyone was terrified. Uh, so anyway, um, unfortunately, I got moved from that table. They grabbed me out of the big blind and put me in an awful table, but. Uh, the, the the point is, he contacted me not too long ago, and he said he has a show, a video show, and he he wanted me to be on it. So I said okay, and it took some it took a while to make it actually happen, but I did. I I was on the show. It was me, him, and some co-host I didn't really know, and I actually put a poker fraud alert background with uh, a poker fraud alert graphic, and then I I made sure to sit to the side of it so I wasn't blocking the graphic. I was hoping it's uh, some good advertiser. For PFA. Anyway, I can't find it. Like it never aired, as far as I know. It's like it's. Uh, he, they enjoyed it. They said they really thought I. They I had a lot of interesting stuff to say, and they liked the interview, and it, it seemed like it went well. And they didn't tell me anything otherwise. But I, I just can't find. I can't even find the show itself. So I don't know what the hell happened. And and uh, they, they were so engaged, they forgot to hit record. Yeah, I don't know what happened, but it just never, it never appeared. And then I messaged him on Twitter, like, "When's the show coming? And where is it?" And he just didn't answer me. So I didn't. I don't know what hell, what the hell happened here. But uh, I may have just wasted an hour and a half of my time on that. It was if, if, like two months ago when I did this. I mean, Trump. Why did we hear about this? We could have watched it. I would have watched that. No, I don't think it was I live. I think no, no, no because oh, it wasn't it was... live. Yeah, they were recording it to then put up in, in in video format to play later. It just never appeared. I was I I didn't want to talk it up until it actually appeared. And then it never came. And it's very weird. I didn't get a response. I don't know what's going on. I don't think there's anything nefarious to it. I think maybe they just lost it or something. Or be yeah, very strange. There's a lot going on. You never know what happened. <laughs> it reminded me of I with mean, a Zoom background. You know, I was going crazy because, like, I had a bunch of stuff in the background that uh, I didn't necessarily want everybody to see. Nothing really embarrassing. Just, just like, you know, pictures of stuff, of relatives and stuff that I didn't necessarily want up there. So, like in the background, people watching. So I'm like, I'm moving everything around oh, yes. frantically, and then I go, "Why am I doing this? I could just put a zoom background. In fact, I could do a zoom background of a poker fraud alert logo." So I did. I used the one that's. Uh, there's kind of like two poker fraud alert logos. There's the original that that my girlfriend like very quickly whipped together in like ten minutes with a skull and crossbones, and then there's Ooh. the more advanced looking one with like a a, a bunch of casinos in vegas with a, a satellite on top saying on air oh, and it says right. poker fraud alert radio anyway so i took the the more advanced of the two and i used that as my background so i, I was very proud of myself with that and i said you know i didn't have to move anything in the background but then but uh, so i'll have some kind of background here but maybe instead of poker fraud alert i should have because uh, everybody will know it's poker poker fraud alert watching this but 
maybe I should should do a, a big thing of food behind me. Yeah, do do that, and I can use a poker fraud alert. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe we'll get branded. You know, we'll do something. Yeah, that. Uh, okay. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio on this long episode after no episode last week and uh, no regular episode next week. But then we'll return to a Friday schedule. You know how it goes. And happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah, happy Halloween. It is Halloween right now. On uh, It's October 31st, about 7 a.m. is we're ending this thing. Uh, is, is trick-or-treating legal where you are? Um, I'm not sure if it's legal. No, but they're doing, like, some events and some open area. I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure if it's illegal. They're trying to do some safe events. Okay, well, it's it's they illegal. They had a drive-through trick-or-treating in Santa Maria. Okay. It's it's illegal here, so I don't think anyone's going to be coming to the door. At least they didn't have to prepare for it. They didn't have to get candy, but it's, it's illegal where I am. So we're actually going to do an in-home trick-or-treating, where Benjamin's going to go from room to room, and me and his mom are going to run from room to room, almost like he's visiting different houses, and give wow. him and give him candy. Nice. Oh, by the way, did Belly Buster do that new logo? I, I no. Oh, yeah, let me stop it for a second. I can explain this. The new logo, which isn't that new anymore, several years old, but uh, that the the better of the two logos, which I hope my girlfriend doesn't hear, but uh, the better of the two logos was done by a listener who I don't even know if he listens anymore. Uh, what was his name? I'm even forgetting his name on the forum. It was. Uh, Oh, I've, I've, yeah, now I, 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 I kind of hope he's not listening. He f- forgot his forum name. He, he never posted a lot, but he was uh, a little bit older than me. And uh, he and his wife were good at uh, doing graphic design. So I forgot if he made it or if his wife made it or if they both made it. But they uh, uh, they made this for me just uh, for free. And they also were the ones who made the design that appeared on the hats which they gave me, which I then Trader Ruski actually got the hats printed through someone he knew. And, uh, and so I actually sent that design to Trader Ruski and that, that, that's who made that too. So they made both. And I appreciated that very much. They didn't charge me anything. They, they actually had some background in doing that. So they, they made these, uh, that logo and the, and the, the hat stuff for me. And that was, was very helpful. So that's, that's actually what I've been using when I have to submit a graphic for the, podcast on various platforms which carry poker fraud alert radio so i you know, i appreciate help like that because i'm not i'm not good at graphic design or anything like that i I, ne- I never was very artistic and that's just not an area where i'm very good and so when others who are better at it can uh, contribute things like that uh, i appreciate it and uh, i don't care if the logo's you know seven years old at this point it it works and i, I like it it's cool and especially the i like the little animated version that has the on-air blinking but uh, and it's cool. It's like it's like the Vegas casinos, including the Rio, kind of like sitting in the earth, and then a, a satellite sitting above it that says on air. And uh, the only thing that's missing yeah, is well, Mount. Like the only thing that's missing is Mount Charleston. That's the one thing that's missing. Right, but, but you, you know. can do kind of like a lighter one in the background. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you're safe. I don't think your girl's going to make it safe. No, show. she probably won't. Unless she's... she just chimes in for the Trader Ruski. Yeah, she she uh, she listens. I'll tell you when she listens. She listens when she goes hiking, 
and when she's alone, she will like when she's hiking alone, she will uh, turn it on and and listen. And uh, I, I guess it's good that when she's out of the house and away from me, she actually wants to listen to me. Nice. And you know what, Drop? I know you want to go to sleep probably, but you know one thing I was thinking of because like you know how Howard Stern has Sternthology, and I know you just have the random things that are on the eight hundred on the uh, call in number, but. You know, it could be cool to have, like, the Travis McCarr stuff and just some, you know, I don't know, some older stories. I think some of the newer listeners, like, would never know about that stuff, could be interested in. You mean as a segment somebody's... a segment on the show, or what do you well, not a, No, not necessarily a segment, but almost like a greatest hits type thing, you know, or, or you know, yeah, like the greatest hits type thing for, like, some stories people may want to care about that could just be, like, uploaded podcasts so that people don't have to go through, you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of these things I've thought of before and then I just don't end up doing it because I have to go through all these shows and find the best parts or the most uh, interesting parts or the biggest stories and like if it comes to mind, like okay, what about this story or that story but like I, I the, the thought of going through almost right. 400 I mean, look, 400 It's really the Travis McCarr stuff I think is just so interesting you know and just the whole evolution. And maybe somebody's bored who's listening. That's why I kind of threw it out there. Yeah, you there's some people that, who don't know these things from many years ago. They're like eight years ago now that they, yeah, exactly. they, they're not aware of it. And that uh, uh, even Eric Bensamakan slash Benzamokin sometimes asked me, hey, can you, uh, you know, can you do a segment sometime about uh, you know, such and such old story when I wasn't around in poker? And, yeah, sure. So. You know, I mean, the truth is, if, if Eric would like to hear a segment, I, he does so much here for the for the show. I said, uh, if he if he requests a segment for me to do, he's one of the few people I'll I'll say, okay, I'm going to do it. Where others I'll go, okay, if I like the segment you're suggesting, then I will do it. Otherwise, no. With with Eric, I usually, but you know, the truth is, when he suggested segments, I go, oh, you know what, it is a good idea. I, I should do this, and I I do it. So he actually requests things that I actually uh, I like the idea anyway. But uh, you know, I, I I would give him uh, more leeway in suggesting things because he's he's done so much here for the site so if he wants to hear me do something then uh, uh every so often then I'd, I'd be happy to do that and and uh but he, he has requested those type of stories like f- old things from back before he was around to hear about so i know some people enjoy that stuff especially people who didn't experience it the first time and it, it's kind of hard for me to think about on my own because i was around for it so to me this is just older stuff that to me seems long past anyway uh but I, I can understand why people who weren't around then want to hear some of these. They're, they're interesting. So anyway, uh, I will, uh, I'm going to go back to the song in the background here so I can end this thing in a minute. So remember, November 13th, around the same time, we'll do the next show. Thank you to A Hoosier A. Remember, if you want to donate to A Hoosier A, uh, contact me and we'll come up with a way you can send the money to me. And, you know, once we get to the 1500 mark, I will close it. So he won't make a penny on this, I promise you. He will, at best, break even. And I think he deserves it after, the, after everything he went through. And that's why I even put 100 bucks of my own into this. So we need 1400 more. I've already gotten a few people messaging me that they uh, would like the uh, my Venmo address, which I'll give. Privately, that is. But if you want it, 775-372-8355 or... Any other way except for PayPal, basically, which I can't take right now. And we'll collect that money and forward it over to him. And 
thank you also to Kanish for coming on and telling us about the Cubans. That is all. Good night. Good morning, actually. And shalom. Shalom.